This is Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor. I'm still coming off the high of covering George Thurgood's bad to the bone while dressed as a jack-in-the-box in front of an enthusiastic Jenny McCarthy, whom we all masturbated to in the 90s. That was before technology ruined masturbation by making it too easy. When I was mayor, we all masturbated to the same people, centerfolds, Bond girls, and barely legal pop singers. It was a shared communal experience. And back then, Asian people were polite. When we covered George Thurgood, they would bow, not walk out. Technology has ruined masturbation, empowered minorities, and rigged elections. Anyone with ears can tell you that my singing last night was far better than the Polaris sphincters or the cornfield turds. But it was me, the jack in the box, who got voted off while the Polaris sphincter and the corn packed turd lived to sing another week. Believe you me, this is not the end. Today, I'm announcing a class action lawsuit to suspend any further episodes of The Masked Singer until this is resolved. That's right. As of today, I am suing and masturbating to the cast and crew of The Masked Singer. God bless America. Thank you, uh, Rudy Giuliani. I think that was Rudy Giuliani. That sounded like Rudy Giuliani. Thank you. Welcome to the mop-up for April 21st. I think that might have been Smigel. I don't know. You never can tell. Welcome to the mop-up for April 21st, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage. Somewhere in Manhattan, <laughs> where the temperature is 50 degrees and kind of sunny, ABC's The Masked Singer featuring the unmasking of Rudy Giuliani was the lowest rated show last night. According to Nielsen, Rudy Giuliani, as you just saw, held a press conference where he accused Nielsen of using software developed by Venezuela's dead president, Hugo Chavez, that allows millions of people to illegally watch NBC's Chicago Med. Well, Russian's foreign ministry has announced that it has barred U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg from ever stepping foot in Russia again. Nice try, Russia, but we're still rooting against you. You could even ban Elon Musk, Ivanka, Rudy Giuliani, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi. Still, still, we would root against you. Rob Reiner, if you barred Rob Reiner, that would be a tough one, I have to admit. If you barred for this is Rob Reiner's latest tweet. This is what he tweeted today. It couldn't be more simple. A vote for Republicans is a vote to destroy democracy. 10,000 retweets, 45,000 likes. Well, this week, Sean Hannity became the longest running primetime news host in television history. To give you an idea of how long Hannity has been at Fox, when he first started, America resembled a functioning democracy. And now, thanks to Sean Hannity, it doesn't. 
CNN streaming service CNN Plus is shutting down at the end of this month after only being available for a couple of weeks. CNN Plus expected 2 million viewers, but only ended up with 10,000. CNN made the announcement today in between nonstop coverage of Ukraine as Jake Tapper tries desperately to get us into World War III. You know, as far as embarrassments go, CNN Plus shutting down barely registers in the top 100 decisions this week that CNN should be ashamed of. You know, CNN, maybe if you can't start a streaming service, you probably lack the foresight to start an American war in Ukraine. Maybe instead of Ukrainian war porn, maybe, just maybe, CNN should report on the war in Yemen, where American missiles and other assorted weapons have been used on innocent women and children, killing at least 377,000 by the end of 2021. The war in Yemen has killed 377,000 innocent women and children, according to the United Nations. And that's underestimating the number of those killed by Saudi Arabia and the UAE using American weapons. But somehow there's no Yemeni war porn. I wonder why. What, what color are the people of Yemen? I should look into that. So CNN Plus is shutting down. Meanwhile, the real victim in all that is poor Chris Wallace, who left Fox News Sunday to host his own show on CNN Plus, and now he's out of a job. Chris, you were lied to and misled by CNN. Join the club. We all are lied to and misled by CNN. But Chris Wallace couldn't possibly know this because he was too busy lying and misleading everyone while working over at Fox News. I'm actually surprised CNN Plus wasn't successful. Who would have ever dreamed there isn't an ear-splitting demand out there for an extra hour of Wolf Blitzer? Some say the streaming bubble is popping probably because all these streaming services are offering the same exact thing. Nothing. They offer nothing. Barack and Michelle Obama are quitting Spotify. And I don't mean they're canceling their subscription because Joe Rogan said the N word 30,000 times and Joe Rogan gets people killed by promoting ivermectin instead of the vaccine. No, that's not why they're quitting Spotify. They're quitting Spotify in terms of they're not doing their show. They have a show on Spotify. Barack and Michelle had a multi-million deal, deal with Spotify and they were doing their own podcasts. And that makes sense because if there's anything Barack Obama is known for, it's all talk. So he's great. I, I don't listen, but he must be great at podcasting because his entire presidency was nothing but talk. The Obama's multi-million dollar deal with Spotify wraps up at the end of this year. So they are shopping their podcasting wares to other venues like Audible, which is owned by Amazon, which is owned by Jeff Bezos. Do I see the Obamas marching with Christian Smalls to organize the second Amazon warehouse 
out on Staten Island? No. Do I even see the Obamas taking the time to interview Christian Smalls on one of their stupid podcasts for Spotify? Do I even see Barack Obama give a full-throated endorsement of the Amazon labor union? No, because he's too busy recording podcasts with Bruce Springsteen talking about the meaning of America and how we all need to dial back the combative rhetoric. That's what the millionaire liberals want, not the leftists, the millionaire liberals. They want us to dial back the angry rhetoric. You know, John Stewart is one of those guys. He's always talking about dialing back the anger, unless, of course, he wants to get angry. Then it's OK. Then he can use the F word on the steps of the Capitol in front of Charles uh, J- uh, Chuck Schumer. That's OK. But the rest of us have to dial back the combative rhetoric. Well, John Stewart dipped his toe into the stream on Apple TV and Variety reports that John Stewart's show is a flop. Nobody is watching it. Kind of like my show. The difference being I'm not handed millions of dollars worth of writers and producers and staff. No, like my sex life, I have to do everything on my own. According to Atlantic, the fifth episode of The Problem with Jon Stewart was streamed only 40,000 times. And that was just me hate watching it. Jon's viewership is down 78% from its first episode on September 30th, 2021. His last episode got 40,000 views millions and millions of dollars that Apple threw at him and he gets 40,000 views, 40,000 views. More Americans would rather watch a redneck accidentally take a dump in a hot tub on YouTube than endure another John Stewart F word laden lecture on how Americans need to elevate political discourse. Well, if you want to elevate political discourse, John Stewart, you go first. How about you stop saying the F word? How about you buy a thesaurus with all your millions of dollars, all your writers that Apple pays for? Nobody can get this guy another word that's synonymous with the F word. But no, John Stewart, I'm I'm going to use the F word on the steps of the Capitol and on my multi-million dollar streaming show for Apple because I use the F word. I'm just like everybody else. Yes, John, you're exactly just like everybody else, which is why nobody is watching you. 40,000 views. Apparently, there isn't a market out there for John Stewart, a union-busting multimillionaire who grandstands off the cheap grace of supporting our military while at the same time telling his viewers to make peace with the oil companies you know maybe if we didn't make peace with the oil companies john stewart we wouldn't be sending our soldiers off to the burn pits in iraq and afghanistan folks i was right about christian smalls and his amazon labor union and i was the lone voice telling you about John Stewart. I know exactly who John Stewart is. And sadly for John Stewart, John knows exactly 
who Jon Stewart is, a union-busting bully, a coward who always takes the easy way out, whether it's using the F word to punch up his weak material, changing his last name from Leibowitz to Stewart, and most importantly, telling his audience exactly what they want to hear as opposed to what they need to hear. Jon Stewart is a coward and a bully. The sad thing is he's still the best at what he does, which speaks volumes to what gets passed off as edgy humor these days here in America. He's still the best at what he does, and he's a coward. The streamers continue to fail. Shares of Netflix collapsed by nearly 30% on Wednesday after a quarterly earnings report revealed Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers during the first three months of 2022. Netflix was expected to add 2.5 million subscribers, and now Netflix says it now expects to lose 2 million more subscribers by June. I guess that means Dave Chappelle has another special coming out. Could that be why? No, no. Why is Netflix, why is Netflix losing subscribers? Here's the truth, then we'll discuss various ways to spin it. But the truth is Netflix shut down its services in Russia. Netflix did the patriotic thing and they've made their service unavailable to the Russians. And so they lost 700,000 subscribers because of that. But they gained 500,000 new subscribers someplace else in the world. And so they had a net loss of 200,000 subscribers. That's a fact. That's the truth. That's why Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers this quarter. That's what Netflix reported. That's in their earnings report. And that is the truth. That is the truth. Okay. But Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk says Netflix lost subscribers last quarter because it's, quote, too woke. Elon Musk says Netflix has become unwatchable because it's infected by what he described as a woke mind virus. Elon Musk, wealthiest man in the universe, and it doesn't matter what the truth is. The guy who's trying to buy Twitter and restore Donald Trump's Twitter account doesn't care what the truth is. Elon Musk takes a story and he spins it. He molds it. He changes the facts and says Netflix is losing subscribers because it's too woke. And because it's Elon Musk, because he's the wealthiest man in the universe, a lot of idiots go, hmm, makes sense. Yeah, Netflix is failing because it's too woke. Netflix is failing because it's too woke. That's what Elon Musk says. Well, let's untangle that, Elon Musk. You mean Netflix is too woke? Too woke when it stands by Dave Chappelle? Is that what you mean by too woke? You mean when they kept his anti-trans comedy specials on their channel? Is that the woke mind virus you speak of, Elon Musk? Standing by Dave Chappelle when he insists in his special, gender is fact? 
that woke mind virus is that what you're talking about again the truth is and the truth doesn't matter to somebody like elon musk but the truth is russia that's why that's why netflix lost 200,000 subscribers they shut down in russia they lost 700,000 customers in Russia. They gained 500,000 subscribers somewhere else, and that left them with 200,000 fewer customers. That's the truth. But Elon Musk gets to twist news events anyway. his racist, anti-union, anti-LGBTQ agenda wants. So if Elon Musk can do it, I'm going to give it a try, okay? Elon, I say Netflix is shedding subscribers because Netflix isn't woke enough. How about my spin? Okay, you want to lie? I'm going to lie. My spin is Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers because it isn't woke enough. I say it lost 200,000 subscribers because the LGBTQ community is boycotting Netflix because of day Dave Chappelle, and it's working. They lost 200,000 subscribers, Elon Musk, because Netflix stuck by Dave Chappelle. 6% of this country is LGBTQ. Everyone in America has a friend or a loved one who is a member of the LGBTQ community, and they think Netflix isn't woke enough. So they're boycotting Netflix, Elon Musk. There, there. Netflix isn't woke enough. It's so easy to play Elon Musk's right-wing Joe Rogan game of ignorance. The British Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, reportedly said, quote, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. In other words, if you really want to bolster your lies, use statistics. Netflix just lost 200,000 subscribers because it was shut down in Russia. But Elon Musk says people are leaving Netflix because it's too woke. What he says is a lie, a damned lie, and of course, a statistic. So I'm going to say they're losing viewers because of Dave Chappelle. And trust me, all somebody has to do is print my lie with my damned statistics. Just print my Dave Chappelle spin in, I don't know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or any other leading news organization, and people will believe that. People will believe that Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers because it's not woke enough. People will believe that, including Dave Chappelle including Netflix. They will believe that. Just print the legend. Try my legend instead of Elon Musk's legend. But here in America, they only print the legend that's spread by right-wing, right-wing oligarchs like Elon Musk. This is just like the new lie that the rise of crime can be blamed on calls to defund the police. This is the whole new thing now. The rise in crime is caused by calls to defund the police. There is no credible evidence to suggest that any police department in America has been or will be defunded.
If anything, more money is being thrown at our cops. But that doesn't stop the right wing and their stenographers in the media from insisting that it's the left calling for the defunding of the police that's causing crime to rise. It's not the guns, not the income inequality, not the mental illness that's been aggravated by two years of a lockdown, not the desperation. It is the mere talk of defunding the police that is causing crime to rise here in America, according to our right-wing controlled corporate media. Elon Musk knows nothing, which means he's got his finger on the pulse of America. If it sounds good, then say it as long as it furthers your own financial interests. And this is exactly how America is going to stumble into World War III over Ukraine. You take something that's true, like Netflix loses 200,000 subscribers, and then that's a statistic, and now you can have it mean whatever you want it to mean, even though the truth is Russian operations for Netflix have been shut down. Elon Musk instead blames the woke. He hates the woke. Elon Musk hates the woke because his companies have a long history of sexism and racism, and it's starting to catch up with him. This week during his earnings report for Tesla, he had to admit that the US Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is investigating Tesla for multiple reports of threats, intimidation, and outright racism directed at Elon Musk's African-American employees. All this after California Civil Rights Agency accused Elon Musk of fostering a culture of, quote, rampant racism in his factories. Tesla, that's the world's largest electric vehicle maker, is also being sued by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which says Elon Musk created a toxic workplace for African-Americans by ignoring their complaints for years about widespread use of the N-word inside Tesla's Fremont, California plant where 20,000 people work. A three-year investigation conducted by California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing concludes Elon Musk's Tesla Fremont plant is, quote, a racially segregated workplace with no African-Americans in leadership roles. The complaints against Elon Musk's racism and discrimination against African-Americans goes back to 2012, saying supervisors and managers repeatedly called black workers the N-word with abandon. One black worker complained of hearing racial slurs as often as 50 to 100 times a day. And that's not because he was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast. Black workers complained they constantly saw racist graffiti on restroom walls, lockers, benches, workstations, lunch tables, and even the break room inside Tesla's factory. Elon Musk was born in South Africa during the height 
of apartheid. Someone born in South Africa at the height of apartheid should refrain from coming to America and trafficking in dog whistles like the word woke. We know exactly why Elon Musk doesn't like woke for the same exact reason he doesn't like the government. The woke culture, just like the California government, calls him out for what he is, a racist. If you come from South Africa, you're not entitled to dismiss woke culture. If you're visiting America from South Africa, you need to bend over backwards to prove to us that you're not a racist. If you're born in apartheid era South Africa, Elon Musk, you better prove to us that you're woke or get out of my country. Get out of my country. Don't come here from South Africa, a product of apartheid and trash our woke culture. Get out of my country. Now, I'm sure Elon Musk, when he's not stoned, I'm sure Elon Musk doesn't think it's fair to assume all South Africans are white supremacists. Well, if you think I'm painting with a broad brush and calling all South Africans racists, Elon Musk, why don't you call the woke police? Call the woke police. Why are you being so sensitive? You're from South Africa. Come on, you're white. So you're a racist. Don't be so woke. Come on. Plus, I'm joking. Can't you take a little joke, Elon? What are you getting so woke about my calling you a racist just because you were born in South Africa? So the thing is, I'm not joking. There are facts to prove that South African, a product of South Africa's apartheid, Elon Musk, is in fact a racist. There are numerous lawsuits in the state of California to prove that Elon Musk, who was born in apartheid era South Africa, is in fact a racist. When black employees are treated this way, when they hear the N-word incessantly, when they find no room for advancement at Tesla, that's racism. So I get why Elon Musk, who smokes dope with Joe Rogan, I get why he complains about the woke culture, because he's a racist. He's a racist. So of course he's going to complain about the woke culture. Late last year, Musk announced he was relocating Tesla headquarters from California to Texas, where companies are fined for not using the N-word. And if you think that's unfair, Google the name of former Governor Rick Perry's hunting camp, Rick Perry longest serving governor in Texas history, Trump's energy secretary, Rick Perry. Google the name of his hunting camp and I'll wait. I'll wait. Google Rick Perry hunting camp. 
Got it. And then Google is Rick Perry gay. Google is Rick Perry gay. Then Google Rick Perry and these words, male escort, Joey the hustler. Google these words, Rick Perry, comma, male escort, comma, Joey the hustler. The midterms are two weeks away. On May 3rd, candidates for House and Senate face off in primaries in Ohio and Indiana. May 17th is primaries uh, in Pennsylvania. And on May 24th, Texas uh, will hold its runoff elections after holding its primary back on March 1st. Like I said, Ohio's congressional midterms are May 3rd. Nina Turner is running to unseat Congresswoman Chantel Brown, who won a special election last year to fill the seat vacated by Marsha Fudge, who Joe Biden picked to run housing, urban development, housing and urban development. Nina Turner is a progressive who has supported and is supported by Bernie Sanders, but she lost last year after a right-wing pro-Israeli settler super PAC pumped $2 million into the campaign for Chantel Brown. There are a lot of uh, Jews who live in her district, and they are being brainwashed by far right-wing pro-Israeli settler super PACs who uh, who want Chantel Brown to be reelected. The Intercept is now reporting that Congresswoman Chantel Brown is getting a $1 million boost from Sam Bankman-Fried, a billionaire who has made his fortune in cryptocurrency. Fried has formed the pro-cryptocurrency super PAC, Protect Our Future, because nothing says protect our future more than putting all your hard-earned cash into cryptocurrency. Well, I guess if you're willing to put all your money into something that doesn't really exist, you would have no trouble putting your money into Congresswoman Chantel Brown. Meanwhile, Chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, Bernie Sanders, will stand with the Amazon Labor Union this Sunday out on Staten Island when he speaks to a rally of union supporters, 1,500 employees, at an Amazon warehouse vote April 25th on whether or not to join Christian Small's Amazon Labor Union. If victorious, this would be Amazon Labor Union's second win. Amazon.com has a European division which received 1 billion euros in tax credits last year, claiming it lost 1.16 billion euros. That's according to its most recent corporate filings. Amazon, surprise, paid zero taxes in Europe and received a 1 billion euro tax subsidy. Now listen to me, Europe. This is how Amazon spreads like a cancer. They lose money for years. It's not Amazon, the wealthiest, the second wealthiest man in the world. Elon, uh, not Elon Musk, who's the other piece of shit? Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion because they pretend they're losing money. They lose money. He loses money for years by undercutting his competition. He's doing this now in Europe. He has money to burn. So he goes into Europe and he charges less for everything. It's called predatory pricing, predatory pricing. He has enough cash on hand and some 
angel investors who will keep pouring money into Amazon Europe so Amazon Europe can sell products at a loss, right? And at first, Europeans will start buying from Amazon to save money. You're buying stuff at cost or at a loss because Amazon can afford to do this. But soon the Europeans will have no choice but to buy from Amazon because all of Europe's brick and mortar stores will soon be out of business. I, Amazon is a cancer. Jeff Bezos looks like a tumor because he's a cancer. He looks like a malignant tumor because Jeff Bezos is a cancer. And my advice to Europe is shut Amazon down. On Wednesday, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange moves one step closer to being extradited to the United States to face espionage charges. Since 2019, Julian Assange has been held in Great Britain's Belmarsh prison, where a magistrate's court this week ordered Assange to be shipped off to America and face charges of spying on this country 10 years ago when he released classified information revealing war crimes committed by American soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now it's up to Home Secretary Priti Patel to approve the extradition. Before being transferred to Belmarsh Prison, Assange spent seven years inside London's Ecuadorian embassy. Assange faces 17 counts of espionage for assisting U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning in stealing files that included a 39-minute video of more than a dozen Iraqis, including two Reuters journalists, getting shot to death by U.S. military inside Apache helicopters. Some of our military were heard laughing while committing these atrocities. Nobody in the American military was charged in the killings, but Assange faces 175 years in prison for exposing these war crimes. Nick Terse over at The Intercept reports today that the brother of one of 11 Libyans killed by an American airstrike in 2018 that destroyed three sport utility vehicles, the brother is now filing a criminal complaint against the NATO officials who orchestrated that missile strike, and the brother wants those officials charged with murder. The Intercept also reports that of the 150 airstrikes launched against ISIS in Libya, one out of every four of those strikes killed innocent civilians. The Intercept reports that after a missile strike, our Pentagon only conducts an on-site inspection 16% of the time. 84% of the time, our Pentagon relies on satellite imagery to determine whether, whether the attack was, as the Pentagon calls it, righteous. Well, the Washington Post is now reporting that America's life expectancy cratered in 2020 due to COVID, but in 2021, unlike the rest of the industrialized world, our life expectancy continued to go down despite the vaccine. 
America is the only nation in the industrialized world not to see an uptick in life expectancy in 2021. The Institute for Policy Studies issued a new report revealing that in the 50 years since the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, 60% more Americans are living below the official poverty line. 41 million Americans now live in poverty with an additional 100 million living at or right above it. There are now eight times as many Americans behind bars since Dr. King was shot. 66% of American prisoners are people of color. That's 10% more than when Dr. King was shot. Federal spending on prisons during the past 50 years has increased more than 10 times. The Institute for Foreign Policy Studies says that when Dr. King was assassinated, the federal government spent $2 on the Vietnam War for every dollar spent on anti-poverty programs. Today, for every dollar spent to fight poverty, $4 are spent on the military to fight, well, not quite sure who we're fighting. Um, four times as much. We're spending four times as much now on military spending than we did at the height of the Vietnam War. Well, meanwhile, the Brookings Institute has issued a new report this week indicating that while gun violence has seen an uptick, it's important to pay attention to where the gun violence has increased. According to the Brookings Institute, gun violence is highly localized and goes up in cities where gun violence has always been going up. That would be cities where there is chronic poverty and in specific zip codes where the government fails to invest in the lives of those living there. Brookings says poverty alone cannot account for zip codes with high rates of gun homicides. homicides. What can account for the gun violence, however, is mixing poverty in with racial segregation and what Brookings calls systemic disinvestment. Systemic disinvestment. Systemic disinvestment. That is think tank talk for spending more on the military than on fighting poverty. Systemic disinvestment. Go fuck yourself to systemic disinvestment. So what Brookings is saying, gun violence goes up where people of color live with other people of color, while the government keeps them in poverty by failing to provide affordable housing, education, and of course, jobs. Jobs, systemic disinvestment. Well, jobs. The Labor Department reports that our economy added 431,000 jobs in March, but 230,000 Blacks and Hispanics left the labor force. The Labor Department says that black unemployment is double that of white unemployment and unemployment now hits men harder than women. So if you want to put an end to gun violence, get rid of the guns. But since we're not going to get rid of the guns, we need to put black men to work, Hispanic men to work. How about we put them to work getting rid of guns? Oxfam. Oxfam is a global organization that reports on income inequality. According to a new study, Oxfam says the International Monetary Fund is forcing fiscal austerity on the millions of third world people who live in countries 
that accepted pandemic relief loans from the International Monetary Fund. According to Oxfam, in the first year of the pandemic, 85% of all AMF loans, IMF loans to third world countries demanded fiscal austerity, which meant balancing budgets and reducing spending on infrastructure and social safety nets. That's in order to pay back the loans from the IMF. In the second year of the pandemic, 80% of all IMF loans made to third world countries were predicated on the promise of practicing fiscal austerity. In the new report, Oxfam writes, the austerity measures envisaged under these new IMF loan programs are likely to turn a devastating situation into an unbearable one. To pay back these loans, third world countries are reportedly raising taxes on food while freezing wages for government employees, despite widespread worldwide inflation. Because of the forced austerity on 52 low-income nations, government spending on health care worldwide will drop considerably. That's according to the World Bank. Inflation. Inflation. America's inflation rate for the past year is now 8.5%. According to the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, the inflation is hitting people especially hard when it comes to the necessities of life. The uptick in prices has been seen in electricity, food, mass transit, and healthcare. The Minneapolis Federal Reserve points out that upticks in electricity or rent or food, mass transit, and healthcare hurt the middle class and the poor far worse than it does the rich since there is a fixed amount that people can spend on all these categories. In other words, there's only so much food, rent, electricity, mass transit, and healthcare you can use. Rich people therefore don't feel the bite since these categories make up a small percentage of their spending, whereas the middle class and the poor spend most of their money on these categories and these categories are most prone to inflation mass transit healthcare electricity food food and rent right that's where we're seeing the most inflation and that's what the middle class and the poor spend practically all of their money on so while workers see an increase in wages in the past year all of it has been offset by inflation. And what is the cause of this inflation? Well, pieces of shit, fiscal hawks like Joe Manchin will lie and blame government spending. That is a lie. Inflation is rampant throughout the world. We're seeing inflation in countries with generous safety nets. We're also seeing it in countries that practice fiscal austerity. The inflation we're witnessing is not caused by government spending. It's caused by several factors, not government spending. COVID has created supply chain issues. There's a shortage of stuff because not everyone has returned to work. And a shortage of stuff creates an increase in demand, which causes an uptick in prices. Inflation is also being caused by climate change, drought, famine, and fire. Fire creates supply chain issues, especially when it comes to food or electricity or 
housing because fire removes the housing supply. And of course, war. War causes inflation. War in Ukraine is creating a supply chain issue for energy, much of which comes from Russia, but no longer. And food, specifically wheat, much of which comes from Ukraine, but no longer. It's planting season, but the soil is filled with mines and bombs, American bombs, as a matter of fact. Ukraine is huge. It's the largest country in Europe, and its wheat fields used to feed Africa as well as other parts of the third world. And now because of the war, there is a shortage of wheat and other food stuff, and that drives up prices. So here is what corporations do. This is what corporations do, but their workers can't. Corporations have the freedom to raise prices when they must pay more for stuff. So they pass the costs on to the consumers and then some. They are not just passing along costs. They are passing along more than just costs. They're finding profits, right? That's why so many corporations have record earnings this quarter. Corporations are raising prices, right? Not wages, just prices. So workers are getting screwed. They're getting paid less because of inflation and everything they need costs more. Everything American workers need, everything is more expensive, not solely because of the cost of material. Everything they need is more expensive because of price gouging. Corporate America can charge what it wants because of their monopolistic, monopolistic powers. When it comes to bare necessities, only a handful of corporations provide them. Food is controlled by a handful of companies. You want chicken? You got to get it from Tyson. There's no such thing as the family farm anymore. Medicine, hospitals, your telephone, cars, energy, all are controlled by a handful of companies. They determine the prices. That's why there's inflation. There's no competition. Monopolies drive up prices and because they're a monopoly, they drive down wages. If there are only a few companies doing the hiring, these corporations can pay workers pretty much what they want. Wages are going down because labor is something corporations purchase. They buy labor. And corporations in America have what is called a duopsony. A duopsony. A duopsony is an economic condition where there are only two buyers for a service. If only two companies are buying your service, they can pretty much dictate what they pay for that service in television, despite all the streaming services that are struggling, despite all the cable companies that are struggling. There are not two, but there are about five companies that own all the streaming services and all the cable stations and all the networks, and they do all the hiring. That's a duopsony, duopsony. That's five companies who own all of television. So they determine what they pay for a show, what they pay for a writer, an actor, what they pay the producers. They control what they pay the workers. And because they're not competing with anyone else, they can raise prices on their shitty product. Your cable company can charge whatever it wants for the shit that it tries to pass off as entertainment. 
your energy provider, your internet, your phone company, they basically charge whatever they want because where are you gonna go? And they can pay their employees whatever they want because where else are the workers going to go? Prices are going up, 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 and Joe Biden ran on increasing the minimum wage, which has not been hiked in 15 years. So whatever gains made by workers in terms of wages past couple of years, they're all being wiped out by inflation, and that benefits corporate America because they get to raise prices, right? Without raising wages. And Joe Biden, because he is an inveterate liar, will not keep his promise to raise the minimum wage. He will allow inflation to be used as a cudgel to keep the minimum wage down, even though it's a lie, even though it, it, it's a lie. Raising the minimum wage has no effect on inflation. The liars in Wall Street, uh, on Wall Street and in Washington, they will blame inflation on wages. That is a lie. Inflation has nothing to do with paying workers more. And Biden will not keep his promise. He will not raise the minimum wage because the lie will be spread. It's being spread now that raising the minimum wage will cause inflation. And because Biden is a liar and will work with that lie, American workers can't afford heat, food or rent because Joe Biden won't give us an increase in the minimum wage, which hasn't been spiked, pumped up in 15 years. The minimum wage hasn't been raised in 15 years. And yet we have 70 era, 70 eras, 70s era inflation. Right? Right now is is we have 70 eras inflation. But this government is going to insist, oh, if you increase the minimum wage, We'll have inflation. We already have inflation. It has nothing to do with wages or increasing the minimum wage. So corporate profits go through the roof and the 99%, many are desperate. Some are starving. They, they don't have enough heat, medicine, or an affordable place to live. There's no economic theory to justify this other than wanton greed. Uh, I want to go back to duopsonies, uh, where you control, where two companies or five companies control uh, what workers get paid, basically. People who work for McDonald's are not allowed to quit their job and go work across the street for Wendy's. When you were hired at McDonald's, you were forced to, to uh, sign a non-compete clause. So talk to me about what it means to be free in America. Whose freedom are we talking about? Where is the freedom from precarity? Where is the freedom from want? The freedom to quit your job and go across the street and work for somebody else. In America, freedom is measured by how much you're allowed to intimidate your employees. Freedom is measured by how much the ruling class can enslave its workers. According to the Treasury Department this year, one out of four workers in America is subject to a non-compete clause which means if you work for Amazon, you're not allowed to go work for any of their competitors. But we hear about the free market and how competition is good. Yeah, competition is good as long as the, the, the playing field isn't level. The workers are not allowed to compete. 
big tech is run by non-compete clauses. If you work for Google, you move up the ranks, you are not allowed to take your newly acquired job skills and bring them over to Facebook. And yet your boss over at Google, wherever you work, will justify paying you less by insisting that you're learning skills that will soon translate into future success. This will make you desirable. That's what they love to tell you. In lieu of pay, you're learning on the job. We're teaching you marketable skills that will be very desirable to future employers so long as that future employer is this company because you're not allowed to go anywhere else. You know, there are two types of Americans. There are those who decide what they want to do with their lives, the people who get to decide what they want to do with their lives. And then there are the 99%, those who have life happen to them. We are a nation run by people who get to decide what they want to do with their lives. People of privilege who woke up one day and said, I think I'll run for office. Nancy Pelosi, the pampered privileged daughter of Baltimore's mayor. She married a wealthy businessman and she decided to get involved in San Francisco politics, not because she saw politics as a way to better people's lives, but because she wanted to better her life. She knew the game, she grew up in it, and that's what she wanted. That's what she decided to do with her life, to make her life better. Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, Harvard Law graduate, and he decided, you know what? You know what I want to do with my life? I want to play the game of politics. I find that intellectually stimulating. Politics, Congress, then the Senate. He chose politics not to improve other people's lives, but his. He wanted to play the game. And now we have for President Joe Biden, who woke up one day and chose to become president. What do I want to do with my life? I'm in my mid 70s. What do I want to do with my life? I already have millions. My son just died. I need I need purpose in my life. I'm getting older. I just don't want to drift off. I'm going to run for office. I'm going to run for president. That's why Joe Biden ran for president, because he needed to do something with his life not something for our lives. He ran for president in 2020 because he wanted back in the game. The run was about Joe. It wasn't about what Joe wanted to do for our lives. It was what he wanted to do with his life. Everyone in America is entitled to decide what they want to do with their life. That's the freedom. That's the freedom the right talks about, but fails to secure for everyone other than the richest 1%. Until everyone in America has the right to decide what they want to do with their lives, this country should only be run by those who know what it's like to have life happen to them. 99% of Americans don't decide what they want to do with their lives. 99% of Americans wake up each day and try to mitigate what life is doing to them. I have zero sympathy for Joe Biden, which has been filled with tragedy. 
But tragedy is not a job qualification. Some people think it is. Some think the tragedy in Joe Biden's life is the resume builder that makes him qualified to be president. I watched John Stewart in 2020 talking about the tragedy in Joe Biden's life and how that forged an empathy in this man that will make such a powerful and caring president. And I remember thinking, here's this union busting multimillionaire who thinks the only tragedy anyone can imagine is the death of a loved one. I guess you can arrive at a certain income level where the only tragedy you can imagine is the death of a loved one. Uh, as though Joe Biden is the only person in America who has experienced grief. And it's his grief that makes him perfect for the job of president. Joe Biden is a little too comfortable with grief. He would make a great funeral director. He would. He, he gives a great sermon. He knows what we're going through during a tragedy, but he has no idea how to stop a tragedy from happening. He's a funeral director. Joe Biden is a funeral director. He is not a doctor. Joe Biden is co comfortable ushering people onto the great beyond, but he does nothing to prevent it from happening. I remain dumbstruck every day by how his administration has turned Ukraine into a video game. Nobody, nobody wants it to stop in the Biden administration. Nobody in the Biden administration is trying to stop this. They just keep feeding our quarters into the machine, loading uh, the Ukrainians with Mario Brothers power-ups like mega mushroom anti-tank missiles or boomerang flower assault weapons. It's a video game for this administration. Then CNN, MSNBC, CBS, NBC, and ABC, they report the fighting like it's the NBA playoffs. The Russians are circling the Ukrainian army in Donbass. Can Joe Biden get enough weapons into Ukraine and cut them off? This is war as covered by ESPN. And nobody talks about diplomacy. There isn't even a pretense of this administration trying to stop the dying. All Joe Biden does is brag about all the weapons he is giving the Ukrainians. Last night, I was watching a breathless Jake Tapper on CNN talking about bringing the fight to the Russian military. Not, not him, not his kids, bringing the weapons to the, to the, uh, the Ukrainians so they can bring the fight to the Russian military. And I thought, I watched this, and I thought, if Donald Trump were doing this, half this country, including the Republicans, would be we'd be going out of our minds, right? Can you imagine Trump ginning up war in Ukraine this way? Of course, he wouldn't because he was Putin's puppet. But could you imagine Trump doing this someplace else? We'd be saying it's insane. We'd be calling it reckless and dangerous. Five million Ukrainians have already lost their homes. Five million, tens of thousands of dead, entire cities razed. This is insanity. If Trump were allowing this to happen, feeding the war instead of stopping it, 
Could you imagine what the mainstream media and the Democrats would be saying? This is a dangerous game, and the Biden administration is not equipped to play it. The Moskva, up until last week, was the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. And then it was destroyed, reportedly by Ukrainian military in the Black Sea. It took a few days for Putin's government to admit that it sunk, although they have not come forward with the exact number of dead. Some estimates are as high as 500. Now, the Times of London just reported that Ukrainian military may have gotten assistance from the United States in the sinking of the Moskva. The Times of London is reporting that hours before the Moskva sank, an American made a Boeing P-8 Poseidon missile, uh, I'm sorry, a Boeing P-8 Poseidon intelligence aircraft piloted by America flew in the vicinity of the Moskva right before it was sunk by a Ukrainian Neptune anti-ship missile. So how much assistance is America giving to Ukraine? We know that Biden is providing the Ukrainian government with weapons. We also know that America is providing intelligence to the Ukrainian military, especially in the Donbass region. But the Biden administration has assured Putin and more importantly, the American people that there will be no American soldiers on the ground in Ukraine. But apparently that doesn't include the air. So did Joe Biden's America provide aerial intelligence that assisted in the sinking of the Moskov? A senior U.S. defense official told the Times of London, quote, in keeping with our support to NATO's eastern flank, we have been conducting some limited air patrols off the coast of Romania, but we will not speak to the details of operational matters. We will not speak to the details of operational matters. That's Pentagonese for we're not telling you. We're not telling you. Uh, so we're not allowed to know how much help America is providing Ukraine. We're not allowed to know, are we, do we have intelligence on the ground in Ukraine? Do we have advisors on the ground in Ukraine? And do the American people get to have any say in this? See, the American military has a long tradition of operating under the cloak of secrecy and then releasing just enough information to control the narrative. And that narrative always is, let's go to war. Remember the main. You go to war on a lie. The main was a lie. Now, what if one of our intelligence planes gets shot down? gets shot down by Russia. Well, this is exactly how we ended up in Vietnam. In the Gulf of Tonkin, two Navy ships, two American Navy ships patrolling off the coast of North Vietnam doing intelligence were reportedly sunk. It's never been quite clear what exactly transpired. There literally was a fog of war, enough of a fog, nobody could really tell. 
enough of a fog for President Johnson to use the incident in the Gulf of Tonkin as a pretext to go to Congress and get them to authorize the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which gave Johnson the power to send 500,000 American soldiers into Vietnam. And we know how that played out. The Gulf of Tonkin incident was a lie. Johnson lied before Congress to get the, the war authorization, just like Dick Cheney and George W. Bush lied to get their war authorization because you cannot go to war without America getting lied to. And you can't lie unless your military operates under the cloak of secrecy. That way they get to spin what actually happens. So we're being told there are no soldiers, no, no people helping Ukraine. Really? Vladimir Putin has warned that America's increased participation in Ukraine could have, quote, unpredictable consequences. So America's instinct, instinct which stems from ignorance, says nobody tells us what to do. Nobody tells us what to do. Nobody, Putin's not going to bully us, even if 5 million Ukrainians end up losing their homes and thousands die and entire cities are destroyed. We're not going to be pushed around by Vladimir Putin. Right. We are using Ukraine as pawns in an international game of chess to poke holes in Vladimir Putin's ambitions in order to reestablish the world order in America's favor. This administration is positively giddy, fighting a proxy war in Ukraine, testing our weapons, checking out Putin's army and keeping this war economy going. Now, Joe Biden, like everyone, has had tragedy in his life, but he's creating more tragedy, millions of tragedies. He's too comfortable with death. I'm sorry about all the tragedies in President Biden's life, but like a man's religious beliefs, a government's, uh, a government official's tragedies, uh, just like his religious beliefs or his love life or his sexual peccadilloes, it doesn't belong in the public square. I expect my politicians to come to Washington and help the people who don't get to decide what they want to do with their lives. That's your job. If you come to Washington, you're supposed to help the people who wake up each day and try to mitigate what life does to them. You don't come to Washington because you needed to do something with your life. Joe Biden in his late 70s became president because he, he needed to do something with his life. And now millions and millions and millions of Americans and Ukrainians are discovering that life is happening to them. Joe Biden's life is happening to them. America is run by people who get to decide what they want to do with their lives, and they are taking away everyone else's. Where is the diplomacy? Hey, Liam McEnany, your friend David told me about how you thought you had to pass gas on the number four bus, but it turned out to be more than gas. Man, Liam McEnany, 
That has to be tough. Wearing white shorts on a Manhattan scorcher smack dab in the middle of rush hour with your girlfriend standing right next to you. I feel you, Liam McEnany. I really do. But it's a reminder of how precarious life is. One moment you think you're taking your lady downtown to your favorite Korean barbecue, and suddenly one blast out of your leaky balloon knot, and poof, everything changes in a second. Poof. It's all over. Poof. Ronnie Bilge, dripping down your legs, Liam McEnany. You look for your girlfriend. Poof. She's gone. In the blink of a balloon knot. Won't even return your phone calls. I feel for you, Liam McEnany. Reminds me of 9-11. Beautiful fall day. I was planning a walk in the park with my second wife, Judith Nathan, who turned out to be a voracious harpy. And the next thing you know, well, I don't have to tell you what happened that day. It's all in my book, Leadership. I guess the point is, Liam McEnany, never take anything for granted. Cherish each moment. You never know. You just never know. One day you're with a woman who you can't figure out where you end and she begins. And then poof, intestinal air completely betrays you by turning solid. Poof, she's gone. Poof, all that's left is a memory. Okay, take care, Liam McEnany. And next time you're riding the bus in white shorts, remember to exercise constant vigilance because things don't always turn out the way you planned. Bye, Liam McEnany. You sound like someone I would like to get to know. 9-11. Chairs in this Bessemer shop The back and outdated Don't ever seem to stop The man went down Cause his heart gave out Get back to work We heard them shout They said the EMTs are coming That's what they're for And life slipped away On a cement floor I know the bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place
was young, my dreams were bold. Now every day my life's controlled. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins It said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this more floor. the union might make things right some days i just don't have the strength to fight this plant down here can take its toll it'll break your body it'll crush your soul feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop and there still ain't no chairs in this bessemer shop Professor Mike Steinel. Hey, ain't no chairs in the Specimer shop. Bernie will be out on Staten Island this Sunday with our friend Christian Smalls organizing another warehouse for Amazon Labor Union. Bernie Sanders, no Barack Obama, no Joe Biden, no Hunter Biden, no Jill Biden, no Hillary. They just can't seem to make it out to Staten Island to support the Amazon labor union. I guess it's because they're full of, you know what? Dan Frankenberger joins us in the, in the newsroom. Hello, Dan. How's it going, David? I'm in a foul mood. Oh, good. But that should, Hey, uh, the chat, I, I was checking the YouTube chat room and uh, somebody gave us a lot of money in the chat room. Yes. Did you know that? We had a listener, uh, Adam Halperin, just uh, did a super chat of 50 bucks. It's, if you give a dollar or you give $5,000 the way he did, <laughs> people gave no, and I, uh, enough money that, uh, you know, but if you give a dollar, I don't care. It helps pay the bills here. Uh, what did he write? He wrote, hey, David, just wanted to say I appreciate your show. Keep up the good work. That's really sweet. Other people have been paying for super chats. And since Pete Dominic has uh, decided not to show up, I guess we should thank the people who have uh, donated money through the YouTube super chats. Kind of interesting. But I can't find it on my... Well, I, got, I got it in front of me. Oh, okay. Um, on April 18th, we had a listener, Randall, donate a few bucks. He says, my name is Randall, and I'm a Feldo maniac. Uh, thank you, Randall. And then uh, the show prior to that, that we recorded on the 14th, Teresa Luke uh, made a donation, and it's a 
super sticker, which I don't even know what that is, but there's a little emoji looking icon there. Oh, um, thank you to Teresa. Then uh, all this, by the way, my my first check from YouTube should arrive any day and we get to pay out uh, the people who help get this show going. They are Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, as well as the Invisible Ninja, Dan Frankenberger, Joe in Norway, Andy Brown, Professor Jonathan Bick. I always mix up the order to see if I can, it's a way I, as a cognitive test. Did I get everybody's name? You got them all, but when you do that, then you, at the beginning of the segment, you said you're kind of miserable in a bad mood. Do you do it to yourself? I just want to keep myself sharp. So that's how go. I, any, any other people we have to thank? Um, uh, prior to that, our very own Marianne Cummings made a donation on the eighth with, with no, uh, with no message. Oh, she wanted me to tell that filthy, disgusting joke. Did you do it? No. Oh, there are certain <laughs> jokes that are like the donkey show in Tijuana. Have you ever seen the donkey show in Tijuana? I've heard stories about it, but I have never seen it. Okay. It's a, you think you want to see it and then you see it and you go, I wish I didn't need to. And there's certain jokes, like you think you want to hear a really vile, disgusting joke. And then I tell it and I'm the bad guy. Like I'll warn somebody, this is really disturbing. No, I can handle it. And then they just have, like, they just fit into a, a fecal sandwich and it's my fault. <laughs> we have a quiz today. Yes, we do. I have a, a six-question quiz prepared, but uh, we would need an opponent if you want to do it now. We got uh, 12 minutes until the next uh, guest. We have uh, Anne Lee and Joe in Norway are up here as panelists, or we can grab someone else who seems to be active in the chat. Is John Hayes here? I'd like to kick his ass tonight. That shouldn't be too hard. John Hayes? He might be busy. John, are you here in the in the chat room? Okay. Uh, well, why don't why don't I go up against? See, I, I'm a typical American. I like. I'll go up against Professor Ann Lee. I'm going to well, John, John just put in the chat that yes, yes, he is here. Really well, it's too late. Really I'll, I'll, are you available to? Uh, I'm afraid of Professor Ann Lee. What's the, what's the topic? Are you sure you want to know before uh, before we get into it? Well, I, I I'm going to do the righteous thing and challenge Professor Ann Lee, and we don't need Google. We have Professor Ann Lee. This is going to be uh, see what I'm doing. I'm building her up. This is I'm psyching her out. See what I'm doing? <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're, okay uh you don't have to turn your video on if you don't want to uh, I, I i won't <laughs> okay turning it on later okay uh, uh nolan is early and he just turned his uh video off so okay we have 10 minutes oh there he is he's, he's come back uh you're about to watch me either be humiliated or humiliate somebody. I'm not quite sure. 
So what, yeah. what is the quiz? What is the quiz? Today's quiz, I have uh, on April 22nd, 1937, one of the top movie stars of all time was born, making him 85 years old. Today's quiz is on Jack Nicholson. Oh. Oh. Oh, oh, oh. I, I may. Well, uh, Nolan, do you want to uh, compete before we talk about your book? Well, you can go up against Professor Ann Lee and Nolan. Sure, I can get embarrassed. That's fine. Okay. Uh, all right. What, uh, what? Well, yes. Okay. So what? Uh, who goes first, Dan? Let me put some money in the kitty here. Hang on for one second. Uh. Oh, that that was painful. Let, let's have Professor uh, Ann Lee go first. So, Nolan, the way it works is <laughs> we ask a question. You have we have one person has to answer it, and then you and I have to agree or disagree or pick the other options we really haven't come up with the, the rules yet so <laughs> all right so let's start uh, this is a six question quiz and here's question number one jack's character in terms of endearment in 1983 was blank was it garrett swinson garrett barlove garrett breedlove or garrett ergon <laughs> and and no, no don't look at the chat room no cheating <laughs> i've never great. met you nolan i don't think you're a cheater but on a level professor lee you're first do you have an answer do you need me to read the answers again or you think you got it no no uh how about i've only seen seen the movie once uh breed love how about that okay and lee says breed love uh nolan do you want to agree with that or do you want to try a different answer? And then we'll ask David and then I'll give the answer. I haven't seen the movie in forever, but Breedlove was the only one that sounded familiar. So I was thinking Breedlove as well. David, we what, have two Breedloves. What, what are the options? The options are Garrett Barlove, Garrett Breedlove, Garrett Swinson, and Garrett Ergon. I'm going to go with Breedlove. That is correct. So because of super, super delegates, I am leading four to two. It's very complicated. We have super delegates on this show. So I'm... <laughs> okay, okay, so we're going to rotate here. So no one's going to be first on this one. Question number two. What is the name of the film by The Who in which Jack had a small part? Was it Timmy, Tommy, Terry, or Turdy? Who's answering this question? No one is first this time. Um, I'm going Timmy. David? What are, the, what are the choices? Timmy, Tommy, Terry, and Turdy. I think <laughs> it's Tommy. I think Anne Margaret was in Tommy. So I think Jack Nicholson was in. I'm going to say Tommy. Okay, Professor Lee. Uh, Timmy. All right, the answer is Tommy. David got that one. Ah. So I'm 
leading uh, 20 to uh, one. I was going to say, your lead must have gotten huge. <laughs> All right, is question number three. a little early. Excuse me for one second. D, you're, you're about 90 minutes early. Okay. Every people, <laughs> the schedule is off today because uh, our guests didn't show up on time and everybody's early. Okay, uh, so I, I'm the point man on this question, correct? Yeah, you're answering first. It's question number three. And the question is, playing the Joker in the 1989 movie Batman, Jack ruminates on the thought that a man dressed up as a bat is getting all of his publicity. So he determines this town needs blank. Is it a new hero? A better villain? Me to show them how it's done? Or an enema? You know, I don't think I've ever seen, I don't think I ever saw Batman. Uh, so what, what is it? What are the choices? The choices and I may be are... bluffing. Sometimes I play stupid. <laughs> so and he I'm determines. This... Or what is it? He determines this town needs a blank, a new hero, a better villain, me to show them how it's done, or an enema. I'm going to say me to show them how it's done. And Lee? Uh, better villain. Oh, two different answers. Nolan? A child of the 80s. It's an enema. It is an enema. <laughs> an enema? <laughs> wow. I don't remember that. I, I don't remember that. Okay, the score is... I have two, Nolan has two, and Professor Ann Lee has one. Okay. Ah, right. loser. That's <laughs> <laughs> the number four. Uh, Professor Lee is first. Jack wanted his old friend, Rupert Cross, to play in this movie, but he was terminally ill and could no, could no longer work. The character was GM1 Mule Mulhall. What was the name of this movie? Was it Ironweed? A few good men, the last detail, or the postman always comes twice. Jesus. Comes twice? The postman always comes twice. That's why I've written down here. <laughs> really? I I, I better just, I want to be a postman. <laughs> Isn't the postman? And Lee, your your guess is gonna be the ironweed? Okay, Nolan? I got a few good men. Okay, David? Uh, what are the choices again? They are Ironweed, A Few Good Men, The Last Detail, and The Postman Always Comes Twice. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with Professor Ann Lee. When in doubt, agree with Professor Ann Lee. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is The Last Detail. No one yeah. got it right. Who got it right? Nobody. <laughs> oh, so I get five points then. Yeah, you're the only one that gets points on this one. <laughs> How many more questions left? We, we have two more questions. Uh, this is number five. Nolan is first. Okay. In five easy pieces from 1972, Bobby DePia, who was Nicholson played, is a womanizing, self-centered oil roughneck. 
What secret does he withhold from his friends? Is it his concert piano training, his prison record, his terminal illness, or his anal warts? <laughs> uh, uh, prison record. Okay. David? Uh, I'm going to agree. Professor Lee? Uh, it's piano. That is correct. It is so. It, Professor Lee is correct. Correct. Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. So it's tied. Everybody has two points. This is the tie. This is the the tiebreaker. Here we go. Question number six. And David, you're first on this one. In which movie did he play with his wife, Sandra Knight? Was it the shooting? The terror? The King of Marvin Gardens? Or the beach romance film Jack and Sandy Knight. <laughs> give, give me those again, please. The shooting, the terror, the king of Marvin Gardens, or the beach romance. I'm say the shooting. Number one. Uh, Professor Ann Lee, you're next. Marvin Gardens. Nolan. I'm going with the last one, the Sandy Beach for romantic comedy. I am. Before you reveal this, we will have a winner. There's going to be. A winner. I don't know who it's going to be, but somebody will have won. The answer is the terror. Ah! Nobody got it. Nobody I'm got stumped. it. Stumped. These are round. hard. <laughs> a tiebreaker. Congratulations, everybody. There's no more questions. No, we're all equal. We're all equal here on the David Feldman That's Show. Right. Thank you, Professor Ann Lee. We'll see you. In about uh, two and a half hours for the professors and uh, Marianne, right? Right. Thank See you, man. Thank you. All right. Nice Thank to meet you, Nolan. Have a good segment. Thanks, guys. And Dan Frankenberger, I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you. So long. Unless we want to go over Community Billboard later. Well, there's a new book out called Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. It is written by Mickey Huff, who was on the show recently, and our guest, Nolan Higdon, joining us today. He is a lecturer at Merrill College and in the education department at University of California, Santa Cruz. Go banana slugs. I have a kid who graduated from Santa Cruz. And you are a founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas. And I can go on and on and on. But you talk about our lack of critical thinking, how to tell what the truth is from the tsunami of misinformation that comes our way. Welcome, Nolan Higdon. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. Already had a good time. Thank you. Why did you write this book? Uh, when I was... Going on my previous book tour, I wrote a book called The, the Anatomy of Fake News, which documented the history of fake news and, and ways of mitigating it. And I went out and did a book tour and I do like classroom visits. And um, at the end, you know, we do a Q&A, which is my favorite part. And folks would always ultimately draw the same conclusion. Like, you know, it's a great book. You open eyes up. There's some great strategies for combating fake news. But I have this other problem, which is how do I talk to people who believe fake information or false information? And the ways like 
the fact that I kept getting this question over and over again made me realize that we, we are missing something in the, in the culture. We, we no longer feel like comfortable kind of finding spaces to disagree constructively. And so I want to investigate not only why that was, but what we could do about it. And that essentially became the genesis of the book. Right. You've also written, your other books are, as you mentioned, The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news literacy education, and The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. So uh, that came out last year. So I want to ask you about that. But let's stick with, let's agree to disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. It sounds like this is written for people who want to want to attend a peaceful Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. We use a lot of uh, references to that, that uh, friendships, family relationships have been destroyed by social media and the over politicization of everything in our in our culture. And the, the plea we're making in the book is it doesn't have to be this way. Um, you know, we cite some polls where Americans number one fear is other Americans. Uh, that's not healthy for a democracy. And we think it speaks to it's directly connected to our media system, our media system. Uh, long ago, definitely since the 1980s and 90s, has focused on creating like divisive narratives. So um, they almost use like a pro wrestling type programming. So if you tune into like MSNBC or CNN, you get to cheer for the good guys, which are the Democrats, and they villainize this character of Republicans. And if you go to Fox, they do the same thing, but in the opposite direction. Um, in the meantime, though, we're not really learning anything other than how to hate each other. And social media has given us this sort of delusion of power where we think, well, we can just, you know, get rid of people we disagree with. So I don't like you. I'll just block you. Or I'll ask Google to take you out of my, my search engine. And we've got to this place where we no longer are really intellectually challenged. Um, we no longer feel the need to reach out to others who may have just gotten something wrong and, and work with them to correct it. And so we hope this book um, pushes that on um, people. Yeah. On Monday's show, this is why I wanted you on. On Monday's show, I blew up at a comment in the chat room because I was vocalizing with a guest to a guest what the right wing would say about something like fiscal austerity. I was merely talking about how people justify cutting taxes for the wealthy. Somebody in the chat room wrote, David, the 1920s called, they want your politics back. And I got, it got to me. I got really upset. And I, and I blamed the comment because I said, well, I can't even articulate what the other side is thinking without being accused of being on the other side. And then I realized I blew up because it had, it had nothing to do with that comment i'm on edge i'm ready to lash out at somebody so these fights at thanksgiving they're going to happen it may be because of politics it may be because the pumpkin pie is runny but they're going to fight it's kind of nice that we're fighting about politics as opposed to runny pumpkin pie i mean I, Anybody who's in a family, there's got there's always transgressive behavior. People don't 
respect others, the borders, right? We fight, we take advantage of loved ones because we can. So how much of this divisiveness is because we're just divisive? And, and how much of it is are being manipulated by the media? What percentage? Well, one of the, one of the distinctions we make in the, the, the book that I think speaks to, to your question is that um, we sort of, we have this kind of cultural myth that conflict is abnormal and harmony is normal, but that's actually <laughs> totally false. Um, harmony basically never exists. We always have conflict. As you point out, um, we, you know, we're accidentally stepping up boundaries. We have disagreements over the food. We, we like one person versus another, whatever it is. Um, so it's not a question about eradicating conflict. That's not what we advocate in the text. It's about how to manage conflict more constructively. So, you know, right. do we need to scream and call each other names because we don't like the dessert that was served? That's probably pretty destructive. Um, we can take a more like constructive approach, you know, like maybe next year I'll bring the dessert or <laughs> we should take orders ahead of time, whatever it may be. Right. Um, so we, we, we believe that, you know, yeah, of course, conflict exists, but uh, we think our media system really feeds into that and it, and it creates these characters of each other. So even when we're arguing against the so-called right wing or arguing against lefties, we usually are arguing against a character of them. We never actually get to talk to the other side. So we think we know right. what these people think and why they think it. And our media system tells us, but rarely do we make the, the step to, to reach out to them. And, and the reason why that's important is not just to be nice and create like some hippie commune, um, but because democracy necessitates the sharing of ideas, the spreading of ideas, the changing of minds. You, you, you can't be in your little bubble and be right all the time and block out each other. It's, it's antithetical right. to democracy. How much is the left to blame? for this because i was reading about orwell last night and orwell's complaint about socialists was they cared more about coming across smart than moving the needle forward they, they cared more about people respecting their intelligence than agreeing with them so how much is the left to blame I put the blame on all of us and across the ideological spectrum. Um, so I'm, you know, a lefty myself, but I, I don't uh, sit there and just wag my finger at the right wing. There's a lot I can do and a lot of other lefties can can reflect upon. And we talk about that in, in the text. And that means both in terms of spreading false information as well as being destructive in our dialogue. Um, you know, we could also be more responsible in our, our media diet and things like that. So I don't think any... Um, ideology has a monopoly on this problem. What is the difference now between arguing religion and arguing politics? Because I could sit with a right winger and they'll say to me, Reagan uh, balanced the budget and he did it by lowering taxes. They believe that. The right wing believes that Ronald Reagan uh, balanced the budget that the deficit was lower when he left office and he did it by lowering taxes. And I could sit down and show this person charts that reveal, no, actually Reagan not only raised taxes, uh, I think he doubled or tripled the deficit, but it doesn't matter when you show that to him because it's a religion. Reagan is a religion. It doesn't matter what the truth is to these people. They, they have a belief system that when you lower taxes for the job creators, 
money comes pouring into the treasury. It's a religion. It is. Yeah, it's very, I think, uh, tantamount to religion, right? This the ways in which these ideologies are protected and they deify certain politicians. Um, but again, I, I would say I can clearly point to that on the right. You know, as a leftist, I've been arguing against right wingers my whole life um, and experiencing right. what you just described. But I will say, you know, we see the same thing on on the left. Like people now defend the politician. They wear they have like I'm with her Hillary bumper stickers or you know, they defend everything Obama, or if you criticize Biden for doing the same things you just criticized Trump for, and all of a sudden you're a Trumper. Um, right. There is this, you know, again, I think media plays a critical role here. It has really shaped our politics where we feel like we need to defend the people we vote for instead of agitate them to get them to do what we want. And I think that's also a big problem with our democracy. Is this more pronounced in America than any other industrialized world? I don't really have a... Uh, expertise on that, but I do get a, a sense, particularly in Britain, um, you know, I've heard a lot of commentators and read a lot that they say what's happening there to their political um, discourse is similar to what we're experiencing here in the United States. Show me how to manage conflict. Show me how to dial back the hostility and arrive at an answer with somebody who I disagree with. Sure. Yeah, we, we recommend in the text, um, before we even get into strategies for accomplishing it, we focus on things you shouldn't do. Um, so lampooning people, making fun of people, name calling, generalities. Uh, these things typically work um, against uh, constructive dialogue. But a more constructive approach is actually trying to reach someone on a human level where they're at. Um, so to you know, kind of ignore that curse of knowledge bias, just because you know something doesn't mean everyone else in the world should know it. Um, and set you know, set a goal. I want to want to reach this person, whatever that goal may be. To your point about um, like the the right wing, like Reagan defense. Um, part of constructive dialogue is let that person give their defense, be a good listener. Um, so sometimes what we how we listen is just as important as what we say. So listening to the person, the reason why listening is important is you get to ask follow-up questions. Like, did I understand your argument correctly? Sometimes you don't, right? But even more importantly, like, so can you show me the evidence to back up those claims? And mm -hmm. I, it, it sets a good tone that people need to, to sort of understand that you need to have evidence to back up what you say. And when you get put on the spot and asked about evidence, then it forces them to think like, well, do I have evidence for this claim? Like, how do I know this? Where do I know this from? And, and I think that sometimes those are more powerful mechanisms than getting people to kind of submit, submit to you. I, I also think um, another constructive dialogue, uh, form of constructive dialogue is really avoiding social media as an arena to discuss the issues you find that are important. Um, social media platforms are designed in a very narrow way that privileges fear and hate. It gets people to react, not to think. And so if you really care about whatever issue, climate change, racism, sexism, um, you should probably discuss those in an arena that's more conducive to constructive dialogue, which social media is, is generally not. We're talking with Nolan Higdon. He is the author of Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. When I talk to people, I find that a lot of it is subtext, that they're refusing to reveal what they really believe. They want to talk. They want to tell me what they've read, what they think, but they are squirrely. They don't want to admit to what they really 
mean. Sometimes they may not actually know what they mean. For example, I've talked to Jews about the Palestinian situation. I'm Jewish, so I, and, uh, you know, when you start asking questions about what people believe, as opposed to arguing with them, they freak out. I've discovered just asking people why they think a certain way and not arguing with them ends up being much more volatile than uh, a, an argument because sometimes you get Jews saying things like, just get a ship, load the Palestinians up in Gaza, put them on a ship and get them out of there. And when they say that, they hear themselves and they get really angry with me for having them articulate what they didn't even know they thought. Should, should we be arguing, discussing, or just like you said, listening and just keep asking questions? Why do you think that? Where do you get this information? Almost interview them. I find it leads to violence. <laughs> I really do. I find that when I talk to right-wingers and you just politely without, you don't give them the fight because that's what they want. And you go, okay, that's interesting. Why do you think that? Why do you think that? What eventually it reveals that they're hateful ignoramuses. They hear something come out of their mouth. They actually bear witness to what they truly think. And they hate you for making them say it. I, I would I would still stick with the the question model. I, I doubt you're going to solve every um, aspect of hate in that particular individual in one conversation. But you've planted right. some important seeds that can then grow. And and so right. this is part of the you know sometimes frustrating part is we we can plant seeds and we don't see where they end up. But you could you know radically change that person's life by just confronting this question, like do I have evidence? Right. Um, but to right. the point of but to the point of like asking questions like. Obviously, in an interview format like this, I come prepared to hear questions, et cetera. Um, but like in, in social media, if you do that to someone, we have to remember in social media, people are basically on all the time and they have a public image all the time. So if you're asking them questions and they're showing that they're ignorant or hateful, um, it's much different finding that out in a public arena versus, say, in like your kitchen. And so this is what I mean about like making sure you're in the right context where people can can actually be like reciprocal to those types of questions versus feel like they're on like public trial. Do you think people are their emotions get escalated because of the Overton window, because we're not allowed to talk about the roots of the immiseration of most Americans that we dance around? the problems without being allowed to discuss the real reason these problems exist. And I guess in your book, you're saying that the media trains us to get emotional as opposed to uh, contemplative. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree. There's a um, frustration that we can never get to the root of the problem. We're always being distracted by the next story. Um, and this, this keeps our attention, uh, always somewhere else other than where we want it to be, generally speaking. Um, on top of that, you know, a lot of these media companies do collude with one of the two major political parties. 
And so they work, you know, tirelessly to pull out like culture war issues that do distract us from issues that more Americans have consensus on. Um, so we're always being inundated with, um, you know, just divisive content issues like um, immigration or abortion, uh, you know, the deficit, all these things, they always are, are introduced in some really culture war way. And both parties claim that they care about those issues, but in reality, they don't care about those issues. They want those issues to always remain on the table so they can always divide us from having, you know, substantive conversations about things that matter to us. What do we do about the lies? What do we do about the lie that immigrants are flooding this country when in fact, more immigrants are leaving America than coming here? But you have a, an entire party built on lies. I mean, the Republican Party, I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like a Democrat, but the Republican Party is built on one lie after another. The idea that immigrants are taking our jobs, the idea that cutting taxes for the wealthy will balance the budget and create jobs, the lie that more guns keeps us safe, more military spending keeps us safe. The entire party is built on a lie. We have to we have to interrogate. It's a great question because we have to interrogate lies, right? No matter where they come from. Um, in this case, you're talking about folks on the right, and we have to we have to interrogate those lies. But we have to be savvy about how we do it, and we have to remind ourselves of why we do it. Um, you know, I'm not interested in shining truth on those lies simply because I just want to like own right wingers or make fun of them. I really believe that there are good people who get bad information and then they believe and act upon that information in bad ways. And so I want to reach these folks on a level to say like, look, you're not a bad person. You just, you believe this false information. Now you're either voting this way or you're storming the Capitol or whatever you're doing. Right. Um, and and the, the purpose of reaching these folks is we're going to have a stronger democracy if more people will have access to truth and be able to recognize it. We may totally disagree on what to do about the facts, but we at least need to agree on what the facts are. And so I, I would encourage folks who, who recognize people in their lives who believe those lies to come at it in that more constructive way. Like, I, I care about you. I think you're a good person, but it's really problematic you believe this. So I want to kind of work through you with you on this issue. And that takes it takes a, a lot of work, but I, I like to remind people that democracy is a 24-hour-a-day job. If you're looking for an easier form of government, there's a lot of authoritarians who will greatly make all the decisions for you. But in democracy, we have to always be informed and engaging with other folks. And part of the autocrat's playbook is confusion, lies, and the truth being up for grabs. And the sense I get from the Republicans is they either know it's a lie or they don't care it's a lie because they don't believe in democracy. They, they don't care. They're fatalistic. They're not trying to improve anybody's lives. They enjoy others' suffering. So the truth is inconsequential to them. They'll say whatever it can, they can to own a liberal, to, to get you know, smoke coming out of our ears. That's the point. You know, QAnon, I guess some people believe QAnon, but don't you think a lot of them just like having us think they believe QAnon? Well, okay, so this is a really, really important point you're making here, which is, which is, I think, where the majority of Americans could get together 
is see the ways in which both parties actually collude, collude to undermine the democratic process. Um, and the, the reason why folks like to, like you said, like own the libs, that's why they like to support Trump, regardless of his lies. It's because they feel, and rightly so in some cases, that the Democrats have designed, you know, an economic policy, whether it be, you know, neoliberal domestic governance or NAFTA, that has really left them behind in the economy. And those same, like, you know, credentialed elites in the Democratic Party are the first ones to wag their finger at these people and call them, like, ignorant and racist and things like that for, for opposing that economic agenda. So in, in that sense, I... I, I the media feeds that, right? So you learn to like hate the Democrats or just hate the Republicans, where I would argue that that a more constructive approach would be to look at your fellow citizen and say like, look, both these parties are undermining democracy in a much more overt way in the Republicans um, party, the, what they're doing with voter suppression and trying to own state houses. Um, but there's also something about Democrats. They like to create um, institutions within government that are not accountable to the electorate. They've been you know, hugely behind empowering like the Fed, for example, um, in 2020, when they said democracy was on the ballot, they were going to the courts to try and get the Green Party removed from the ballot in multiple states. So when, when you take that more like holistic approach, then we have something we can now unite on, right? Whereas if we're just talking about the Republicans or just the Democrats, we're never going to get anywhere. You're, you're absolutely right. And this is what my next question was going to be about. It's a given that we're all for democracy. We were taught as kids that America is all about democracy. I played a clip on Monday's show of the CEO of Raytheon bragging about profits for, because of the war in Ukraine. His name is Gregory J. Hayes. And this is what he said, Raytheon, which manufactures all the missiles, while he's celebrating his profits, this is what, how he justifies the profits. We are there to defend democracy. And people go, oh, okay, they're there to defend democracy and an accidental byproduct of defending democracy is his making $40 million a year. We should have a serious conversation in this country about democracy. I've asked guests on this show, do you believe everyone should vote? Liberals, liberals have said, well, not everybody. Some people are too stupid to vote. I mean, it shouldn't be really easy for people to vote. Our democracy is being threatened. I mean, Rob Reiner said, you know, had this tweet that got 40,000 retweets today. You know, a vote for the Republican Party is a vote to end democracy. Well, I'd like to ask Rob Reiner if he thinks everyone should vote, if he thinks prisoners should vote if he thinks it should be easy to vote. I think a lot of Rob Reiners in this world don't think everyone should vote. We haven't really decided what we mean by democracy, have we? No, I, th I think um, you, you can't just fix like one aspect of democracy and, and expect all the rest to somehow um, be revived. So if we are, you know, concerned that some portion of the electorate doesn't have the critical thinking skills to vote, I, I think that speaks to why we need to improve our education system. If we're concerned right. that people don't have access to fact-based journalism, we need to improve the press. Um, we do need to make access to, to voting easier. Um, I, I I've always supported that it should be mandated, but in every option, there should be a none of the above. 
So you still have to participate. You can still choose not to vote for any of them. That's fine. But you at least need to go through the physical act of voting. I agree with you 100%. I think voting should be mandatory. You should be fined if you don't vote. Australia does that. And, you know, they've weathered some economic storms better than we have because while they have a right wing strain, they're not insane. You know, they were able to get rid of assault weapons when there was a big shooting down there or up there, depending on where you are in the universe. So mandatory voting would would solve everything. It would take all the anger out of politics because whether we like to admit it or not, we vote our hate. We vote our fears because the only way both parties can get us up off our arse and to the voting booth is through anger. That's what motivates us. It's not an intellectual pursuit in America. You vote because you're angry, because you hate Trump or you hate Biden, because voting isn't mandatory. Love doesn't get people to the polls because you're not supposed to love Joe Biden or even Bernie, who I do love. But you don't vote for somebody because you love them. You're not supposed to, but you do vote out of hatred. You hate the other side or you fear what will happen if the other side wins. That's how this all gets amped up. If we had mandatory voting, then the American people uh, would be immune to getting stirred up over. We'd have 100 million people who don't vote voting. They'd have to vote. And you, uh, how much democracy? Go ahead. I was just, just going to, you know, add to that that you mentioned Bernie, and I think Bernie, um, Bernie revealed something very interesting, and particularly in 2016, not so much in 2020, that um, he really ran on just a set of policies that he kept saying over and over again. He tried his best to avoid the culture war stuff. He got a little more into that in 2020, in my estimation. But in, in 2016, he really ran on policies, and that's what resonated. He still um, polls as the most popular um, politician in office right now, and this is for Democrats and Republicans. And I, and I think there's there's something very revealing about that, that if we spent less time fearing of the other side and more time talking about policies, you, you could get you know better politicians in there. But you're, you're right that every four years is supposedly the most important election of my lifetime. And I need to, you know, either vote out who's in there or make sure who's trying to get in there doesn't get in there. And we go through this whole charade of the personalities and the primaries. And a lot of people are running just to get book deals and blah, blah, blah. Um, a, a more substantive, like policy-based approach where folks are actually voting, you know, on policy versus the other side would dramatically change American politics and culture. Yeah. We have Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, who's joining us. He is a Freudian psychoanalyst, and I wanted to bring him into the conversation because the name of your book is, hang on for one second, is Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. Conflict Management. Dr. Hershenfeld, uh, Professor Higdon is talking about how we can talk to people who don't agree with us, how to manage our ideological differences. What is your suggestion when you go to a, a dinner and there are people there who 
say things about politics that make your stomach turn. That's why I don't go to dinners. <laughs> also joining us is Ethan Hershenfeld. He is a brilliant comedian. His special Thug Thug Jew is streaming right now on YouTube. It has close to a million views. What is conflict management? A billion, David, billion. A billion views. Billion. What is the conflict management that you recommend to coexist with our loved ones, our relatives, when their politics is obscene? What do you mean a billion views? I think you're prevaricating. <laughs> okay, a trillion. Let me just say one thing about conflict management. It's, it's very important to realize a conflict agent will take 10%, but a conflict manager takes 20 so always keep that in mind when managing conflict. You get 20%. Uh, that's union rules. Hello, Nolan. How's it going, Ethan? Hi. I would say that conflict is part of life. Internal conflict is part of all of us. And conflict with other people is part of life. And sometimes when you have mature, um, reasonable people, it can be managed. And I think that's only a, a small part of the time, because everybody basically wants what they want. So there are all sorts of situations in life, let's say a divorce. And you know, a, 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 a family therapist gets in there and tries to say, okay, folks, let's listen to the other side, blah, blah, blah. It works 10% of the time. The other 90% of the time, uh, people come out of it more or less where they were. So I don't think anybody has come up with a way to manage conflict, except if you can make in a political system, most people to feel that they're getting a fair deal, that may lead to the diminution of conflict. Remember, Hitler was- Oh yeah, yeah, again with Hitler, Jesus Christ. Can we, can we please, uh, can, just anyone but Hitler. Oh, okay, go on. go on. He was elected fair and square. No, he wasn't elected fair and square. He was, he was appointed by Hindenburg. What are you talking about? But it was, but didn't he have like a plurality of votes? Yes, yes. yes. So that doesn't assure us of anything. The only thing that assures us a little bit of something is we have a system here with our Constitution and supposedly our Supreme Court, which protects the most vulnerable people when it's functioning. Can I just interrupt your, your, uh, your, your encomium to just ask you, stop kicking your camera. It's like there's, a, there's an earthquake every few sentences when you kick the camera. Just... Uh, okay. Let, let me wrap it up with Professor Hickton here. 
Have you ever won an argument? Can anyone win an argument? Are arguments ever won? Does anybody ever say, you know what? You're absolutely right. Uh, argument. <laughs> well, arguments can be, can be won, but it depends on what you're, you're trying to, to win. I think uh, the, you know, if we define win as something we both can benefit from, then yes, that happens. Um, you know, it depends on what the goal is, I guess. If you're just trying to be right all the time, no, you'll probably lose a lot. If you're trying to change everyone's mind, you'll probably lose a lot. But if you think, you know, larger about, like we talked earlier about planting those seeds, you can probably have more success. Right. Well, Professor Nolan Higdon is author of Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy, which we need now more than ever. He's also written The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news literacy education, and The Podcaster's Dilemma, decolonizing podcasters in the era of surveillance capitalism. I'd love to talk to you about that. You also teach at University of California, Santa Cruz, which is one of the greatest colleges in America, go banana slugs, and one of the most, the most beautiful campus in the world. Do you ever have a bad day in Santa Cruz? It, it's really tough. It's like driving to paradise every day. Please come back. Thank you so much, Professor. Will do. Thank you so much, David. Nice to meet everyone. Thanks everyone for your support. Thank you. God bless. And it was tied. Just so you know, we played a, uh, a trivia game. Well, oh. joining us is Freudian psychoanalyst, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, and I'm going to say superstar, Ethan Hershenfeld. Every time he comes on the show, if it's not booking a bull or booking uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit or, or Red Notice on Netflix, every week, this man has scored another win. What did you score this week for us? Um, I went to Atlantic City. I put $1,000 on red. And I hit it. Then I put those 2000 on red, hit it again, put those 4000 on black. Eight grand, I got the hell out of there. So it was a... Uh, really? No, none of that happened. Oh. But I didn't have any auditions, so I don't have any good news to report. I thought I'd make something up. Can you go to a casino and ask for your money back to say I didn't have fun? This is not this is not fun. Didn't Albert Brooks try that in Lost in America where he loses all his money? Oh yeah, he was the Winnebago. Yeah. yeah. But uh well, Dr. Hershenfeld, it's yes. spring. It and it's spring. And I've noticed that they're they're circling. People are circling me once again. The seasons have changed and they're coming out of the woodwork. Certain people are unhappy with their lives and they refuse to look in the mirror. And I am the source of all their unhappiness. Are you being blamed? Not blamed for unhappiness. I'm the cause of some of some people's unhappiness. Yeah. But what is that condition? What is that condition? Paranoia. <laughs> no, no, I'm not 
talking about my condition. I'm, there are certain people, I look at them, they're absolutely miserable. I didn't cause it. And because I pick up a fork with my left hand instead of my right hand, oh. I've, I'm the source of their disgust. Right, so they're, they're, a, they're a bad mood in search of a, a tirade. And you just, right. yeah, yeah, I know that feeling. I know that feeling from both ends. It's a very human thing. It's, a, it's like a mood hair trigger, just waiting to go off. Yeah. Right. Um, I got a, a great piece of advice once from someone who said, um, who advocated, and I can't do justice to the way they described it, but basically said, accept all blame. It's a very powerful thing. If someone blames you for, oh, someone's saying I'm too loud. Are you getting that also? Yeah, well, the, the sound isn't perfect, but it's my fault. Oh, all right. It isn't, but I'm accepting all blame. I'll keep it down. Well, whatever's wrong with the sound, it's definitely not my fault. Anyway, I was saying accept all blame, except for uh, acoustic things. Um, it relieves you of that feeling of like uh, of having to having to argue with the person. First of all, it relieves you of the argument, and also it ties into another very powerful concept, which is to take nothing personally. I mean, you're aware at that moment that what they're upset about with you isn't about you, it's about them. But it's, it's a way to kind of mechanically enact that, to say, I'm going to you know, accept that. Now, do I, do I do this? Do I practice what I'm talking about? Never. But even though I don't, sorry, go on, I'm, I'm done. Don't give them the fight, Dr. Hershenfeld, right? That's the lesson that I'm trying to learn, that somebody is looking to fight me because it gets their blood boiling and makes them feel alive. And if I fight them, then I'll say something that will reinvigorate what they already thought I thought about them. And I become, I become the enemy they imagine me to be. Don't give a fight. That's the, is that the secret? To I'm not taking it personally. Here's the ultimate example of this. This was told to me as a true story, but I was not there, so I can't tell you more. <clears throat> a psychoanalyst is sitting in his office. A disgruntled patient comes running in, waving a pistol. And, and he has a duck on his head. <laughs> oh, different joke. Sorry, different joke. Go on. Sorry. And the psychoanalyst says, "It's not me you want to kill. It's your father." And the guy gets confused, <laughs> drops the gun, and runs out. <laughs> How about that? Not taking it personally. This week, this Sunday on Extreme Interpretations. <laughs> So when I look at Ukraine, it really is personalities. There's no democracy. There's no army. There's no referendum on whether or not there should be a war. It's Vladimir Putin's, as you've pointed out, Vladimir Putin's psychological issues, Zelensky's psychological issues, Joe Biden's psychological. It gets down to three men who don't want to go to the table and work it out. Is that? That's I, I'm sorry? 
That's one way of looking at it. Is it too reductive? I think there are all sorts of ways of looking at it, and they all probably have some degree of truth. Another way of looking at it is Freud's concept of the hatred of small differences. Did you say Floyd? Who's this Floyd? Floyd, Pink Floyd. Oh, Freud. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I thought you were talking about... (laughs) You couldn't tell a Serb from a Croat if you tripped over them but they went after each other hammer and tong you know to the death same thing with i didn't get that could you try again um same thing with um sorry i'm still not sure about that Oh, I think. Hang on. Hang on. No, Dad. I think it's your. Uh, I think it's your. Your machine is. I'm is not sure. Talking. I understand. Okay, she. Went Are you test, this is an automatic shrink. This is where we're going. Or that's just a very difficult patient. <laughs> I don't so know what you're saying. So it's small differences that cause most hatred because these two groups are too close to each other. So they want to establish some kind of a separation, a boundary. I've heard that said about Israelis and Palestinians. That it's a case. I just read a study, which I always suspected was true, but I never saw scientific validity before. Palestinians genetically are incredibly close to the Jews because when all of these you know forced migrations took place to Babylonia to Assyria most of the people stayed home Only yeah, yeah they, they said uh, <laughs> and you know I, I read the same study also I don't know if you read the whole thing but it turns out the Palestinians are very genetically very close to the Jews, and the Jews are very genetically close to the poodle. <laughs> I mean, there's the poodle. It turns out the poodle mixed with so many. There's the Labradoodle. There's the Golden Doodle. There's the Bernoodle. So now there's the Judle. It's it's a, we are we have a lot of poodle in this. I didn't know that. That's why you have the curly hair. There you go. Okay, thank you. And the intelligence and hair. Like curly hair, the intelligence, and uh, hard to train. Very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Hard to train, and they think they're fancy, but they're not. Poodles. Right, exactly. Yeah, just a little hairdo, and then all that attitude. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But deep down inside, they're yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I read somewhere that a lot of the the conflict is I see myself. I, a Jew sees themselves in a Palestinian. And they don't like what they see, and they want to separate that from. I, I see that. Uh, if and we wanted, I'm sorry. Some of it. It's not the whole some story. Of it. Right. If there were a superpower that wanted peace, there would be a way to sit Zelensky down and Putin down and say, we can stop this fighting. 
We, we, there, there are five million refugees now. Cities are being raised. Thousands upon thousands of dead people. Economies being destroyed. Ukraine feeds Africa. This has to stop. Let's sit down, stop the fighting. Let's do it. It could be done, couldn't it? You could get Putin to get to, to do a ceasefire and to stop this. I, I don't see how that would work. I really don't. I, I don't see it either. Yeah. I heard a very smart guy, a capitalist, if you'll excuse the expression. Um, he has something called the Hermitage Fund, obviously named after the Hermitage in Russia. And he was once the biggest single investor in Russia until they got changed. The Act. This is the guy who got the Mazvinsky Act passed. His accountant was killed. I don't know about that part of it, but I heard him interviewed and he was chased out of Russia eventually. And, and now he's no longer there, but he knows Putin. And he said, Putin's not doing this for money. Got more money than God. He's not doing it for the Russian people. He doesn't give a damn about the Russian people. He's doing this so he doesn't end up in jail or dead. Strictly, that's his whole thing that's driving him. And that made a lot of sense to me. Because every time he goes to war, his popularity goes up. Chechnya, Georgia, Crimea, every time. And then it starts going down again because they have an absolutely miserable life. So as long right. as he can keep fighting wars, he stays alive. It's coming to argue with you, but that's coming from an American who set up the Hermitage Fund, which yeah. nourishes the oligarchs and the kleptocracy in Russia. He's part of the problem. Which did nourish them and now no longer because he left because he was afraid for his own life. He didn't belong there in the first place, some would say. Some would say. Some would say. Americans, these uh, investors went to Russia right after the fall of the Soviet Union and turned it into a kleptocracy. They were vulture capitalists who caused a lot of the pain that the Russians have right now. Again, I'm not defending Putin. Uh, I'm just saying I think that if America, which spends more on weapons than the entire world combined of nuclear war i'm pretty certain we could destroy russia in a in a war i think if i think putin understands that i think biden's role should be saving lives not saying our weapons could work on the russian i think this country is enjoying What's happening right I do. I, 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 I have an apology to think somebody like Henry Kissinger, not a good person, but he did shuttle diplomacy. How much psychology do you think he employed?
working with working with Syria and Egypt and trying to get some kind of settlement. He had a secret weapon that people don't acknowledge, which is that he he talked like this, and uh, you will not understand. Uh, so you, if you talk like that, everyone leans in very close. They keep leaning in, and then he quickly moves away, and then they're actually kissing, and then that's it. Yeah, you know, that was a, a, a twin brother who didn't. I'm, I'm being serious. Twin had no brother, talk like a, I'm being uh, serious. I don't know if you're having the problem. I'm having trouble hearing you, David, for the last minute or so. It got very fuzzy. Me too. Is it I? You too, doctor? Yes. Yeah, it, was getting, it was getting garbled. Yeah. Yeah, how sound, about that? Still garbled. You sound like Kissinger, as a matter of fact. All right. Uh, Dan, are you there? I thought it got fixed for one moment, like Dan jumped in, but... Um, yeah, David, I, it, it does sound a little garbled. I sound garbled. Yes. It's a little distorted. <laughs> Clipping, someone's saying. If there's there, can you unplug and plug back in? I don't know. This bad. That bad. Speak. No, that, that was worse. That was worse. <laughs> Uh, well, here we're. While we're while we're working that out, um, can I? Oh, I'm clipping. Also, someone says my my sound is clipping. Also, my gosh, we have a funny a funny situation. Um, Stay with oh, me, folks. Someone else is there. Someone else is saying my sound is clear. Um, well, um, how do I sound now? Better. That sounded fine. Okay. Maybe it's temporarily fit. Go ahead. The KGB so sometimes does this sort of thing to important programming. And then they get bored very quickly with me. Um, I wanted to just uh, plug, if anyone's in New York, tomorrow night, 7 p.m. show at City Winery, 15th Street, 11th Avenue. 7 p.m. 7 p.m. show. 7 p.m. show. I'm opening for Jen Fulweiler, who's a very funny comedian who has many kids, and she talks about that in her act, among other things. City Winery. If you're in if you're in New York, come on down. Fifteenth Street, Eleventh Avenue, seven PM tomorrow night. There's my well, plug. I, I came up with a an idea for curb your enthusiasm. All right. I, want to... I was making a a sourdough starter and somebody threw it out. I thought, wouldn't it be funny if Larry was given a sourdough starter that had been kept alive in concentration <laughs> on board the Exodus through Europe and this sourdough starter? It's like it's the sourdough starter of Odessa. 
that the, the one Ukrainian got shipped off to a camp and he just kept the sourdough going. And it almost, the bread has almost like a Christian-like quality to it. It's because it, it ferments and it's so holy. It's almost like the body of Christ. And then, and then he throws it out, but it's not even an accent. He's like, eh, I don't like it. It's a little sour. And they can taste that he's having the people over, and they can taste that it's not the original, not the starter from Odessa. Uh, anyway, what is you want to talk about fermentation? Are you fermenting? See, this is this is uncanny. I suggested when I was asked what we want, should we talk about tonight? I said fermentation, and I now we're talking about sourdough starters. That's why I brought it up. I saw it in my notes. Oh, okay. My segue, what would you like? Are you fermenting? I'm not, I'm not fermenting. I, I have a weird thing right here. I bought these things at, at Whole Foods. I don't normally go there. Excuse me for supporting some oligarch. But they're tea bags, but they're full of coffee. So it's coffee in a tea bag, which it seems like an unholy idea. Yeah. I like yeah. it. Well, that, that's there. It is. It's very glamorous. That's a lot of coffee. of that. I know. Yeah, that's I'll show you the bag. Yeah, it's genius. It's not healthy. It's genius slash idiotic. There it is. Yeah. It's genius. It's coffee in a tea bag. Oh, you like this? Okay. Of course, because it's filtered. Is in other words, it's ground coffee not instant coffee it's real right. coffee and instead of running it through a filter you put it in a tea bag yeah and the grounds don't fall how come nobody thought of this before i don't know but i like how enthusiastic i feel like this is a, a plug they should sponsor you they should send you a check you're gonna we're gonna sell a lot of this stuff it's like jim gaffigan's bit about heinz ketchup that now comes upside down Right. Oh, I, I haven't heard the bit. Here's yeah. them to realize just yeah. keep up. Anyway, why were you talking? Why did you want to talk about fermentation? No, I actually wanted to talk about the Oedipus complex because there was an example of it last week right on this program. What happened was I signed off at the end of the program. And then I've been told by my sources that it continued for a while with just the two of you. Well, about two minutes. And that Ethan did the funniest bit on, he was God, I think. It was David queuing that up. But yeah, we did a little, we've done it before, but there was a little God voice. Yeah. But my point is that I wasn't here. So that you were freed up. Oh, I was symbolic. Symbolically, I had killed you. Well, because ah. I was gone. So then you could free yourself up and be as funny as all get out. <laughs> that holds no water, but I'm glad that it. it uh, eh. Hey, if that floats your boat. But no, 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 that's not what happened. It was just a. A little happenstance that I was still on, and I, but my video was on. My video was off. My audio was on, so I could hear and participate, but not be seen. Like God. 
me ask you a question about the Adipal complex, Dr. Hershenfeld. One of my sons was visiting last week. Yeah. And I, I'm being serious. And I definitely picked up that he wanted to kill me and not sleep with his mother. I think he just wanted to kill me and didn't want the good stuff that comes with sleeping with the mother. Yeah. That's, that's half an edible complex. I think, David, I'm not your son, and I sometimes... I'm leaning not, not to blame you for the sound qualities, yeah. but, I, but I, if you lean forward... Is it better? I think it it's better? better. Oh, okay. So I was saying that, that I sometimes want to kill you, even though I'm not your son. <laughs> How do you do it? Do you like just, to sleep with... <laughs> very annoying person. I mean... I hate to have to be so blunt, but no one else is going to tell you this, so... Take it, take it with love, okay? <laughs> take my hatred with love. Take it with love, although it was delivered with none. Yeah. <laughs> um, go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, in this season of rebirth, and if, if Passover and Easter are about nothing else, they're both about rebirth, about liberation, liberation from suffering as a people, liberation from the tomb, liberation from physical death, from spiritual death, from national death in generations of slavery. If, if this season is about nothing else, it is about renewal. So let me just end on that. <laughs> you got caught by the chat room. I saw you. You looked down and you saw... <laughs> Uh, I got caught by my own uh, BS meter. I was just like, okay, I ran out of stuff to say. I just, I really wish, I, I would like to have a pulpit. That's what, I, it's part of me would like to be able to sermonize. This is it. This is your pulpit. Half an hour every Thursday. Well, uh, here's the thing. Seasonal, before you go, seasonal affect disorder. If you live in New Zealand, if you claritin the answer is claritin oh no that's allergy that's for allergies sorry go on. so you're you're living in australia you're living in new zealand it's and they're being told and if you're jewish or if you're a christian or it's ramadan this is the season of renewal and then everything dies it's it's autumn it's it, that's screwed up if you're if you're living in australia that's interesting very confusing. Yeah. Speaking, did we speak about the slave Bible last week? No, but I wanted to ask you about fermentation. The slave Bible was an actual Bible first printed in the Caribbean, I think around 1840, for slaves in order to you know, bring them into the faith. But they left out the whole Exodus story. Wow. Really? We did not want to give them any ideas. Wow. And this Bible was then throughout the south of this country in the same form. No Exodus, no Moses. Wow. Wow. So there you yep. go. 
Judy Benjamin was Secretary of State in the Confederacy, and he was Jewish. Correct. I've always do a comedy, a movie based on his life, like what his Passover Seder was like with slaves serving right. the uh, moor and the bitter herbs. Oh, what was his name? Judah Benjamin. Judah Benjamin. Well known and, guy. You know, we were slaves in Egypt. Look who says he's a slave. <laughs> that, that kind of stuff. Uh, but but funny. That, that reminds me. I always had an idea for a show. It would be sort of. It would be a mashup of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess and Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, and it's called Show Enough. <laughs> It's just it, it could be Borgi and I, every Jew and Bess, the Bessie. Yeah, yeah. Show, but think about it. Show enough. I feel like there's something there. Yes. All right, Doctor oh. Philip Hershenfeld. Thank you, Ethan Hershenfeld. Sorry about the sound. No, no, no. Uh, go, no. go. Stream. It's, it's my fault, David. Ah, very nice. I accept the blame. I accept the blame. My fault. My fault. Um, uh, follow Ethan on YouTube. Go watch Thug Club Jew. When does your next appearance appear? Tomorrow night, 7 p.m., City Winery. Come on out, New Yorkers. 7 p.m., City Winery. Uh, send me a note. I'm putting it in the chat. Here's my email address. And if you, if you have any consumer or other kind of complaints, I'm happy to help you with the perfect complaint email. I have a lifelong experience in complaining. I'll be happy to do it for no charge on your behalf. We need a consumer advocate on this yes, show. I'm ready. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You. No, thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Let's check our sound before we bring Emil in. Is Dan here? Dan, are you here? Yep, I'm here. It's still sounding a little rough. It's it's not consistent. It's almost like sometimes you fade away, sometimes you come back. So I don't know what possibly is wrong, but if you want to make me host for a minute and reboot, that's an option. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Make me a host and then you reboot and we'll continue in a moment. Okay. I am the host. Why don't you host the show? Okay. And I will Turn your video on. Uh, talk to Emil. Let's do this. Hang on. Emil, can you turn your... I didn't know we could do this. Here I am. So I, I can leave and come back. Yes, we've done it before during office hours, and I think we've done it during podcasts as well. As long as you have a host, it should be good. And how is his sound? Um, it should be all right. How does it sound, Dan? Emil sounds steady and kind of normal. Uh, Ethan sounded really, really loud. All right. For some reason. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Take it away, Dan and Emil. Okay. Hey, hi, Dan. Hi, Emil. How are you doing today, buddy? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I do this thing. I watch the news. Did you see Obama speak today? I did not. What oh, happened? He did this big speech about uh, uh, about social media. And I guess this is going to be his whole policy thing now. I, I 
you know, he's going to go out and try to convince the social media giants that they should be transparent, that they should regulate themselves, that they should. So he's so Jimmy Carter builds houses and Obama is good to rebuild democracy, I guess. That's uh, his new mission. But it was it was interesting because uh, he's right. I mean, this is sort of the, the time. Anyway, so that was that's that's sort of what I was thinking about before I came on. I was thinking about Obama's speech, um, but it's probably a speech that very few people saw because it was during the day out in California. Do you think that's going to be like one of the topics of your next yeah, show? I'll probably, I, I, I did talk about it today because it is like just as it finished, it finished around uh, around 1.30 p.m. Pacific time. So that's about 4.30 your time. Um, I would I'd just been watching it and just thinking about what he was saying. Uh, and, you know, it ties in with all the other things that are going on. You know, he tied it in with the whole uh, what's happening with, you know, autocracy gaining, gaining ground and how it gains ground by the use of media as specifically social media and disinformation. And then, then, then he talked about the, the media, the responsibility of the media and then, and about journalism. So it was, I thought it was interesting and it's, you know, we are here, this is a social, you know, this is out there because of social media um, on different platforms. Um, you know, I thought it would be uh, interesting to at least just see what, what president Obama might say or do. Although, you know, a lot of stuff about social media just within the last week, you know, Elon Musk wanting to buy Twitter. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know really about uh, enough about Elon. I know Elon Musk has a background with, with Twitter that uh, makes people frown on his trying to purchase it. But I, I don't, I don't really have an opinion about that so much, but anyway, so president Obama is a, opinions and takes on the matter did they, did they seem to align with what what you would think or did anything oh, seem off yeah, the wall or yeah i think you know the, it's it's like what else would could obama say right now although really it's like obama is really kind of a milk toast kind of guy and so he's he uses it to be as hard as he can on putin and the autocrats but he does it in a way that is is for him, this is, I, I think, is about as radical as it gets with, with Obama. I think a lot of people expected him to be far more, I don't want to use the word progressive, but they expected a lot more from the Obama administration uh, from two terms. And it really, after all, you know, after Trump, after, after the first couple of years of Biden, it's been kind of mixed, you know, what you know, how, how we assess Obama, you know? Yeah, great, but I'm glad he was there. But I'm, you know, it seems like he, this is a way I think to be in the middle is where, which is where Obama has been. And he talks a lot about this idea, or he talked to, today he talked about a study. He said they had some Fox people who, are, who weren't swing voters. They were real diehard Fox fans. And they had them watch CNN. And some people I know in your audience who say, oh, well, what's the big difference? But, you know, there is a slight difference between Fox and CNN 
for many people, it's noticeable. But there are some people, I mean, to these people in this survey, they found an 8 to 10% swing in their views on certain things. And Obama's take on that was that, see, if, you know, we, we might appear intractable, but we are actually much more fluid in our opinions. And if we exposed ourselves to more, if we, if we had more expansive taste in news and opinions, maybe we could get over the kind of things that create divisions in our society. And, and that really is ultimately what he's trying to go for. He's trying to say, look, there's got to be a better way that we can, can come together as um, a society, as a democracy, talk to each other, agree on how to talk to each other and disagree, and maybe begin to end some of the divides that have really crippled our society. So I, I, I think that, you know, for a guy who hasn't said a whole lot since he's left office, I mean, he's now doing more. I think he's, he's coming out more. I think this is, it was an important thing for him to go out and do a policy speech in Stanford, in the Silicon Valley, talking about the social media. Maybe some of the social media giants will, will take what he has to say to heart, you know, which also comes with a big diversity inclusion message talking about people who have been left out, people who have been left out in the, you know, technological, um, you know, change in America. So uh, I, it's what I had hoped for, hoped for from Obama. And I hope uh, the social media giants take heart. Well, David had a little something to say about Obama earlier in the show when he was, um, talking about the news of Christian Smalls and his work with oh. the Amazon labor stuff. Cause yeah. I guess Bernie's going to go out and meet him and, and help with some rallying and support. And David's point was, well, where's Barack Obama? Where's this one, that one, the other one. And uh, hey, totally reasonable. The organizer was in his past. That's in his past. That's, that's not his future. <laughs> Community <laughs> organizer is in his past. Now Obama uh, is talking about the social media. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because he, he said some things that are pretty, you know, should be pretty self-evident. You know, he said the social media giants need a new North Star. He said they need to do, they need to be working for something more than just the, the dollars and the profits. Because, look, this is the thing about people who work in tech companies and people who are looking for that, that uh, you know, the million dollar stock option deal you know they they really are, are thinking about i mean i worked for a tech company briefly and the phrase that that controls everything they do is shareholder the idea of shareholder value shareholder value it's capitalism and that's why there's nothing revolutionary about socially about you know the tech folks the tech giants because it's always going to be about shareholder value and that means, you know, you introduce Christian Smalls into that conversation. That is not going to increase shareholder value. And unfortunately, I, I never even heard of the phrase shareholder value until, you know, 20 years ago. And that's all they talked about. Oh, our stock options are going to go up. Shareholder value. Anyway. David, I was just telling Emil about, about your opening monologue and doing the news, how you're talking about the Christian Smalls news that Bernie was going to go support and you're listening off of 
a few people who you might think would be out helping won't be because we were talking about Barack Obama. We cannot hear you. Nope, you're muted, though. You're muted, David. How about now? That I hear good. you now. I sound okay? Yep. Sound great. Sound great. Okay. So I think we might have fixed. So now we know we can do that. Yep. We, and we, okay, good. And you sound steady and consistent, so that's good. Yeah, but the show was better without me. No, no. <laughs> As it was. No, 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 no. I feel like a supernumerary. I feel like a third nipple. Time for the show to go in the dump. Bye. <laughs> no, stay here. Uh, I wasn't listening. No, no, we were just chatting about uh, Obama's speech on social media today. Uh, oh, he had a speech? Yeah, he gave a big major speech at Stanford. One of his big, it, it was billed as a big policy speech. And I guess it was. I mean, and my point to Dan is okay. After the presidency, Jimmy Carter is building houses and Obama is now going to try to rebuild democracy or help America rebuild its democracy. And he pointed out to things like the social media as being really responsible for why we're seeing the kind of erosion in our democracy. And and it, it you know, and so that's why he gave it gave the speech in, at Stanford. It, it was good because he br brings up all the, the big themes of our day. You know what's happening in in Russia and in Ukraine, the, uh, the rise of the autocrats. He brings up China. Uh, he could have brought up the Philippines because it's social media that's destroying or that's creating the disinformation in the Philippines. It's enabling Ferdinand Marcos Jr. You know, he's going to be the new, he's going to be the, the son of the dictator. It looks like he's going to be president when the, the election comes around on May, May 9th. And then we can say there is a new dick tater in town right so president obama was speaking to stanford yeah about the threat to democracy when in fact stanford is the threat to i'm being serious to our democracy i don't i'm not denying that I, why isn't he busy going if he cares so much about democracy why doesn't he join bernie sunday out on Staten Island with Christian Smalls taking on Amazon. Uh, I mean, this is just, I, I'm sorry, but this wringing your hands over democracy, it's so disingenuous. Well, as I was you, telling you want people to vote, give them something to vote for. It's the, the democracy without substance is nothing. Uh, David, as I was telling Dan that, you know, I was kind of surprised that Obama had come out and to say say something like this because we all know that after his administration, you know, years later, we know the kind of president he was. He's not exactly he wasn't the hope and change president. You know, the reality was far less, you know, very little hope, very little change. But he is the acceptable person. And, you know, there's still a, a part of me that still wants to like Obama more than dislike him for all that he's done. And I think this is, I know, are we, it's too bad that yeah. we're just still steps in the right direction we can't be more, more solid than that. But yeah, I think you're right. But going back to this idea of shareholder value, that's the reason why tech companies don't revere Christian smalls because it does not do anything for shareholder value. And that's what they care about. Right. So, I 
I'm getting a note that we may have killed the live stream. So let me. Really? Yeah. Let me just see. I think our, okay. We have to restart again. Let me, uh, I did something wrong. So hang on. Okay. Let us start again. It's just one of those days. Yeah, I know. That's all right. I mean, I'm cool. I am uh, just happy to be speaking to you, David, even though, you know, uh, I, I heard the, the Oedipal remark uh, in the previous half hour. And All right. Well, that's screwed up. Uh, yeah, we're having technical problems today. I apologize. It's all right. But I sound okay, right? Sound great. Sound great. Sound great. Damn this. Yeah. I have a feeling some of what you were talking about was lost. Oh, well, that's all right. Repeating. <laughs> Repetition is all. I know what I did wrong. I know what I did wrong. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, go, so what were you talking about? I apologize. Oh, just about, uh, you know, Obama uh, talking about, uh, you know, the social media being the problem. It actually was a, it was a thoughtful speech. It's it seems like, OK, yeah, we, we, we kind of know this, Barack, but are you going to lead the way? Um, essentially, he's leading toward this idea of regulation of social media and he was trying to sell the idea that, hey, regulation is still possible or uh, innovation is still possible with regulation. Maybe, uh, but regulation always uh, sends the shivers up capitalist spines and makes them say, what does this have to do with shareholder value? Which is what the whole idea of Christian Smalls and why unions are a bad idea, you know, in the minds of, CEOs at uh, big tech companies. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it would, but it was interesting to see what Obama is going to do after, you know, post post presidency, you know, he puts up his library. What's he going to do with his time? This is what he's going to do. And of course there was a little diversity message. He wants to make sure that the tech companies include are inclusive and in who they deal with all the people of color. So in, in many ways it was kind of, what we'd hoped and expected from Obama all along, but haven't gotten. And so in many ways, you know, a typical react, the reaction you had is maybe kind of, yeah, like if you care about democracy, why don't you do something real? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had a guest on a week or two ago who was bemoaning democracy. He's a Democrat, wrote a book about it. And I said, well, what do the Democrats have to offer? I said, how about like Medicare for all? He goes, well, I, I don't know if Medicare for all is the, is the answer. Uh, he says, I'm not so concerned about, you know, what the Democrats stand for as I am worried that the Republicans want to kill democracy. And I kind of said, 
Well, doing nothing kills democracy. You got to give reason, got to give people a reason to want <laughs> democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, it's like, you know, or what's the first problem right in front of us? And I guess the Democrats see the Republican threat, but then that gets in the way of them offering something real. And, you know, and, and then there's this idea that if as long as we stay as divided as we are, we're never going to have the kind of mandate or the kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of flexibility to really get something passed as we see when the, the, the numbers are so, so, so tight in the Senate, 50, 50, you got the tiebreaker. She's the Democrat. Um, it makes things not next to impossible, but it, given the circumstances of how divided we are, it's amazing that anything can get done. And yet we know if we look at history, we see how, Things like the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Voting Rights Act, immigration law, it all passed 1965. So roughly 50 years ago, all that stuff passed with, you know, with clear majorities. I mean, it was not like that. That was like a a common thing. And now we just can't do anything. Our, 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 Our democracy is so hindered. And um, so I, I suppose what's preventing new ideas from coming up or the preservation of the ideas that we passed more than 50 years ago is the fact that, well, we got to get, we got to be able to see each other as, you know, uh, find some common ground amongst, you know, Democrats and Republicans and progressives and liberals and conservatives. And I think ultimately that's what Obama was trying to get at when he was talking about the problems with our, our, you know, are the divisions in our country that they are exacerbated by social media and exacerbated by the fact that we don't know how to talk to each other. And he does get into talking about the different silos that, that exist and how we need, you know, everything is nationalized on cable and on in the news because everyone wants the big audience. They want the big audience of money. And so what suffers local news, local information, grassroots information where it might, really make a difference in people's lives and he did he did make a comment that we need to do something to revive local news and that's where we met local news local was everything and right now you know it's like local um don't make enough money with local what is the i i do know that republicans believe that trump won they really do a a majority of republicans believe that democrats are run by child molesters i was just reading a yougov an economist yougov poll that there are republicans who believe that a majority of republicans believe the democratic party is controlled by pedophiles yeah this is really becoming a thing in our discourse and that, that's why I'm very careful. I say my wife works at PETA and I love my wife. It makes me a pedophile, not a pedophile. I, I want to make sure that people, because right now, PETA, pedophilia is like the big villain. And, uh, you know, the, the idea, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein, every, it, the QAnon, everything. It's ped, pedophilia has become such a thing. I was reading an editorial 
that uh, talked about, you know, the Camden Catholic Church uh, decision or settlement, 85 million, they're going to pay out. It's about 300,000 per uh, Catholic who is abused. But they, the, the logic was they should settle now because pedophilia is going to be the window to get a big payout is is dwindling it's over because pedophilia has a different meaning in america now it's become politicized people see pedophilia they throw it around there's no they they question the credibility of anyone who says pedophilia or it mentions pedophile so i you know it, it's just something that it's, it's interesting that you bring it up because i i think that's true I, it's it's amazing how how did that happen david that you know, in the course of our lifetimes, I mean, pedophilia is always bad, but how did it become the emotional tr trigger that politicos have used to set off a nation and set off society? That's and, and they've cheapened pedophilia. I'm not trying to make a joke out of it, but they've cheapened it. Oh, well, they, that's what I mean. Look, look, they use it in the child pornography thing, uh, you know, charge against Katanji Brown Jackson. It, it's become a. A, an arrow in the quiver of the, you know, the political manipulators. And, you know, and this goes back to what Obama was saying. We have forgot, we have lost the ability to distinguish between what's true and what's not true. We have lost the ability to distinguish between propaganda and truth and, you know, what's, what's political and, and at least how to talk about our disagreements so that we we know that we are this is a, a an analogy that obama always likes to bring up that we are on the same team right we should be on the same team but we act like we're not right when you get rid of the nonsense what divides us what are we really divide the hatred of republicans because they're not part of our team, the hatred of Democrats, because they're not part of our team. What divides the Democrats and the Republicans? Abortion? Yeah, well, now, I think, you know, I think you LGBTQ rights go back to what the, the things that really have always divided America and it's race and class. I really think it's race and class. And you see it sometimes go down, you know, being pushed down low in the list. But, you know, there's you know, when people talk about immigration, that's a race issue, also somewhat of a class issue. When you see people talk about, uh, you know, health care, that could be a race and class issue. I think race and class divides. And uh, I, I, I think that's the importance of Obama just being a figurehead. See, I'm, I'm, I'm now acknowledging that Obama is just like, he's like the hood ornament. He's the hood ornament for people who believe that America could be the kind of place that, that we all hope. And, you know, we, when, you, when you say race and class, yeah, one would think that the democratic party would be the home to class resentment, but it's not. Yeah, it should, it should be one would hope, but yeah, well, there's, no, the, cla there's no class resentment. Well, the democratic, the democratic party. The Democrats have moved over to the middle, right? I mean, so they're and and some of the corporates they'll give to the Republicans and the Democrats. They just want the power, they just want the people in charge, and so they they have created this great big, you know, middle pool that everyone jumps into, and then and all the rest of us are on the fringe. 
in terms of, of class. And so, but I think class and race is what's, what, what divides us. I mean, there's still a healthy sense of xenophobia, still a healthy sense of class snobbery. So and- what's happened is we divided, the Republicans took class and the Democrats took color. Most of the time, most of the time. And then, and then the Republicans took Clarence Thomas. And then but for uh, the most part, if you vote for the Republicans, you have class resentment towards the the educated, the elitists. And you're a racist. That's part of the Republican allure. If you're a Democrat, you don't think about class. You think about identity. That's what they've given us. The choice. That's the well, choice. I don't know. If- yeah, I think that's sort of how it's evolved. Um, I, I think evolved, or is this what the Clintons and the Obamas did to the party? Well, they took money from Wall Street, well, so they so they rid the party of class resentment, which was its backbone since the time of Roosevelt. Right? FDR said, "I'm a traitor to my class," and. Yeah, uh, Democrat well, used to be about class resentment, right? He wasn't so great to the Filipinos either, though, when he, uh, you know, uh, oh, actually, it was he said he it was FDR's promise to give Filipinos uh, citizenship if they fought alongside Americans. It was Truman who rescinded the promise. So hmm. he's only well, half here's of that. Here's what, here's what we have to do. Yeah. Today, we're getting through the show. Uh, We're going to try to get with our dignity intact. So I'm going to thank you for coming on the show because we have to move on and there have been massive technical problems. We shut down the YouTube feed. I've shut down my audio. So this I don't know how we're going to assemble this show, but we're going to soldier on. Emil Guillermo last thoughts and well, then yeah my last thoughts I, you know i wanted to tell you we talked about sexism and racism i just wanted to put in a word for fighting ageism because i think that's the last thing that we that's the last hump that we need to get over because we're all going to get old and if lucky if we're lucky yeah i'm i'm i've become more sensitive to it i wrote a column in the aldef uh blog on ageism and Diane Feinstein. Forget her politics. I think it's just wrong that she gets smeared for being mentally for being called mentally unfit because she forgot a few things. Um, it may be a pattern, but, you know, let let her doctor and and her family decide if she's fit for office. I just think that when you ever see a political smear like that, there's something else going on. Someone wants her seat. Someone wants her out so they could be in the Senate. And I just think that's as disgusting as anything racist or sexist um, that uh, can be out there in in the public. You know, and considering she's the senator of 6 million Asian Americans, the largest Asian American, you know, population in in America, it it becomes an Asian American issue. But anyway, I want- And what what has she done for the Asian Americans? Well, I, I, it's what, 
she's been there for the community ever since she was a supervisor in San Francisco, since she was um, the mayor of San Francisco, and then ultimately when she uh, has been in the Senate since 92. I just think she has. But what has she done for them? Specifically, uh, I think if you went back over her career, you'd say that she was inclusive of Asian Americans in, in her in uh, the legislation that she's passed. Um, you know, I, I can't point to any one thing, but I know that she has been supported by the Asian American community throughout her career. So, but when you're, how old is she? 84? 88, I believe. 88. Do, do you think it's healthy for an 88 year old to be Senator? I think that it's, you think that's, would you want that? Would you be, would you, when you turn 88, do you think that's a good idea for you to be a United States Senator? Well, Do you want your parents at 88? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, David. Kind of sick. Well, the way the Senate works, though, the, the seniority is everything. And seniority is power, not personal power, but it's seniority is power for the state. It's power for, uh, you know, her positions. And, you know, we, we can disagree on like, oh, well, what is a Dianne Feinstein position? I mean, she's a fairly moderate Democrat. But the Republicans don't use the seniority system anymore. Oh, yes. Yeah, Charles Grassley out of Iowa. He's but good, he's but good. They've, they've, they've shaken it up where the chairmanships are no longer based on how long you've served, right? Well, well I don't believe so. Tell that to Charles Grassley, you know, who's running again. Tell I mean, it, the, the, the precedent is there with Strom Thurmond. Uh, the thing about Feinstein is she's a woman. And I would think that she has served as served the public well enough that it should be up to her to decide if the time has come. And if it's not, then it's not up to some politicos and journos to leak something to the press under an as an anonymous source. These people came out as an anonymous anonymous read my column they said because they did not want to upset their relationship with feinstein get that how's that they oh we don't want to upset her to know to let her know that we're stabbing her in the back and the front we just want people to know that she's mentally unfit there's something wrong with that people should if they have a beef with her they should confront her talk to her and then if she is of sound mind and body she should be able to make a decision on her own and she's a woman she deserves that right all right emil guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast people for the ethical treatment of animals read him over at aldef the asian american legal defense and education fund thank you sir thanks Dave. sorry thanks. about our tech difficulties no problem no problem no I am now going to turn the show over to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, who has a special guest. And I apologize for keeping you waiting. We've had some technical problems tonight. Uh, we crashed the, the live stream, so we had to reboot it. So I'm going to now turn the show over to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, as well as a lawyer. 
Welcome, Reverend. Uh, oh, hang on. Uh, I got to unmute you. All right. Oh, very now good. you're unmuted and you're Terrific. <laughs> Terrific. I'm very, very glad that we have our guest with us. D. Knight is his name. He's the author of a new book, a memoir, and a kind of manifesto called My Whirlwind Lives. And he certainly has had those. I don't think I've had an extended conversation, D, with you since about 1978. But in reading the book, I found a couple things out about you I didn't even remember from your past. Welcome That's to the great. show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. I wanted, I, I wanted to thank Emo for defending the rights of old people since we qualify, even though we don't like to think about ourselves. We don't like to think about it, but we do get reminded of it on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> well, uh, Dee and I actually first met uh, in the middle 1970s when we were working for something called a universal unconditional amnesty. We worked together. We had some brutal arguments together during that course of trying to find a way to gain some kind of relief for those who directly resisted the war, as well as Vietnam veterans uh, who were stigmatized by what were then called other than honorable discharges. It was a long, long struggle. But the one, one thing I learned very early in your book, Dee, was that you, I think in high school, actually in a mock election, voted for Barry Goldwater. And uh, right. at, that was about the same time I was wearing a giant Barry Goldwater pin. And there was this young woman somewhere, uh, I believe in Arkansas, uh, whose name was Hillary Clinton, who also was championing Barry Goldwater. I remember vaguely why I thought Barry Goldwater made sense. I was totally unaware of the war in Vietnam. And, but I did think he stood for something. He had principles at a time when it appeared that Democrats running for office had no principles at all. What attracted you, even if briefly, to Barry Goldwater? Well, I think it was mainly geography. You know, just, I was uh, uh, back in Idaho where I was born uh, about a year and a half ago when my wife and I drove across the country to visit my mom as she threatened to turn 100 years old. Uh, and I had a conversation with my uh, cousin and his wife who uh, are still rock solid Republicans. And I asked them why. And they said, well, everybody around here is. And I think that was true in Eastern Oregon as well. Uh, it's also true that... Um, you know, uh, my uh, grandfather, who was a very bright guy, uh, never said the word Democrat without the word damn in front of it. So uh, it made it easy, but it didn't take long. All I had to do was be exposed to some people thinking critically and um, uh, take a close look at what was happening in the world at that time. Uh, with the surge of the civil rights movement, the um, uh, escalation of the war in Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, to change my mind. I didn't go far at first. I mean, 
Lyndon Johnson was a peace candidate, you may recall. Uh, <laughs> That's what he said. Um, the, I did not go to Chicago in 1968. Later, I met many of the people, including a number of the people that were arrested in 1968. You were there, but in the book you say you weren't so much a participant as a kind of uh, observer. When you, what did you observe in that summer of 1968 in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention that kind of gelled everything? Was it police brutality? Was it just the utter unwillingness of the Democratic Party to take peace candidates, real peace candidates seriously? What was the trigger in 1968 when you sat there and watched what was going on while I was watching it on television? Where were you? You were there. Well, it was yes to both. I did get down to uh, the park with the demonstrators. I was there as an organizer for Eugene McCarthy, who I still thought at the time uh, was uh, pushing hard to stop the war and to get the nomination. I felt that he had essentially inherited Bobby Kennedy's mantle. But, you know, uh, going down into the streets as well as uh, participating with uh, McCarthy people, it became clear that the system was designed to lock us out and the police were there mm. to guarantee that that happened. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the lesson graphically was if you uh, stand up to oppose the war in the streets, you're going to get your head bashed in. Mm. That was an important lesson for me at the time. It did not change my desire to stand up and oppose wars, but uh, sure. it, it uh, changed my understanding of the system. When the war finally comes to a conclusion, um, I was already a part of this amnesty movement. I had moved to Washington and worked for the United Church of Christ. And I remember when Saigon fell, as the news put it, I was elated. I was so glad that happened. And I assume you were too. Yes, the first thing I did was buy a bottle of champagne, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I brought it back to the uh, uh, War Resisters uh, office where the National Council for Universal Unconditional Amnesty had its offices. I, <clears throat> not everybody wanted to share the champagne, but it was a time for celebration as far as I was concerned. Yes, yeah. very much so. And then it looked like maybe the war being over, there was a possibility that people would come to their senses and realize, even if they wouldn't admit it out loud, that the resistors to the war were right. Not that everyone who fought the war was wrong, but that the architects of the war were wrong. They were the people who had made all of the terrible decisions. But when you, when you go back to some of those events, I, I want to just mention a couple of them. When Gerald Ford, when Nixon resigned and Gerald Ford became president, uh, he was... Uh, he was president at the time that one of the leaders of the more or less universal amnesty movement, the late Senator Phil Hart, 
Phil Hart and his wife, Jane Hart, were leading advocates for the end of the war in Vietnam. When Gerald Ford found out that Phil Hart had died, I had been with him a couple of weeks before. And Ford says to Mrs. Hart, what can I do for you? And she says, you could grant an amnesty for those who resisted the war. And Ford said, uh, let me think about it. And I got a call. I don't remember if it was from Mrs. Hart or from uh, one of the other activists who said, come back to Washington. I was visiting my parents. They want everybody's going to come and have a big press conference. And it was a hugely well attended press conference with Mrs. Hart and a couple of us. And I don't remember if you were there that day or not, but the cameras, I had never seen so many television cameras on the nightly news. There was not one minute, not one split second of coverage of that, which started to remind me, maybe the mass media really isn't on the side of the good either. Do you remember that incident? Well, I remember uh, uh, the heart amnesty. Uh, I was uh, uh, still basically in Canada. I was physically in Canada at the time. I had... um, won my own legal case and was free to travel. And by then, uh, I believe by then, I was already uh, 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 um, the exile representative to the National Council for Universal Unconditional Amnesty. We um, had done quite a lot of study and analysis. And even though uh, we recognized the uh, uh, what you could call the good heart of the heart uh, uh, amnesty proposal, it still wasn't enough for us at the time. And we were not there, although we'd recognized that it was what you could call a sea change in, right. um, in support for amnesty, a sea change going our way. There had been other hearings, you know, uh, uh, Ed Koch, um, and several other um, uh, Congress people, including uh, Ed, Edward Kennedy, uh, had uh, called for amnesty. All of them were essentially conditional amnesty, the same kind of thing that ultimately uh, <clears throat> uh, Ford granted, calling it clemency, un- conditional clemency for a small fraction of war resistors, essentially the white middle class draft resistors, as long as we would uh, do some alternate service. Exactly. Of course, uh, we um, we rejected that and called a boycott. I'm happy to say I think a couple of uh, uh, my co-leaders of the Amnesty Collective, both Jerry Condon and um, Steve Grossman, are probably with us tonight. I'm not positive, but I think so. Uh, they were. Uh, part of our uh, squadron of uh, courageous activists who used that uh, offer of clemency to um, challenge it by coming back from exile, subject to arrest, to defy it. Both of them did uh, very courageous trips. Uh, Steve spoke at a big amnesty conference in Louisville uh, at the time. Uh, uh, And... uh, he and his partner Evangeline uh, toured the Midwest extensively for several weeks before returning to Toronto. Jerry 
who already had been uh, convicted in absentia of desertion uh, after uh, uh, going AWOL from the uh, Green Berets. Uh, he came back uh, underground uh, in February of 75. I coordinated his, his uh, traveling and helped him get to DC where he surfaced at a conference hosted by uh, Ramsey Clark and Gold Star Mother Louise Ransom, where you probably were there. I imagine you were. I he think surfaced so. As, he surfaced as a special guest at that conference, made a splash in the media, uh, uh, received a lot of support, and he and his partner Sandy got on an airplane and flew to LA and continued a tour that never really stopped. That's one thing about Jerry. He, <laughs> That's right. He, He's still he, at it. He's still at it and he's doing a great job. He's been a leader of the Veterans for Peace now for longer than I can remember. I mean, uh, we're talking about from uh, the mid-1970s right up to the present day. By my Indeed. math, that's a, little, that's a little more than four decades. <laughs> yeah, Gerald Ford, for people who don't know what a conditional amnesty was, said, well, you can, be, you can get your record expunged, but you have to do some kind of civilian service. Uh, and in many cases, it was actually giving civilian service obligations to people who weren't in fact in any legal jeopardy. So it was a terrible idea. When you and many others said, boycott this, they did. And the thing was a total flop. Now, Jimmy Carter comes in and by polling data, not because of his, uh, I'm sure he is a vaunted uh, Christian believer, but at the time, he was told by pollsters, if you don't do more than Gerald Ford did about this, these war resistors, you can't even get the Democratic nomination. So he does get the Democratic nomination. There's a very big highlight of an event at the Democratic National Convention where he, uh, where a man named Fritz Ifaw, who had been in exile in England, had come back to the United States. He was nominated by the aforementioned uh, Louise Ransom, who was at the time the head of uh, Gold Star Parents for Amnesty, as well as the wonderful Ron Kovic. Many people know Kovic, sadly, only because of the movie Born on the Fourth of July with Tom Cruise playing Ron. But it was an, an extraordinarily powerful event. So then it comes down to trying to convince the Carter people, what are you going to do? And how broad is this going to be? And how unconditional is it going to be? So the first couple of days after he was nominated, uh, he, he grants a kind of a pardon, he called it, for certain selective service violators. And then a week or two later does something for so-called deserters so that they could get back into the United States, but did absolutely nothing for the hundreds of thousands of veterans who had been discharged with other than honorable discharges. And for people who don't know anything about that system, these are so-called administrative discharges. They're not something you get after a courts martial. Somebody, your commanding officer sends somebody to talk to you and says, well, um, I don't think you like to be here, son, and uh, you're smoking a lot of dope, and, but we can get you out. Now, you'll have this thing called an undesirable discharge, but, you know, you won't go to jail. They never told 
people how bad a stigma this would be and how unemployable it would make most of the people who had obtained those other than honorable discharges. When you look back over the whole scope of things, was there any benefit to what we did in the amnesty movement, benefit by means of a lesson learned for the future? Did the future learn anything from watching what came and went during that time? Well, it's a really good question, Barry. Uh, and I think the answer is a qualified yes. First of all, our, our, uh, our inside slogan, the slogan we had for ourselves was amnesty for the future, not just the past. We were basically fighting for the right to resist or refuse to serve in unjust wars. And uh, we were especially fighting for that for active duty soldiers, GIs. And um, you mentioned uh, the uh, veterans with other than honorable discharges. Uh, the vast majority of this half million people during the Vietnam period uh, were uh, GIs who basically were insubordinate one way or the other. Some of them just uh, saying, hell no. Some of them, you know, being insubordinate in all kinds of ways. Uh, and the discharge was something that the uh, military had to do for its own sake. They had to get rid of troublemakers in their ranks who were so great that by 1970, uh, one Marine Colonel wrote a famous essay in which he said that the army was breaking down. All kinds of things were happening. Now, you're right. I, I would say among us, once again, it was Jerry Condon, you know, who uh, lived out our commitment to uh, fighting for the rights of veterans and active duty GIs, no matter what, for how, as long as it takes. And I can say that, um, uh, especially Jerry, but others of us have worked not only with Veterans for Peace, but with the About Face group, which is essentially Iraq veterans against the war. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, both uh, Vietnam era war resistors and veterans, as well as uh, uh, George Bush senior and junior did was instill a desire to refuse on the part of the active duty GIs of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So there was a lot of it. Um, it's different. It's less visible than it was during our time, uh, both because there's no draft, so we don't see the kind of massive uh, student resistance to the draft. And the poverty draft works very well. Uh, young people go in by the thousands to the military because it's an opportunity for them and they only find out later what they're looking at and often right. it's uh, only in the process of trying to get out or actually getting out that they realize what has hit them um, but it's a process it's a little bit more gradual and evolutionary but we see and i mean this we see a generation of people who are far and far much less uh, willing to say, okay, Uncle Sam, I'm with you. They go in for opportunistic reasons. Sure. Uh, they hope like, uh, they hope that they 
won't get sent to combat. They get sent to combat. They come with with uh, uh, traumatic brain brain injury and many many other problems that stay with them a long time. And so it's a it's a long term fight. Yeah, I think it has made it extremely difficult to think about returning to an actual draft. And um, I don't want to belabor it, but you talked about McCarthy, and I of course was fond of McCarthy. Bobby Kennedy was also running. I think in some ways, particularly after this impassioned speech Bobby Kennedy gave in Indianapolis after the assassination of Dr. King, I became much more of a supporter of Kennedy until his own tragic assassination. Gene McCarthy wanted to be president in 1968. He didn't get there. He stayed in the Senate for a very long time. And um, then he decided, probably in the early 70s, that he was going to re- call for a return to something called universal service, not necessarily in the military, but some kind of forced service on the part of every young person in the country. And I even remember having a debate with him at Yale at the Yale Political Union on this very topic. And you and I and he, everybody understood and understands the poverty draft, but he seemed to think, he seemed to take it deeper. Like by dint of being born in the United States, you owe your government something. And I, uh, I had an enormous problem with that and I still do. The idea that because you happen to be born in the United States, you somehow, are allowed or you're you're forced to allow the government to tell you how you can best serve your country. And the people I see in Washington who live in Southeast Washington, people in South Central Los Angeles, I don't think that those young people, frankly, owe one damn thing to the government that doesn't give them a decent education, hasn't given their parent or their parents a decent job, and just has treated them as if they didn't exist. To me, you've got to earn something if you're the government. You don't get owed it by dint of being an American citizen. It's kind of the opposite of John Kennedy's statement, ask not what you can do for, (laughs) ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I say with all due respect to John Kennedy, who said a lot of good things, that's a piece of junk. (laughs) <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I think what's needed is a real commitment to full employment and free education and or training for young people. That could include something like the Civilian Conservation Corps that FDR had, maybe this time providing jobs, converting to green energy and so on. Um, you know, but meanwhile, obviously, the country needs to be cured of its addiction to militarism, not increase it. You know, and I, I, I think that it's, to use a fancy word, it's all too facile to talk <laughs> about natu- national service. You know, how about um, uh, providing opportunities? FDR also uh, called for and committed to full employment. That went out the window. But, you sure. know, it's clear that uh, young people want opportunities uh, not only to serve but to do good things in the community and a program that focused on that would I think be very very popular and valuable 
Um, and it, it, I, I think that the key is to separate it from militarism. It's very, very difficult in this country to think of anything that is not separated from militarism because militarism seems to dominate everything. That's, in my opinion, what has to stop. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, if you have more opportunities for people to have a decent wage paying job when they get out of high school, if they don't want to go to college or they're not feeling that's where they ever want to go, to be able to get a job from the government voluntarily, I'm all for that. But this idea of forcing it is where I you know, had to draw the line with Gene McCarthy. And uh, I, I think that the vote at that Yale Political Union thing was something like 95 percent in my favor, 5 percent in his. And he looked out at this huge crowd of Yale law students and said, uh, well, I am at Yale. So, <laughs> well, I'd I mean, vote I, for you for president over Gene McCarthy today. <laughs> Well, that's I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm not going to be running. Um, let me talk about electoral politics, though, just for a minute, because you, you talk a lot in the book about the Green New Deal, about AOC and the commitment that she seems to have. Um, a couple of weeks ago on this program, I was talking about uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, and I know you've been active in them. I don't know if you still are, but during the effort to reestablish registration for men in the draft. Michael Harrington, who was the founder of Democratic Socialists of America, and I, uh, Harrington was also the author of a spectacularly well-informed book called The Other America. And we used to share a lot of platforms, but both of us were criticized somewhat by some of the people for actually saying, because this was the time that Jimmy Carter was using the Russian invasion of Afghanistan as a justification. We have to be prepared. You know, we have to prove that our young men can be sent over if we have to. Uh, we were criticized for criticizing Russia for going for the Soviet Union at that time for going into Afghanistan. Um, then a few weeks ago in reading some of this articles about what the Democratic Socialists of America were doing about the war in Ukraine, they had officially announced that they were in favor of pulling out of NATO, pulling out of NATO. And the writers for several of these articles had actually gone even to AOC and said, well, what do you think about this? The Democratic Socialists of America have had a big influence in your election. And she wouldn't even talk about it I have no independent basis to know that, but it seems to me that that's a really good question to ask. NATO, what does it mean in the year 2022? I'm, I'm upset if it's true that she wouldn't even answer the question. Well, get out of NATO and no NATO are very, very timely slogans today. NATO should have been abolished long ago. Uh, at least at the same time as the Warsaw Pact was dissolved. About AOC, I wrote in my book that I admire her fearlessness, but she isn't perfect. She has made significant mistakes, especially on foreign policy issues. I think that if we look at Congress, uh, we can see that it's a poisonous cesspool of racist, imperialist power mongering. Anyone breathing the air there can be infected by it. And that's true 
uh, even of AOC. Uh, I do continue to appreciate her contributions to the popular struggle for justice, and I hope she accepts the advice she has received to study uh, foreign policy issues better and understand that uh, U.S. wars abroad have all, I said all, been imperialist unjust wars uh, since before she was born. Uh, uh, since I was born, and I'm older, uh, you know, I and I think that we've seen this. It's uh, uh, I do continue uh, active involvement in DSA as a member of the International Committee, and I'm glad to say that uh, the International Committee has focused on NATO as the cause of the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, uh, I. Uh, AOC probably is it finds it too hot to handle. Bernie Sanders doesn't have a very good position on it either. You know, they are really um, caught in the avalanche of uh, unanimity behind uh, Biden and the neocons on this issue. Uh, but uh, it's it's a struggle. I mean, just just putting it in context, uh, AOC even had a difficulty. Um, uh, holding the line on Venezuela when uh, when uh, Trump was yep. dumping on Venezuela, a little bit less bad than on uh, uh, on Venezuela than this time, but still much to be desired. It's a very tough sledding thing, and it's our responsibility as uh, hardcore anti-imperialists, I think, to. Um, uh, to conduct uh, nonstop uh, education, both of those few representatives close to us, as well as the general public. Let me ask you something about these, the revolutionary movements that I think most people on the left really had a, a tremendous sense that this was, this was the avenue. When Batista left Cuba, Fidel Castro comes in and he revolutionizes many, many aspects of the Cuban culture, including its, its healthcare system, which had been miserable and elitist and then was much more open to many, many people. But the most, you know, I, for a couple of years, I did a, a radio show on NBC with Pat Buchanan, of all people. And Pat, it was, yeah, it was kind of a left-right thing. And once I was moaning about something that Fidel Castro had done in response to the LGBT community in Cuba. And I said, you know, in a sense, Pat, he betrayed the revolution. And I thought Buchanan was literally going to fall off his chair. He said, you think that's important? I said, yeah, I think that's central to a revolution. What do you think? Did you feel any sense of betrayal by anything that Fidel Castro or his brother did at the, over the course of their leadership in Cuba? As just an example of revolutionary movements that started out pure and then faltered, at least in my opinion. Well, I think every revolution is a work in progress that's undertaken by fearless and imperfect humans. Uh, I wrote in my book that in the early days of Cuba's revolution, the old 
traditional patriarchal patterns remained more or less intact, even among the leadership. But over the years, uh, the Cuban leadership, especially Raul and his daughter Mariela, uh, came to understand that gay liberation was part of the revolution. And in recent years, educational campaigns on LGBTQ issues have been implemented under the leadership of Mariela Castro. Um, and it's really helped the LGBTQ movement in the US and worldwide uh, to start to realize that socialism and liberation really do go together. Just looking at ourselves at the uh, progressive and revolutionary movement in this country, it's worth remembering that we knew almost nothing in 1959 and 16. You know, it took us quite a long time to wake up too. And I think that we really need to uh, recognize and thank uh, the gay liberation movement, the lesbian and gay movement and uh, everything that has followed in its wake for uh, uh, spirited and continuous effort to uh, uh, win a place in the struggle for liberation. It's a process. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, even in the late 1960s, you know, if a woman would show up at a progressive meeting, um, there would be people in the so-called leadership who would say, can you operate a mimeograph machine? Now, most people don't even know what a mimeograph machine is. But when I was a high school teacher, I lived by mimeograph machines. I was given a lecture to uh college class about a year ago and I mentioned mimeograph machines and I was it was zoom so I could see almost everybody and everybody like what <laughs> but yes it, it is a process it really really is a process and and even uh, you know I spoke to the secular students uh, of, of America convention a few years ago and I deliberately started talking to them and saying you know it was a Saturday night I said it's a Saturday night here I can tell you in 1969 when I was in college we wouldn't have been caught dead listening to some white guy give a speech about anything much less separation of church and state and I said but this is what we do and then I would gradually I'd say you know, first thing we'd do, we'd, we'd go, we'd get some bottles of wine, Matusse wine, you know, because you could turn it into a uh, <laughs> the candle wax would drip down and you could put it in your dorm room, you know, or your apartment. And uh, and I said, but then but then, you know, we'd say, well, let's let's go down and uh, see uh, see somebody at the African-American cultural committee because that's the only time we'd see a black person except in our sociology class and as things got worse and worse and i said and maybe put on a joan Baez record you know she was a woman who said the only good she said uh, uh, girls say yes to boys who say no and eldridge cleaver who famously said the only place for a woman in the movement is prone and by that point, the, the audience, I mean, they were so upset. They could, and then I said, I'm glad you're upset. We weren't that upset when we'd hear that stuff or do those things. You're already way ahead of us. So we do need to make those changes. And I agree with you. One of the things when you look at the environment, the environment, I care about it. I don't know as much as many, many other people do about it. But here's something I worry about. Um, 
I got interested in the environmental movement first with a colleague at the United Church of Christ who uh, was an active African-American pastor, and he was talking about environmental racism, the fact that so many of the toxic waste sites in the United States happen to be located in communities that predominantly contain black or brown persons. And that, that was something. Now, you look at what do people care about in all of the polling that's done, the environment is kind of way, way down the list. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about immigration. They're worried about this, that, and the next thing. Let's say you got something like the Green New Deal passed. Then you have to, though, be prepared for it to be challenged in the courts. And I spent a huge amount of my life worrying about and being a part of the judicial system in this country. It is corrupt now. It has been corrupted, not just by the huge number of people that Donald Trump put on the bench, but I think we saw it perhaps most vividly just a few days ago when this perfectly sensible effort to have people mask on airplanes and other forms of public transportation is declared unconstitutional by a single woman judge, 33 years old when she was nominated to serve in a district court in Florida. She hears the case. She said, yep, it's um, unconstitutional. It just, you, you can't do that. Reads a statute in a w- the way that I think most law professors probably, you know, pull, pull their hair out. Um, She's going to be there for a long time. Statistically, she's going to live till she's 80 and be making these same decisions. If the good bills are passed and you have them considered by a corrupted judicial system at every level, not just the Supreme Court, but all the way down to the federal district courts, where, where do you get what you call in the book revolutionary optimism. Where do you get it? Because I, I think I know what you're talking about. And I give a lot of lectures about the Supreme Court where I say, have you, have you given up on the court? Well, that's national suicide. But there are days when I think even I have given up on the courts. Very understandable. Uh, there's really two questions there. I got, First on the issue of uh, how to actually win a Green New Deal, we got to understand it's going to take much more than legislation and government action to save sure. the planet, especially from environmental racism. Toxic waste sites and industrial pollution like in Detroit make it clear that corporations continue to have much more power than people, and they can get the government to let them off the hook. They can buy judges. They can do a whole lot of things. My own view is that it's only a mass popular movement that can win the change we need, especially now, especially now with the court that we have. And that, like you say, it looks like we're going to have for quite a while. Their timeline is different from our timeline. Uh, In my book, I said my revolutionary optimism uh, considering myself is, is in considering myself part of a widening and deepening stream of expanded consciousness about new and better possibilities. 
the amazing success of our struggle for amnesty together with the defeat of Nixon way back when uh, he was forced to resign in 74, they served as an example to me of what we can do, that change is possible, that solidarity and perseverance can lead to encouraging breakthroughs. And I continue to believe that we can uh, make solidarity and struggle work for us, that it's really the force of life itself and it will prevail. You know, uh, I find myself most inspired these days uh, by uh, the Amazon workers fighting for a union. Absolutely. Right now I'm wearing a uh, Starbucks apron. <laughs> I bought one used and I, I'm just looking to get a badge so it'll say Starbucks union. But uh, these movements and Black Lives Matter along with uh, what Bernie and AOC have done, uh, they're what really give me hope. And, um, you know, I think that it's very, very important not to base our hope on counting votes, mm -hmm. especially not in Congress and also not in the Supreme Court. And as, as much as I do think it's absolutely necessary for us to continue fighting for the right to vote and fighting to vote. We know that the system is rigged against uh, ordinary people, and it's really uh, a much more basic form of struggle that's going to win what we want. But we need to see that even in these very, very difficult times, uh, popular victories continue to be uh, won. And obviously, many times they're also taken away. Minneapolis is a very interesting case in point, you know, so. where uh, uh, George Floyd was killed uh, by a cop. The cop is now uh, convicted. Um, the people, um, you know, won uh, a law to defund the police. That's been reversed and they continue, you know, um, uh, speaking of book promotion, uh, I noticed uh, just this week that uh, my old friend Clarence Thomas, the longtime leader of Local 10, uh, the longshore workers uh, out in San Francisco, is doing a tour. He'll be speaking at a, uh, uh, at a Teamster Hall uh, uh, here in Long Island. Uh, uh, I think next week, promoting his book, uh, you know, which is uh, about the Million Worker March, you know, and, and uh, he gives me in, in inspiration along with Chris Smalls and some personal friends I have that were in the Amazon Labor Union. And what they show is that no matter what goes on at the top, there are things going on at the base level of society that are definitely reasons for hope mm. and optimism. You know, um, I spent a lot of time uh, when I was at the ACLU and later at Americans United for Separation of Church and State working with musicians because I remember how important the culture was when I was growing up, when I was in high school, and the first time I heard Phil Oaks, uh, who unfortunately I never had a chance to meet, uh, I've met his sister, but um, because he said, you know, I, I ain't marching anymore. You know, he's had a song, Draft Dodge Rag, about all of the, uh, all of the uh, reasons why he wouldn't be. 
And then of when my wife and I were in college and we, we got married just a week after we both graduated from college and we, um, we were fascinated by music in Boston. We were both in graduate school at Boston, scholarships and all that stuff. But um, was Bruce Phillips, Utah Phillips, who was a socialist organizer and a marvelous person. And I remember one weekend we went to three different colleges to hear him speak and to sing his songs because he never sings a song without talking about the context of it and the labor songs in particular. I learned more in those three concerts than I did in all of college about the labor movement. Labor history is not taught anywhere in high schools. And now we can barely speak about African-American slavery because that's considered like too, it's too provocative. It's like teaching <laughs> kids how to have sex when they're six. <laughs> so what do you, so how do you do? What do you, if you, if you lose your labor history, then the chances of these burgeoning, we had one of the organizers on this, on this show, David had uh, one of the organizers of the Amazon strike on months ago. But aside from that, where do you start to remind people, not just of the past of labor, but how much labor means and needs to achieve in the near future? How do you do that? Well, it's a good question. Um, and I think that it really does have to come up from below. You know, the big news uh, in the Amazon uh, labor union movement has come from uh, workers in these giant warehouses uh, organizing. They're making the news because they're doing something that uh, the organized union movement has not been able to do, at least not up to now. Just like in the fight, the fight for 15, you know, the, the battles of the fast food workers, uh, it took, you know, constant struggle at, you know, all these small uh, restaurant outlets, you know, McDonald's and, and Burger King and all the rest for even one union, the SEIU, to take them seriously and start to say, yes, we support you. It's coming from below. But of course, um, there are, you know, uh, especially among the unionists of color, efforts uh, to spread it out coming from at least the middle and sometimes the top. The news media is not going to cover it unless it's shaking things up. And so I guess what we have to do is uh, shake things up. You know, it's a good idea. <laughs> Let me see if uh, Mr. Feldman here, David, do you have any questions uh, that you'd perhaps like to ask as we uh, end this hour? I can't hear you. We can't hear you. Yes. Well, you keep going. That is my question. This is fascinating. <laughs> Please continue. Sure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, I think the um, the culture is important, and I think that and then there are certainly people out there singing about revolution, singing about the labor movement, singing about women's struggles that are very, very important. And um, but it does seem that the culture has lost the edge 
that it had in the 60s and early 70s. And that that's depriving, in a sense, this sounds a little paternalistic, depriving young people today of an opportunity to learn through films and television and music what we need to do next to make this a better world. Well, it's an interesting observation. I don't think it's completely true. It's just that it's very, very different from uh, what it was in our generation. Remember that um, in the early and mid 60s, um, the uh, civil rights movement had been going for a decade and um, had generated uh, virtually a generation of people, singers, and uh, of course, uh, I uh, woke up with Bob Dylan uh, and uh, uh, Joan Baez and numerous others. It was, and of course, because it was a youth movement among uh, uh, college kids who were waking up, this kind of cultural awakening was very, very dramatic and very highly visible. I think the the spoken word movement and rap music, rap has been around now for about four decades at least. You know, uh, of course, it surged up through um, African-American young people uh, coming from the streets. It is still very, very visible. You know, it's not my music, I confess. You know, uh, even though my son... Uh, loves it and uh, tried to teach me about Nas, for example, who I noticed recently has, you know, achieved uh, kind of a uh, royalty status. Um, it's it's uh, what you could call uh, the demographics of the movement of young people has changed in a way that makes it uh, uh less obviously visible to uh, a white dominant society, especially yeah. now that the media has sort of gone along with uh, suppressing almost anything that's not mainstream, but it's there. Yeah. Um, I'm not as aware of it as I would like to be, but it's definitely there. You know, I just want to circle right back to where we started because I think there's a sense of, uh, Some people say, well, you know, I would like to be interested in this issue or that issue. But, you know, my my parents, they couldn't care less. All it does is it causes me to get into arguments. Um, I remember very vividly the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which began the open ended invitation for Lyndon Johnson to use any force necessary to start it. And I used to go to Ocean City, New Jersey with my parents every summer. My father, uh, he was an ununionized worker at the Bethlehem Steel. And he got, um, I think, two weeks. One week we'd go to the mountains. And then one week we'd go to the seashore. We always went to the same hotel. And here on a television this August night is this debate about what happened at the Gulf of Tonkin which of course was heavily promoted for decades as an attack on United States vessels by North Vietnamese ships. And of course that turned out to be a complete lie. Even Robert McNamara, the defense secretary during most of that time had to admit 
toward the end of his life. It never really happened. But my, my parents were Republicans. Uh, they were, they didn't think much about the war. They just wanted to make sure that if called, I would go. And I remember my father saying that August night, I said, you know, it's this war thing. And he said, don't worry, it'll be over very soon. And it wasn't. My dad had grown up in the Depression. He swept the floors in a candy factory in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And then when he wasn't doing that, he was uh, playing the piano in silent movie houses, which is actually the last skill he lost when he he had severe dementia at the end of his life. And the last thing that went was his ability to remember how do you play the Charlie Chaplin soundtracks. But, but your parents, too, they were, they were good, hardworking people. Tell me, just for the, I know that there's some younger people who do listen regularly to this show. If your parents aren't particularly engaged with what you're doing, how do you start to talk to them about what matters most to you? and why you want to continue to fight for a just world. How do you start that conversation? Well, I think carefully and respectfully is a good way, Uh, but you also need to make it clear that you're going to do what you feel you have to do. Uh, If you can say that in a way that uh, uh, can be heard, uh, it's good. Um, it's sometimes necessary to put some distance between yes. oneself and home. You know, uh, I can still remember, for better or worse, that uh, I called my parents from Madison, Wisconsin, yes. after I landed, having dropped out of yeah. uh, San Francisco State College and sold my books in order to try and stop the war. Uh, and the same was true uh, when I uh, uh, went to Canada. I called home when I was there, you know, and let them know. And then I wrote a lot of letters. I, <laughs> my mother uh, fairly recently in the last 10 years gave me my letters back. It was quite a volume of letters that I wow. sent to them trying to explain myself, you know, and they listened. I can, I can say that I had kind of a, a pleasant epiphany moment with my father when uh, I came home as part of the McCarthy campaign uh, in, uh, I guess it was in June of 68. And he actually said, uh, you know, I, I'm beginning to see some of what you're saying, I, you know, and that was really quite sure. nice. He, he did uh, acknowledge that he says, I don't think that I'll, you know, I'm not going to, vote for this guy. I'll probably still vote for Nixon. I kind of looked at him quizzically, but that's the way it is, you know, old ideas of and course. do die hard, you know. No. But I think that sticking to your principles and uh, standing up for yourself are things that young people need to do. Um, you know, Bob Dylan said uh, uh the old road is rapidly fading. Get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. And the times are changing. 
and they continue to change. Um, as progressive parents, I think it's uh, our responsibility to um, give our kids uh, as much support as we can, but also recognize that they're going to make decisions that we don't like also. Absolutely. Hey, D, it is a real pleasure to talk with you after all these years. And the book again, in My Whirlwind Lives, um, where, where can people, who's publishing it? Where is it available in local bookstores? Because we'd like to support local bookstores. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, uh, it's published by Guernica Editions, which is a uh, Toronto, uh, that is to say a Canada-based publisher. Um, it will be out in, in bookstores everywhere in June. Right now, it's available from 1804 Books, uh, which is part of the People's Forum in New York, so that uh, anyone can uh, Google 1804 Books and uh, look for My Whirlwind Lives, and it'll be right there. It's also available at uh, half a dozen bookstores in New York and two in Portland, where my mother lives. Um, and I hope that it will, you know, anybody who wants to suggest a bookstore that uh, could get an advanced, uh, uh, advanced copy, I'll be glad to do it. Um, Terrific. It's available in May 1st books in or May Day bookstore in Minneapolis, and it'll be available in more and more bookstores across the country. Terrific. Dee, thank you so much. And uh, it's a wonderful read. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of stuff we didn't get a chance to do. But Dee Knight, it's called My Whirlwind Lives. David, I turn the show back to you. It's your thank show. You. Thank you very much. You're on mute, David. Yes, you're on okay. mute. Oh, okay. thank you, Reverend yep. Barry W. Lynn and D. Please come back. That was fascinating. Really, thank you. Great. Thank you. It's Terrific. great to just sit back and listen sometimes. Uh, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend. Stay out of All trouble. Right. Only uh, good trouble, as you know. Okay. Thank you, D. Thank please you. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We had some technical issues. So if you're watching us on YouTube right now, this is part two. There, there are two parts to tonight's live stream. And let's now go to Joe in Norway for the falafel cam. And then it's time for the professors and Marianne. Hello, Joe in Norway. What are you preparing for us tonight? Good evening, David. Yep, I'll be making falafel. I heard um, Vladimir Putin give a shout out to uh, Israel's longest occupation on the planet, and I thought I might make some protest falafel. I'm not going to be making the Ashkenazim uh, flavored ones, the white pepper and salt. I'll be making a more Palestinian one with a bunch of uh, cilantro, and I use a mixture of these are soaked chickpeas and fava bean. So if you have get the anaphylactic shock from the fava, just substitute that with a, a redal or a, a lentil, all lentil. But the, um, the fava beans make it stick, bind together a lot better. So we, we soak the beans overnight 
drain them, grind them with a bunch of spices like cumin, chili, uh, sesame seeds. We have turmeric and ground cumin. And then I'll fry up a little eggplant with the falafel as well. It's a nice and creamy eggplant. We have a, a member of our community who enjoys my uh, always cooking eggplant. And if I have enough time, I'll be making some some horchata, which is a traditional Spanish drink made from tiger nuts. Just got these in town. Very special treat. Tiger nuts. Tiger nuts. Ow. What what are tiger nuts? It's a rhizome. Um, I'm not exactly sure. It's a, a just the rhizome that you soak in water and grind, and you can make a, a milk out of it. It's the original horchata. So in, in Mexico, they use rice. In Spain, they use tiger nuts. Why do they call them tiger nuts? Well, they're, the Spanish word is Are they dangerous to pick? Is that why they're... <laughs> and the Spanish word is chufas. Okay, tiger nuts. Well, we'll turn the sound down and watch you. I did some defensive eating because you give me a low blood sugar attack watching this. Joining us, it's time for the professors and Marianne. Joining us is Professor Marianne Cummings, a particle physicist, painter, political activist, and parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. Professor Ann Lee, who writes over at Daily Co's over at Daily Co's under the handle Annie Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, who will be joining us for office hours to teach us about the Twilight Zone and Star Trek, and Professor Adnan Hussein, who teaches religion at Queen's University up in Kingston, Ontario. And it turns out that Elon Musk, this is interesting about Professor Adnan Hussein, Elon Musk, avoided military service in South Africa by attending Queen's University. You have to unmute yourself, Professor. Well, it is really loud here. I don't know if you can hear me. I have difficulty hearing you, but we just finished a reading sponsored, I think, by the University of Toronto political science graduate students of Ben Burgess's uh, Christopher Hitchens book. Wow. He read a chapter about his Trotskyism and uh, did a survey of kind of a resume in like 10 pages of left history, which was quite amazing, and then situated uh, Christopher Hitchens' kinds of uh, political ideas and his commitment to socialism and how it sort of faded. Um, talked a little bit about his... Uh, you know, pro-Iraq war stance, and um, Ben entertained a lively set of questions about Christopher Hitchens and his political transformation, how and why that happened, and he made just a lot of really interesting observations about that era of the 90s and 2000s, the turn to neoliberalism, the, you know, kind of how he fit in with the other sort of neocons in promoting uh, U.S. Uh, war, and uh, he was brilliant, and he's signing books and, um, you know, having his adoring fans uh, come and, uh, you know, pay their respects, so it was really quite a nice evening. I haven't had an evening kind of like this 
of some kind of cultural, intellectual event in so long that even if it hadn't been interesting, I would have been thrilled just to have a little conversation uh, with people who are not my students. Wow. And, oh, or, or, on, or on, you know, or via Zoom, I guess, but actual I, live conversation. So Professor Ben Burgess is in Toronto tonight. He is in Toronto. I happen to be coming to Toronto for a little research trip at the University of Toronto. And I saw that it was overlapping with his itinerary he posted on Facebook. And I thought, oh, I got to go out and uh, check it out. And uh, it's definitely well worth it. And um, really, you know, he's a brilliant guy. And um, it's a worthwhile, you know, book, I think, uh, to read. I have a lot of you know, problems with Christopher Hitchens. I met him once right after 9-11. We had invited him to talk about the situation. It was like October or November 2001. And he kind of came out like, you know, in favor of invading Afghanistan. I was sort of shocked. I was like, you invited this guy and he's, you know, really being very demeaning about, you know, the, you know, Islam and the Taliban and yes, we must crush them. And I thought, God, what happened to this guy? And uh, that was just a little preview of the larger pro-war stance he took much more publicly and aggressively in favor of Iraq. But, you know, Ben makes a good case that there's still a lot of his, um, you know, whole corpus of writing that is worth um, studying and preserving. I made the point that I thought in some ways um, he never was the kind of socialist that talked about, like, he wouldn't have been down there with Christian Smalls talking about how wonderful this kind of workers coming together was. He was really more in the politics and culture. Perhaps that's an easier transition to make if you're not as rooted and grounded in the socioeconomic dimensions of socialism. Um, but so anyway, it was fun. It was interesting. Great. It was interesting. Uh, we have our esteemed colleagues here. Anybody want to talk to any questions? Well, I wonder if we can he's, if we can chat with him at some point. Uh, he's he's busy, but that would be so fun. That would be just briefly, what did uh, change Christopher Hitchens to take that? Right word turn. Well, I mean, I think the full explanation you have to probably read the different steps and stages. You know, we have to probably read the book. But what I got from Ben tonight was that um, it was a long time coming. It wasn't just a kind of. Uh, it wasn't grifting. He doesn't think that's a useful explanation. You know, that he just, you know, saw the green and turned to the dark side to feather his own nest. Um, he doesn't think that it was motivated by, you know, Islamophobia and the new atheism, uh, you know, kind of that he, he wrote this book in 2006-7 called God is Not Great. But up until that point, he hadn't really, um, you know, he hadn't, really emphasized that and so he doesn't think it was that he thinks it was just that over the course of the collapse of the soviet union and the victory of neoliberalism he was always a kind of anti-soviet socialist you know international socialism anti-stalin but once you have the 1990s you know the so 
apparent victory in the Cold War, slowly, slowly, it just sort of ebbed away any real confidence that socialism would be possible to achieve in a revolutionary fashion globally, that it just wasn't on the cards. And so he sort of slipped away from being connected with that. Um, and I think what replaced it in some sense is the zeal for, you know, if you can't get rid of these dictators because it's going to be socialist revolutions in the Middle East, well, at least you can get rid of them with U.S. military might. I mean, I think it was absurd move, but maybe that's how it happened slowly over the course of the 90s. Professor Ang Lee? We should ask him. He's, he might be, we might be able to get him to say hi now because there's less people Did around. Can you introduce him. me to him? Should I try that? I'd like to meet Professor Ben Burgess. That would be exciting. Okay, well, I'll You had a question for Professor Hussein? I'm sorry, I'm having difficulty hearing. Uh, David said he wants Ben's autograph. Oh, yeah, he wants his autograph. Well, I did pick up a copy of the book, and I'll get him to autograph it and also give them an argument. So I picked up two. I'll get it autographed and send it to you, David, so you can have his autograph. Oh, my. I, I re if I could just get him on the show, that would be if you could <laughs> get him on well, was, he wasn't on the show today, was he? No, Thursday he wasn't. is usually his day, but obviously yeah. it's traveling. Okay, well, you know, Professor that has to Emily, be remedied. You, you, had a, you, you were wanted to say something. Professor Ann Lee wants you to throw your underwear. Oh, okay. <laughs> Adoring fans, yes. Well, I don't want to hijack everything here, so um, I should turn it back over to the rest of the professors and Marianne for, you know, more uh, quality and organized uh, discussion. Than no, I'm this, able is to manage. this is exciting. You're on location. This is I am. I'm, I'm reporting live. <laughs> I feel next like a journalist. We're sending, you, we're sending you to Dunboss next week, so enjoy this. I can do this uh, well, stay with us, and I'll just have him say hi quickly. Okay. Oh, there's Ben Burgess. Oh, hi to David. Oh, ben Burgess. Hello, big fan of yours. All right, can I hear you at all, David? No. Hi. Hi. I I heard it was a great lecture. Thank you for the autograph. Okay. We're watching Ben Burgess in his natural habitat. Please eat him. And don't poke at him. Okay, thank you. That's great. So let's go around. Let's find out what Professor Ann Lee would like to talk about, and Professor Bick and Professor Cummings, and hopefully we can get back to Professor Hussein. This is fun. <laughs> we should just tell, tell Burgess that Charlie Kirk says hi. <laughs> anyway um, what are you writing over at the daily Kos? what's on your mind uh several things it uh uh i there was a a recent court settlement uh, uh for the guy who sued his university uh for david uh, we can't hear ann are we having the can you hear me i can hear I can you hear but you. 
and and it's, it's almost a whisper yeah we're yeah we're having um problems today there are technical problems i have everything cranked up right everything looks okay on my end okay and i do hear you but you're coming in soft so don't know what else I can do. I have all the pots turned up. Okay. Can Why you don't aim your microphone at your face? Oh, it's right. It's right here. <laughs> oh, you know, maybe the, uh, Professor Bick is right. Maybe if you point it towards you. Well, actually, I know that I'm, it's at the correct angle. Oh, okay. It's at the correct angle. Believe me. Okay. Uh, uh, but now we can't see you. Move to, uh, <laughs> Professor Bick, and I'll see if I can do something else. No, no, I, I can hear you, and I think Professor Cummings, can you hear? No. You can't. No, no. Uh, why don't I uh, uh, log out and come back? <laughs> log out and come back. This is one of those Emily days. Emily has gone soft on liberals, and I want to honor Ben Bourgeois. Ben <laughs> Somebody okay, so let's turn to Professor Bick. What would you like to talk about? Uh, hello, David. Um, I really enjoyed your discussion with uh, Professor Nolan uh, Higdon earlier in the show. He uh, underscored the importance of democracy to a cohesive and enduring society. Uh, I think he also pointed out that any elements of democratic practice that we now retain um, are under threat from demagogues, oligarchs, and a for-profit media oligopoly concerned with making a buck rather than supplying information necessary for the people to make an informed choice. Right. Uh, you know, we're told, starting when we're very young, that America is democratic. Uh, we're told that America is exceptional, due in part, at least, because of the self-governing uh, population. You know, we, we engage in self-government. However, uh, if popular policies are not turned into laws and government programs, despite years of overwhelming support from the people, then the system is not democratic. Uh, you know, one example of this would be a workable, affordable, accessible health care system for all. Uh, if a minority can consistently stymie the will of the majority, that is not democracy. If the most powerful elected official in the national government can win office with a minority of the vote, that is not democratic. Americans refuse to recognize the simple fact that the people who wrote the Constitution of the United States did not intend America to be democratic. Uh, those people, the, the founders, as they're often called, um, knew that many Americans who had just fought a bloody revolution against the mon monarchical British Empire wanted to govern themselves. But the founders and their class felt that the masses were dangerous and not up to the task. Only men of property could assume this task, they believed. So they created a republic with a veneer of democracy, 
but with many anti-democratic institutions and practices that make the rule of the minority likely and the manu- and the rule of the majority less likely. As long as that minority is whom? As long as the minority is the, yeah, the wealthy and powerful, exactly. Um, so, for example, the institution of the Senate, its members were originally appointed by state legislatures. They were not popularly elected at all. Uh, and although we corrected that with an amendment many, many decades later, um, we still haven't corrected the problem of the Senate, which is that it's not representative, that it's based uh, it's not based on population. It's based on giving an arbitrary number of representatives based on a geographic subdivision of the country. Uh, the Electoral College, the ability of the president to veto the will of the majority of both houses of Congress, the Supreme Court with judges that are appointed with lifetime tenure and who quickly asserted the power to invalidate acts of Congress as unconstitutional. Constitutionally pr protecting slavery for decades, which denied millions not only the right to self-government, but denied them their basic human rights. America's first-past-the-post voting system and single-member districts in the House of Representatives produced a two-party system that passes power back and forth between two parties that have served the wealthy minority for at least 200 out of the 233 years that the Constitution has been in place. When compared to parliamentary systems that use proportional representation to construct their legislatures, presidential systems have lower rates of voter participation and lower levels of political efficacy of, felt by the population. Most Americans do not believe that their voice has any impact on political outcomes, and they are correct. Numerous political science studies have demonstrated that the will of the average American has next to zero impact on policy. The Bill of Rights should be retained and augmented. The preamble of the Constitution, in my view, should be retained. But the rest of the Constitution should be examined very critically. The U.S. Constitution was not written by God or gods. The hands of the authors of the Constitution were not guided by deities or a deity. It was written by men full of human frailties and with material interests to protect. They also did not have the benefit of knowing what democratic practices and institutions were best. For example, proportional representation was unknown at that time. It is long past due to democratize the U.S. Constitution based on what we know now are the best practices of democratic politics. And I say this because I think it's important to have a vision of where you want to go. And you should have basic demands, you know, that the will of the majority of people is important. And sure, you can have constitutional safeguards you know, that it's that are put above the majority's will, uh, you know, things like basic human rights. Uh, most of the things that are in the uh, the Bill of Rights, uh, I 
I wouldn't include the Second Amendment because I think that's been interpreted very badly and has not worked out well. Uh, but beyond that, the will of the majority should be respected. And I think that's the reason we're, we're not having people participate, why there's so much and, you know, and uh, apathy, political apathy and disengagement from the political system. And I think it's also the basis of the, the rift that uh, has occurred between Americans because they know that whatever they do, it's not really going to change the system f significantly in terms of outcomes that are going to be important to them. So they engage in this, I'm on this team, you're on that team mentality, and I want to hurt the other team and protect my team. That's not healthy for any society. Right. Professor Anley, Professor Marianne, would you like to respond to that? I agree with you, but I have a couple of questions. But look, Professor Marianne, Professor Lee, would you like to? Well, there's a there's a couple of things to say to that. I totally agree. We are not a democracy, not even close, not even a democratic republic anymore. And I think the Princeton study that came out in like, what was it, 2014, pretty much nailed that down. It doesn't matter who's in office. It's the needs of the top 1%, top 10% to top 1% are basically what prevails in terms of our legislature. And there might be rhetoric, rhetoric will fly back and forth and- uh, Explain you know, that study, it's because it's important. Uh, I can't, I don't think I'm the person to explain, but they should, basically what they did was that they looked at, you know, they, they, were, they looked at the polling, I believed, of what the majority of people wanted. And then they looked at the outcome and this is over many, many years. And then they looked at the outcome and, and they, and, and they uh, I think they broke it down between lower income, middle income and high income. And I don't remember what high income was. They looked at every there. bill that's been passed. And okay. yes, and they looked at all the legislation that had been passed and they looked at uh, you know, what it was, the outcome was favored by. And they found out that just consistently the top, the high, the high income group pretty much consistently got what they wanted. And the demands the things that were important to the lower income group, and of course, healthcare would be one, education reform, you know, like loan, student loan debt, no, it doesn't, it didn't even matter what it was. It was that basically whatever was of much more importance to the lower and middle class did not get passed just continuously what got they decided passed. that this was an oligarchy by every definition this is by the definition it's just like the people at the very top they get what they want doesn't matter what the makeup of the you know of the house or the senate or who's in, in in the white house there might be some marginal changes but you know overall and i think i used to think that it did those marginal changes did matter but but i think overwhelmingly what what overrides that when the uh, corporatist Democrats get their way is that we put off like Medicare for all and Green New Deal by years, decades. So you have to like, yeah, some people might get a little benefit like in the next couple of years, but how many people will die over the next 10 to 20 years because we don't have a decent healthcare, universal healthcare system in place, that kind of thing. 
So that's, but the other thing I wanted to say was that, um, you know, uh, we all know that it's money in politics. And I got into a lot of trouble years ago when I was still in the Democratic Party, at least nominally, when my uh, old my old buddy from University of Michigan, I said, bought his seat. We had John Lash was running for Congress. He ran against Congress, uh, ran against Denny Hastert and did respectably well, so much that Hastert was afraid and at one point was polling within single digits. So we have this very talented guy. He is unified. He's built up the party in the 14th district, which had been Dem uh, Republican. And the Democrats decided to go with Bill Foster because Bill Foster had $2 million of his own money to spend on that primary. And I just was loud and clear, this is completely corrupting the system when you guys do that. But we want to win. You'll win with John. But, you know, the reality was that when you have a self-funding millionaire, everybody's friends can get jobs. The campaigns are well-financed. This is, and I don't see the Democratic Party breaking out of this at all, at all. I mean, there was a little bit of glimmer in two, in, in two respects. One was Bernie Sanders' campaign. There was real hope there because he was cracking through this, you know, decades watching, you know, people fight about abortion on one hand and guns on the other. In the meantime, everybody's getting poorer and poorer. I saw the possibility that Bernie Sanders could, uh, could bridge that too. When the Justice Democrats came out and they were raising money, not from big donors, but small donors, I saw some hope there. Yeah. But they're just, they haven't been a real opposition to Democratic leadership and the money that flows through Democratic leadership basically determines that we will never get, you know, Medicare for all or, you know, any action on, on pharmaceutical and drug prices or Green New Deal or student loan or anything. You know, we had, uh, then I'll go to Professor Ann Lee. Uh, we had Congressman Marie Newman on Monday's show. And I hope everybody gives to her and I hope everybody votes for her. I asked her for this group the question, you're a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and they are not supporting Nina Turner. They're supporting Chantel Brown, who isn't progressive by any stretch of the imagination. And her response was, well, the charter of the Congressional Progressive Caucus is we never go against an incumbent. <laughs> Our hand, and I went, oh, okay. And I accepted that. Our hands are tied. This is what the Democrats do. They say, our hands are tied. We, we you know, I'm Pramila Jayapal. I run this caucus. I'm a progressive. But my hands are tied. I can't support Nina Turner. We have to support incumbents. My hands are tied. You know, we, we have the filibuster. We can't get rid of the filibuster. We have these arbitrary rules that we must follow. And our hands are tied. You can break every rule. This is a lawless country. The Democrats hide behind rules and laws in order to justify not serving their constituents. The, the Congressional Progressive Caucus should be supporting Nina Turner. I don't care what's in your charter. They can also change the charter. Yeah. Our 
hands are tied. You have to check with the parliamentarian first. I mean, you know, January 6th showed that there are people out there that really want to tie their hands. Right. They brought, yes, they brought actual handcuffs. Yes, plastic handcuffs, zip ties. Uh, They better wake up. This is destabilizing the country. This is serious business. And for them to, you know, be hiding behind this nonsense. Oh, but look at our charter. Well, change it. You're the progressive caucus. Then do something progressive. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Ann Lee. No, I I agree completely. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's low, but we'll 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 work with it. I'll just yell louder. Okay, uh, I'm used louder to than usual. <laughs> no, I, I agree completely. In fact, the question you asked was a question that regular mainstream media should be asking these politicians in their regular uh, interactions. I mean, I I didn't realize that there was a charter constraint within within the caucus to to control that, and in fact, that should be the front end question when they talk to aggressive on the air. Right. Even on MSNBC. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back. Go go ahead, Professor Bick. I mean, you know, one would think that the purpose of a progressive caucus is to affect change in the Democratic Party in a progressive direction. If you have a rule that's adopted by the progressive caucus that says we can't challenge. incumbents then you're not going to change the composition of the party right that's insane we can't challenge somebody who's not progressive in fact we're going to let her in to our caucus and they should have real uh uh tests for progressivity within that progressive caucus it shouldn't be open to anyone because they find it politically expedient for at that time to call themselves progressive they actually have to have a voting record that shows they are progressive. Yeah. Well, Nina Turner, voting starts in Ohio when? In two weeks? May 3rd is the primary, but you can start doing mail-ins. I think. No, it's now. You can start. Yeah, you can start early voting now. What are we saying? I have seen no polling so far. I mean, I've been looking for it, and it's uh, if, if it exists, I, I haven't seen it. Major newspapers are endorsing Nina Turner. So the Cleveland um, Plain Dealer, at least in Cleveland, and and uh, she did win. She won in the actual cities of Cleveland and Akron. She won last time. It's just that they had a big get out the vote among Republicans on the Chantel Brown side. So, and some billionaire, you know, like oil dude is dumping million, is dumping a ton of money in the race. The cryptocurrency guy. It's a cryptocurrency guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But he's like, doesn't like uh, Nina Turner's stance on Green New Deal. Um, You know, it's, it's not one thing, it's another. Right, right think that now I've, I've been in contact with some of the people that I work with and I said that they 
because I really felt they needed to be more aggressive last time. I think maybe because she was so far ahead in, in the primary season because of name recognition. But, you know, when you have a Democratic machine and a ton of money, you can play catch up really fast. And now what, you know, uh, the week before, you know, in two, in two weeks, things, weather's getting nicer, people might be getting distracted, but it's also a good time to get people out to vote. And I'll tell you, it made, it made a difference. It's just that I wish that Akron, Ohio office was a lot more bustling with people in and out than it was. I, I know they wanted, they said they felt they had to spend a lot of money on, you know, on media because of some of the garbage that, that was being spewed up. But I said, ultimately, it's getting people out of the house and voting. It's going to matter. So people, I am probably just get in the car and go a few days, like I did last time, you know, just canvassing in neighborhoods. And sitting outside, if you're willing to do it for, uh, for 12 hours and talk to people as they go to the polls, you'd be surprised how many Democrats, Democratic primary voters, it was in, in Akron, it's the same around here, that just vote because it's a habit. And if somebody engages them, you could change their minds. So. How horrible is Chantel Brown? Well, I mean, that depends on who you are. I mean, if you're like Nancy Pelosi, I mean, Chantel Brown is like perfect. She's, uh, she presents well, she's articulate, she's, uh, you know, she's photogenic, she's black, uh, she can raise a lot of money. But, you know, I, I don't like even making our whole wretched system about the people. I mean, it's a systemic corruption that, you know, somebody has to deliberately kind of gum up the works to stop. And, you know, speaking of which, where is the squad? I mean, there's nothing stopping individual members of the squad from being very vocal in supporting and endorsing Nina Turner. I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think it's 13 million people that AOC alone has. I mean, it's many millions for Rashida Tlaib and millions for uh, Omar. I mean, they could be mo they could be mobilizing their Twitter followers to help out, to make phone calls. Where are they? Right. Now, why are they saying AOC abandoned Christian Smalls? No, I don't think, I think what it was is that there was a key uh, meeting that she had promised to attend earlier on and that they were all, you know, like hoping and waiting for her to attend. And then she, uh, she didn't attend it for some reason. It, it sounded like kind of a lame excuse that they were fearful for her safety and this and that. And she wasn't doing in, uh, she was not doing in-person events at that time. Yet two weeks later, she's over at the Met Gala. Right. So it's not that, it's, it's just, you know, um, ultimately, as Christian Small says, you know, we didn't need her or anybody. We did it ourselves. Right. 
I mean, of course, politicians will try to run to the top, to the front of the parade. But, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that uh, AOC campaigned on back in the 2018 that she's kind of disappointed a lot of people on, like taking the ruckus to the house, like sticking it to the leadership, like taking over the party, you know, forcing the vote. <laughs> she, she was advocating that as a, as a strategy. So, you know, I guess the bottom line is when you're, it doesn't matter the individuals when you're, in, unless you're willing, willing to really disrupt, which means you don't have a long-term career. You may be a one-term person if what you're planning to do is really disrupt. But um, if you're trying to like work the system, you're not gonna beat Nancy Pelosi. She's good at the system. And then for that matter, you're not gonna be, you're not gonna beat any of these right-wingers either. You know, they may, a lot of people may look stupid. They may sound stupid. They've survived that system. They're really good at it. Mm -hmm. Is it possible Bernie speaking Sunday out on Staten Island for Christian Smalls? Could he be a liability to union voters? I think less of it because Bernie Sanders, now, uh, I actually, I was listening to Christian Smalls uh, a couple of days ago. Um, someone was talking to him about his appearance on uh, on Tucker Carlson's show, and it's just like, look, I mean, and I, I actually watched that, and he did not take the bait and try to make it about you know attack on AOC or anybody else. But he pointed out to the people that look, you know, where we're organizing is mostly Republican. Staten Island. Yeah, they're in a mostly Republican area. So you can't be dissing people because of who they may or may not have voted for. Uh, I have seen Bernie Sanders up in Kenosha in that town hall about five, five years ago um, with, with Chris, Hayes, Chris Hayes with a room full of Trump supporters. And for some reason, Bernie Sanders can connect with people because he doesn't he doesn't do the political thing. He doesn't, he's not, doesn't, he genuinely doesn't regard them as basketball deplorables or whatever. I mean, right. he hears people being frustrated and angry and he actually has empathy for their pain. So I think someone like Bernie Sanders going out there will probably have a different effect on people than, um, you know, just about anybody else in the Democrat. Well, he's not a Democrat. That's probably why. But I mean, I think he really cuts through that partisan stuff more effectively than anybody else. So, yeah, I think. Staten Island, just for people who aren't from New York, Christian Smalls started the Amazon Labor Union. One warehouse voted to go union. I think it was last month out on Staten Island and now another warehouse fulfillment center with 2,500 workers across the street. They vote next week, I believe. And Bernie is speaking Sunday. Staten Island is one of the five boroughs and it's the only borough that consistently, with the exception of Max Rose, uh, consistently votes in Republican Congress people. It's Trump country. But we're told Bernie is you know, can win over Trump supporters. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. Uh, what would you like to talk about, Professor Ann Lee? Well, there's, uh, uh, I, can you hear me okay? Yes. 
Oh, okay. Uh, there was just a settlement in a, uh, in a speech rights uh, case for a, a professor in Ohio. He got uh, a settlement of $400,000 uh, uh, because he stood on his right to be able to misgender one of his students. To uh, It's a pronoun issue, and it will be interesting to see whether there will be a countersuit uh, or whether there's a, uh, this is going to be used as a precedent elsewhere. That's probably what, what is more concerning. It's a public institution, uh, State University in Southern Ohio. The fellow's, the professor's name is uh, Nicholas uh, Merriweather. And in uh, 2018, uh, he decided, because he uses the Socratic method in his course, to... Uh, refer to the, the student who is transgendered by their name, but to use a, uh, a, a male pronoun. And uh, the student comes up to him after the class and says, well, you know, I don't, uh, this is my preferred pronoun. And he, he resists that. And he claims that uh, he was, he uh, got belligerent and, uh, the issue is in a public institution. The problem was that a he was censured, threatened, as it were, by the central administration, the dean's office, and I and his uh, his litigation was primarily on being uh, that his rights were, he was being discriminated against because he had the right to do whatever he wanted in the classroom. Uh, I think what and he was supported by a. Uh, uh, a special special interest group, um, and and so I I think if this goes any further, which I don't think it will, I think one of the interesting problems, of course, is that uh, it, the student obviously couldn't afford to litigate by herself, and the institution essentially this was the settlement. So I don't think we're going to hear about it anymore. But it is an interesting uh, precedent that. And especially since it took four years, and I don't think he's really going to get that much out of the settlement. He'll probably mainly go into lawyers' fees. But uh, it's being touted by a variety of, of folks, including the New York Post, for example, that this is, uh, this is a big deal. I don't think it is a big deal, and, and primarily because it isn't a public institution, and probably because the, the central administration overstepped their bounds. But it does state... It does suggest that we're going to go in this direction further on. This is another example of what you know is happening in Florida and Texas, etc., in terms of uh, trying to react against individual rights of students. And I wrote a thing on it su suggesting that it was really simple, uh, simply a matter of disrespect to disrespect students. I mean, they have an equal right in the in the classroom to. For, for simple, basic communicative dignity. And to uh, deny that, to, to deny that in an incredibly reactionary way, and we could say that it is transphobic in that sense, and I don't know if there's going to be litigation. You know, usually the, the way people get driven back into the closet is that, you know, if you, if you, if you make a federal case out of it, that is, you know, if you actually try to, to litigate at, a, at another level, uh, you can actually expose yourself to a lot more hatred. And I think it's an interesting problem, just as a matter of, of a, a thought experiment. 
I mean, what if students on that campus started to refer to, uh, uh, you know, Nicholas Merriweather, even though he presents clearly, or at least as clear as one can as male, to refer to him as Madam. Uh, so, <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I, I just, I think there's plenty of room for, for performance art at uh, Shawnee State. But I, uh, other than that, I think we're going to see a few more of these in the future. To what end? What is the what is real here? Why is he doing this? Oh, I I do think that he had a. Uh, I mean, he claimed that he was doing it for for religious and philosophical reasons. Now, of course, he's uh, his own motivations. Of course, were I'm doing it for religious reasons, and and there and the um, Sixth Circuit stood behind him. On, on saying, well, you know, the central administration is being oppressive here, and and this suggests that uh, his his speech rights were being infringed upon because uh, they were forcing him forcing an ideology, and this easily challenged. I think this could be taken much further, but I think it's a question, as Marianne was talking about, and as Jonathan was talking about, that it is a question of power. Had you know, had the student had a, a lot more resources behind them, I think this would have turned into a much different case. And if it were a much different kind of university, with all due respect, is Shawnee is a very small university, only recently became a university. Uh, it, there's and it's Southern Ohio, with all due respect, uh, it is more rural, etc. And and I think that there's a variety of other contingencies. The reality is that constitutional rights still depend on class and you know other kind of intersectional uh, categories I, I think that's the real problem here and you're going to see a lot more of this 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 is not the first time this has happened there's a variety of, of universities that have had these things happen and they eventually never quite reach because no one wants to make a federal case out of it but i, I think at some moment we have to do that this is no different in in that sense than the harvard affirmative action case which is problematic, as Emil has pointed out. These are all sort of asymmetric pieces of power when, when you can see this. And, uh, you know, I don't think we've heard from the students since then. We, in fact, I, I don't recall we actually know her name. So it, it, this is a whole variety of other, you know, uh, unintentional consequences. Uh, I, th I just think it's amazing that... Um he's not willing to refer to the student the way the student wants to be referred to. I mean, and, and the idea that he's doing this because of a religious reason, he has no right to impose his religious views or practices onto students. At a public university. Or any, any university. Does he? I mean, well, it, the establishment clause would go into effect if, you're using public money. Right, but even at a, at a, at a private university, why would, this, why would the professor uh, refer, I mean, what, what if he said, my religion prevents me from using your name? I'm gonna make up my own name to refer to you because my religion doesn't like the name that, that your parents picked. Isn't that a similar case? I remember a hostile environment was being created. A hostile environment. 
Yeah, I remember uh, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was in graduate school. I mean, professors, because university, the people were being um, strongly encouraged to refer to uh, female students by Ms. instead of Miss, or in some case, Mrs. if they knew her. And, uh, and I remember some professors used to like spit out that uh, pronoun like, oh, Ms. Cummings. Do you have any, any intelligence at all on this issue? You know, they would spit it right. out like they would say it, but they would say it with some kind of contempt. And I do remember at one point saying, yes, ma'am, back to them. Or, you know, it's like, what are you going to say? You just throw it back. At you're, you're behaving like a jerk. So I don't need, I don't have to be respectful for you to you. And it was just, I don't know why people, particularly in academic situations, I mean, there's certain certain uh, personalities that because they have authority in their classroom and they have a certain amount of privilege, it just kind of goes to their head and they feel like they can jerk people around with that. And, you know, it's kind of toxic. Um, you know, we, only, had, yeah. we, we had a Nolan Higdon, Professor Higdon on the show. He's written a, a book called Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. And we're talking about how do you dial back the, the hostility and talk to somebody like this professor. Is it Professor Merriweather? Is there any conflict management being done with somebody like this? I try to think what does he really want why why make it harder for somebody than it already is i suspect that a lot of parents or people who are lgbtq don't want to be lgbtq they don't want their kids to be lgbtq and they fear that a quote unquote permissive society makes it easy for somebody to become who they really are. And if we make, if we make it harder for them to be who they really are, they will deny to themselves and others who they really are and live a miserable life of uh, self-loathing. But that, that part they don't figure. They just figure that if we make it, it's become too easy to be LGBTQ. So that's what's causing people to, I, I think they believe that though, right? Yeah, I know it's, it's preposterous. It's like saying, oh, well, you know, if uh, we tell people that there's such thing as heterosexual sex, teenagers might actually start having urges Right. You know, like, <laughs> right. You're trying to like, you, you know, you're trying to you, uh, question somebody's basic biological nature, and yeah, you can suppress it, but it's kind of like a trying to keep a beach ball underwater. Sooner or later, it's just going to go <laughs> shooting out. You know, it's like right. Even more strongly expressed, and uh, but you know, by the way. Um, on the other hand, the other side of this, uh, I was at, uh, Aurora had a uh, wonderful gay pride parade in 2019 before the COVID. 
And some woman spoke at the uh, Indivisible Aurora and the progressives of King County were one among the sponsors of this. And I always thought it was nice. You know, I wanted to show solidarity, but I didn't really appreciate the importance of having something like this until a mother came out and spoke about her teenage daughter. And, you know, how the, the distress that her teenage daughter felt the, uh, being out and, you know, never feeling safe, the nightmares, not being able to sleep. And then suddenly when you have like the whole community, including the chief of police, she was wearing, you know, rainbow balloon butterfly wings and everybody else. And even our mayor was out there, Richard. Um, it makes people feel, she said, the difference that she saw in her kids. This was after the parade. We were, you know, just having a meeting about assessing what we could do next year. And she just was saying it was night and day with that. So for the first time, my daughter felt safe because she saw the whole community out there willing to march, you know, all the authority figures willing to march. And uh, um, yeah, so I think that's particularly you know, my, my clashes with sexist professors, you know, I, I was privileged enough coming from middle class and, you know, come the, the education I had before, you know, I had an attitude by that time. But for people who are genuinely vulnerable, which is a lot of trans kids, a lot of, I mean, it was funny because uh, just parenthetically, there was a, a, a colleague of mine who was kind of a, he was gay, but you know, it's kind of like Dr. Smith on Lost in Space. He was a uh, white, uh, he was a South African or British South Africaner and, you know, quite a character, but I didn't understand how traumatized he was. My boyfriend takes one look at him one time and he goes, oh, he was in the army? Oh my God, I know exactly what happened to this guy. You know, he was in that man's army and because he was gay, I mean, he got pummeled so badly, he was in the hospital for a week. And I, I, I remember my friend telling me bits and pieces of that story. My old boyfriend just pieced it together instantly because he had been in the army, but at a, well, he had been in the nuclear Navy, but at a time when gays were beginning to be accepted, it was the days of, you know, right before don't ask, don't tell. And he was a submariner. So that's a very, very particular group. But yeah, he said he remembered growing up on an, army base and the way his father and his dad's friends talked about sissies. I think that's the term they used. It was dangerous. It was unbelievable how cruel people can be, you know? And still are. Yeah. And still are. Yeah. Well, anyway, what, what uh, would the, you like to talk about? Well, the only thing I wanted to say, um, uh, uh, except for something about Nina Turner was, uh, you know, so there was this brouhaha about the legislature in down in Florida, you know, yanking um, some privileges away from, from Disney World. Apparently, Disney World is its own, like, branch of government. And I'm going, I mean, so everybody is like, hey, look what they're doing to Disney World. I'm going, wait a minute. A corporation was effectively its own kingdom. I had Imagine the same yes, I had the same reaction. Like, what? <laughs> so and special anyway, tax status. Um, yes, and all that kind of stuff. And I got I mean, really, I mean, if there's anybody who had their domicile, you know, in the 
kingdom of the mouse. I mean, were they subject to their laws? I mean, it was, anyway, it was just a kind of a weird little interesting tidbit. Um, and now that Alan Minsky is coming up though, I want to, uh, I want to ask him if he has had any word about polling in uh, uh, Ohio's 11th congressional district about the primary coming up. And Professor Annalee wrote in the chat room, mouse sovereignty. <laughs> <laughs> they have their own currency. It's cheese. <laughs> recognize the American guy. Anyway, that was weird. Polling is hey. a great, it's a great question. Um, uh, I, I haven't, I have not been privileged to hear, I, I haven't heard of any. I'm going there in uh, eight days, well, seven mm -hmm. days, seven and a half days. <laughs> not even that, I'm flying out of LAX at 6 a.m. next well, Friday. Let me, let me just do one thing here, because we have to, the most important thing here, as we all know, is the falafel cam. Our, yeah. And so let's go to Norway. Oh, Joe is standing by. And tell us what you prepared, because it was, I think you've outdone yourself. I had to eat defensively. <laughs> Professor Harvey JK shows up right when the food is about to be served. Perfect timing, Professor Harvey JK. The food is about to, so Joe, tell us what you made. Yes, yeah, so I, I made uh, falafel with a chick made of chickpeas and fava bean with uh, cilantro, cumin, garlic, uh, chili, uh, some other seasonings, uh, fried eggplant, nice creamy fried eggplant to go with it, and then a tiny sauce underneath, and a quick pickled uh, cabbage with sumac, and also red onions and cherry tomatoes. And we can see see how the uh... wow, that looks really healthy too. Is a, I have seen so pretty falafel since uh, that little Palestinian restaurant over in Tallahassee at Florida State University. Wow. That is pretty. And Joe, what is in that little dish on the side there? Oh, this is very special. This is, uh, we, we just received um, medial dates from Palestine. So it's Ramadan, all of the, the immigrant grocery store owners are packed with fruit and, um, and it's wonderful. So this is um, a medial date that I took the pit out and stuffed with walnut and sprinkled some rose water over. So you can smell the blossoms. A fantastic, nice little dessert. Wow. Wow. And office hours tomorrow night, what do we have? For yeah. Yes, we, we have, um, <clears throat> let's see. By the way, last night, last office hours was, for some reason, maybe I was, I don't know, but it just popped. I, I, a friend of mine and I were going, this is really fascinating, the whole thing. Uh, so what, what do we have? Yeah, so we have the fast lane um, at 9.30, and then around 10 o'clock we have... Um, Rodrigo with apparently some issues with the left, followed by uh, Professor John and his guided tour of um, the Twilight Zone. And then Walter is going to discuss the, some, show some insights into uh, Russia 
Russian life today from a few different uh, video bloggers. Right. And then uh, we have, looks like we have some two more openings and uh, Professor Adnan the next morning with the uh, Jewish Muslim parables and philosophical fictions. And again with uh, Professor John, trekking with Professor John, look into the classic Star Trek. And the Valley Vox, uh, followed up by Valley Vox, the cinema, Sin Femme Summer is here. And um, I'm not sure what the film is by Repo Man. Repo Man. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you, Joe in Norway. Thank Pleasure. you. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Let's go to Dave in PA, who did a brilliant, brilliant lecture on creativity. And it was interesting when Professor Marianne, who is a particle physicist, joined the conversation. Dave and PA is a, a woodworker, a carpenter, and you were describing how you designed a, a staircase for a, a beautiful home. It was fascinating. It really was. Thank you. Thank you. You were there. I didn't know that. And uh, what do you have? What are you going to be building today? Uh, this is a walnut uh, vanity top. Uh, I just need to uh, flush out this molding here, get my final shape in these two moldings and sand them out so it's pretty quiet. I'll probably be scraping on this top here too. Right. And Chad? He's chilling over there. Ah, okay. Yeah. He's just stay, stay safe, Chad. We'll, we'll come back to you in about a half hour. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Read Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Co's. Annie Lee, and did we tie? Yeah, we tied on the Jack Nicholson quiz today. It is now time for Minsky and Kay. Alan Minsky joins us in Los Angeles. And Professor Harvey J.K. joins us in Wisconsin. Misky and K, they go together like PB and J. Like Thelma and Louise, like Mac and Cheese, like Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in LA, Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say, cause they're Mitsky and Kay. Harvey 
writes books about democracy. Miss King King. That's right. Miss King King. They got lots to say. Professor Mike Steinel. Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K is the author of countless books, Pick Up, Take Hold of Our History. That is a great book that I enjoyed. It's a collection of his essays and sermons, sermonettes, and lectures. Well, May 3rd, Ohio, Nina Turner is running for Congress and she's got the Harvey JK bug. She has really embraced Professor Harvey J.K., and the two of you have written an economic bill of rights. Let me, usually we start with Professor K., but let me start with Alan Minsky because Chantel Brown just got an endorsement, a million dollar endorsement from a cryptocurrency billionaire and the Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsed Chantel Brown, how is it looking for Nina Turner, who we support here on the show? You have to unmute yourself. What what are the numbers showing? Because voting has started. Uh, yes, it has. Um, well, I don't know about that on um, poll numbers. I should could find out or try to find out. I mean, I'm sure that uh, obviously the funding, uh, the quarterly report that Nina turned in was much less spectacular than last um, campaign. I have to tell you, Nina, of course, raised uh, still probably most more money than just about any of the challengers that we're endorsing. Um, if anybody has more, I'm unaware of it. And then, of course, she also gets a lot more media than almost any challenger. Um, I mean, there's some very close races. Obviously, Jessica Cineros has, has gotten some press. That's, that was even helped out by the fact that Quare was had the FBI investigation, which unfortunately the FBI decided to exonerate him, which is terrible. Uh, it's also a little bit unbelievable. And then, um, yeah, there's one up in Oregon where a very conservative uh, Democrat is being challenged by a progressive. They, that's getting some press, but nothing nothing like Nina can draw. So um, Nina, I don't know of any numbers, but here's something that's key to this race. I know people looked at the district and didn't think the change was considerable, but it did include um, the uh, some more diverse and uh, neighborhoods in Cleveland where Bernie Sanders actually did very well. Um, when the district did not include Western Cleveland, I believe in, in really Eastern Cleveland, going to the Eastern suburbs and down to Akron, all of Akron came out. Now the whole entire city of Cleveland is in. Well, the parts of Cleveland that are included were parts that Bernie Sanders won. And um, one of the interesting dynamics of the Cory Bush race was that Cory Bush actually lost to Clay among black voters um, and that the most liberal portions of the white 
metropolitan, white St. Louis metropolitan area were included in that district. If anybody knows St. Louis, University City, places like that, Central West End, that had voted overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders. And that was what carried the result for Cori Bush. And it actually wasn't even that close. So now that Nina has um, a very liberal slice of uh, the city of Cleveland uh, included, um, I think that does mean she has a good chance, especially if she can get turnout. And on top of that, um, Nina, I think, got some criticism last time for the number of people who came in from outside, very much outsiders in the communities where they were where they were campaigning. I think that dynamic will be less pronounced in the new districts within the um, within the uh, district. So I think Nina's got a real good chance. I do think uh, the problem right now is that a ton of um, super PAC money uh, is available now for to support Chantel Brown. It's all being dropped starting now. It really didn't hit hit the billboards and hit the airwaves until this week. Now it's hitting hard. Chantel Brown, Congresswoman Chantel Brown, is she as bad as we think she is? Yes, she's pretty rotten. She is in the uh, New Democrat Caucus and the Congressional Progressive Caucus. I think one thing that everybody here who does play inside the Democratic Party on the left really should take to uh, Pramila Jayapal and Mark Pocon and say, if you're in the New Democratic Caucus, you're not in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And, you know, who do you think ideologically the people who are in both caucuses are really with? Do you think the people who fund the New Democratic Caucus are getting fooled? I don't think so. Right. Professor Harvey J.K., your thoughts on Nina Turner? Oh, uh, why is he? Oh. Can you hear me now? Now we can hear you. Your thoughts on Nina Turner. Yeah, I don't know what happened. My my microphone is plugged in, but something maybe I came to it late. So I'm now doing using the computer built in microphone. OK, so last week when that broke about the Progressive Caucus backing Chantel Brown, I, I was I was so pissed for about 48 hours. I just I could not believe it. And I I contacted uh, Nina's campaign manager, who told me that the only way to explain it is and Alan later confirmed it by way of a conversation he had with some people that that if you're in the caucus and you request the endorsement, you get it. It's just a standard rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it really ra- what it really raises you know my my ang- really incites my anger, which Alan sort of referred to is that the Progressive Caucus would include folks who would be members of a decidedly non-progressive caucus. And, you know, in fact, I will tell you that I retweeted somebody on how the leadership had been letting in and recruiting all these people. And I, I heard from a member of the caucus directly, you know, and uh, what am I going to say? Right. It was nice to think that I mattered to somebody at least, but it's just outrageous. You know, you know, I've been talking to people around the country about Nina in particular, and there is a feeling and I I mean, this is really serious. There is a feeling that not only not only do we want her to win because of her progressive credentials, but if she doesn't win, then the struggle for for the progressive caucus 
will not be the same as a consequence. I mean, if you consider right now, the caucus has got plenty of non-progressive folks, or at least not the kind of progressives that we need. You need someone like Nina Turner, even if she'll be a, you know, a freshman congresswoman, you need somebody like that who really has guts and, and a certain kind of dynamism and, you know, a certain vision. I mean, she embraced unreservedly the 21st century economic bill of rights that we proposed in part, of course, because Bernie Sanders had done so a few, you know, had done so a few years ago, but it's the case that she's committed to it. If one goes to her website, the very first item on her website on, on issues is the 21st century economic bill of rights. And it's, it's crucial to have someone like that join the more lefty members of the caucus and provide a certain kind of back, I don't know if the word is right, backbone, a certain kind of stamina to that caucus. I said to Alan, the shame is that, uh, that their numbers are probably not such that they could literally take over the, the whole caucus, but it is the case. It's really, really crucial. Um, you know, there, there are folks who are leading that caucus right now you know, Jayapal. Jayapal. And also, is there a, is, what's Kana's role right now in that? Ro Kana? Yeah. Alan, do you know? You're, you're muted, I, Alan. Do you know? Uh, you know, he's up there, but, you know, Jan Schakowsky has a high up symbolic sounding position, but I don't think she's insignificant to its operation. And then the same with Ilhan Omar, actually, I think is the whip um, for the caucus, but. You know, as Harvey said, it doesn't. It is the largest caucus. This Katie Porter is the uh, deputy chair. It's we love Katie Porter. Pramila Jayapal is the chair. The whip is Elon Omar. Where's the leadership here? I mean, these are three great. Uh, it's, th it's three me, of my favorite Congress people. Uh, Pramila is the transformative figure inside the Progressive Caucus. Um, it, she came in. Uh, she has a background in organizing, and uh, she really has driven the caucus um, like it's never been driven before. Um, and I think she deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, however, I, I, <laughs> she made some decisions recently that I haven't been that happy about. She folded um, on Build Back Better because she yep, got outflanked. Right. Well, she got outflanked by the Congressional Black Caucus. They made they went ahead and made a deal on that. So. You're, you're you're muted. I'm muted. Yeah, no. you're not, she, at least you're she, not she probably, she probably. I hate to say it because I am in general a big Pramila Jayapal fan. I think she probably was the key player that they persuaded, unfortunately, and she did fold. Had she not folded, I think she probably could have garnered the twenty to twenty-five votes to hold it up. To hold up the the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Yes, I believe that. Yes. So, so then she's not a leader, is she? Yes, she didn't. She didn't. She couldn't take the heat right there. So it's not leadership. I mean, to me, leadership is saying because we had Congresswoman Marie Newman on Monday show, and I asked her about the the caucus, and she said what Professor Harvey J. K. said. It's written into our charter that we don't go against the incumbents leadership is saying you know what i don't care what the charter says these are self-inflicted handcuffs 
we don't it's not we can change the rules as we go along and uh, well i mean you know in, in terms of in terms of the progressive caucus endorsement bernie sanders is more famous than the collective fact of the progressive caucus bernie is endorsed nina turner to go back to nina to go back to the jayapal thing of course it's doubly bad it's not just that she folded she folded and they were they the, the only the six members the six core members of the squad nobody else a lot of friends of the family there from pda from jamie raskman to Pramila, of course, uh, Pocon, Jim McGovern, they all didn't stick with the squad. The squad were proved correct. They were yeah. proved correct by what Manchin and Cinema did. And Build Back Better is dead. It, it, in that version, it's completely dead. In some now fully watered down version, um, if, if anything, the only thing that could go forward would be a very watered down version. I mean, it's worth revisiting briefly. Yes. There were there were two tracks on infrastructure. One was Build Back Better, Bernie's multi-billion-dollar social safety net, and then there was what Joe Manchin and the Republicans want—the bipartisan payoff to corporate America, so they could rebuild the internet, roads, some bridges, old-school infrastructure. And Manchin needed that bipartisan infrastructure bill. And the idea was, well, if you need it, you also have to give us Bernie's Build Back Better. And well, I want to say something. I, sh I should say something. The Democrats because... caved, knowing yeah, that he know. was going to stab them in the back and oh, not give them Bernie's Build Back Better. Let me, let me say this about about Pramila. You know, maybe she tried to get the votes and she didn't have them. Right. I mean, there there aren't that many of the House caucus who are willing to go against Pelosi. Um, but it just was my recollection. Was that it Pelosi who Pelosi was the one who pulled Build Back Better and said, live to fight another day, even though a lot of Americans won't. There, there you go. But the thing is, right. is um, I can't say for sure. I shouldn't say like I have authoritative knowledge that Pramila Jayapal did not try to scrounge 25 votes. Um, but uh, is, I think it went pretty quickly. And if she did, that was some rapid fire effort to organize some votes because the folding happened pretty quickly. Very quickly. Remember, it was within about, I mean, it was a day, there was the results. It was the Virginia election that happened right after the, I mean, who the hell responds to a friggin' Virginia election? to change the course of, you know, the, the entire operation of the U.S. Congress on by far the most important package of the entire Congress by an order of a magnitude, um, you know, just because of a friggin' election where they run Terry McFucking call up. You know? So, Professor RBJK, you're, you're, this is old history. The Virginia went Republican and- What's the old expression? As Virginia goes, so goes the nation? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Professor Harvey J.K., am I wrong or is Joe Biden the worst Democratic president in your lifetime? Worse than Carter? I, this is this is no, no, Carter. Carter is still the worst. Carter is still the worst. You can hear me, right? Yeah, I'm just. <laughs> what, what is, That's Jimmy Biden, Carter, JC Biden, to us. Biden pulled out of Afghanistan. I give him credit for that. 
Look, the American Rescue Plan that, it, that initiated his term for all of the inadequacies around the, the $15 an hour minimum wage, the American Rescue Plan was a, a re, was a really good plan to launch a presidency, okay? And it's, it had to do with, you know, the ensuing debacles and failures. But Jimmy Carter w- was far worse than, than, than Biden. I mean, much worse. I mean, you're talking about a president who turned his back, utterly turned his back on the, on the movements and the energies that placed him in the presidency. I mean, really. And with Biden, the, the National Labor Relations Board is active right now. Okay. The big question right now when it comes to labor um, is, no, is, is equally how much energy Biden will afford labor initiatives from the White House and the administration, but also what the hell labor does. I mean, you know, the big question is, will labor rise to the occasion of the independent labor organizing that, that we witnessed, the worker organizing that we witnessed in Staten Island, you know, Chris Smalls and the uh, Amazon Labor Union. Um, and that's going on elsewhere across the country in Starbucks. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see that kind of grassroots stuff. And undeniably, labor is still up against the wall. But the fact is that it, it may well remain up against the wall because the labor, the leadership of the AFL-CIO is way behind the workers themselves. No, I don't mean behind them as in bolstering them. They're just way back there while workers are out, out in front. You can bet leadership of the AFL-CIO, you know, the traditional giant unions, they're worried about the jurisdictional questions and they're worried about a whole host of things, right? Um, they're not rooting for Christian Smalls. No, apparently they're not, right. And, um, and, and what they made fail, what they're not realizing is that it's not just Christian Smalls and a New York, you know, multiracial coalition that, that, that won, that, that is the new labor movement. And if they're, if they're gonna stand in the way, then, you know, the labor movement will split. It will split as it did in the 1930s. Back in the 30s, you had the American Federation of Labor, and then you had the very progressive unions, the left unions, which included the United Mine Workers, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Um, uh, anyhow, you had this, co- this set of unions that ended up you know, creating this committee inside the AFL, and then ended up essentially, well, being pushed out, but really leaving the, the AFL. That became the, the CIO, and they remained separate up until 1955, I think it is. And um, you, I could imagine a split. There have been splits along the way. Keep in mind, the Teamsters are not right now inside the AFL-CIO. And, and I'm not, it's, I can't remember if the SEIU is, is in or not. I, I just don't remember. They definitely made peace with them, but they may still officially be out. Yeah. So the thing is, I mean, labor really just it, it needs new leadership, but it also needs a leadership that is re- that is representative and responsive to these energies that workers themselves are, are exuding. I mean, it, it was exciting. I mean, the Amazon outcome was exciting. Yeah. You know, people say, well, that's New York. Well, it doesn't fucking matter. It was New York. They beat Amazon. Amazon invested heavily. They took they, they pulled out every stop to, to, to try to block it. And they're doing the same, you know, across the street in the, in the, what is it called? The distribution 
I think it's the AFK distribution. Yeah. In defense of Joe Biden, as you say, his NLRB is. By the way, I'm not saying he was that he's a really good president. What I'm saying is Jimmy Carter was far. He's the worst. Right. Alan Minsky. What I want for this country. doesn't seem to be what most Americans want for this country. Is this country progressive when you go out and talk to people? I'm not sure why you're saying that right now, David. Um, um, I think um, there's incredible, look, Harvey and I are working right now on our third uh, uh, in the three-part series on the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. And this one, we um, cite the polling now, as probably everybody listening knows, over the past 45 years, one subject has consistently been r- ranking as the top concern for Americans. It's called the economy. And they're not saying that because they think the economy is going great. You know, so across even classes in the United States, uh, you have a sense of, uh, um, you know, just insecurity due to the economy and a sense of being uncomfortable about how the economy is operating, how it's going to impact their lives. That's the macro economy. So, um, um, no, I don't think uh, the American people are anti-progressive on economics. They want a different economic uh, compact uh, contract with the, with the society. I think they would like something that would provide the kind of security in what is now sort of a fantasized mid 20th century American prosperity, uh, where you'd have job security, you'd have things like guaranteed vacation, you'd have uh, clear access to healthcare in a way that's affordable, uh, education wouldn't bankrupt you, wouldn't send you into debt, rather, uh, housing was affordable. I think all of those things would be very popular with the general American public. Now, I do think the American public is, um, is, psychologically invested in the ways in which the United States is a society in which people believe, you know, if you take initiative, you can start a company and you can do really well. And that's certainly part of the fabric of American mythology. But I think most people feel that they're blocked in any real realistic way in which they could do that. Um, So, you know, neoliberalism is always going to construct fantasies like cryptocurrency bubbles and shit like that that people can buy into. I don't think too many people are swayed by that right now. I was reading a speech by Bernie last night. He talks about an industrial policy that America insists that the government does not influence the commanding heights of our economy because an industrial policy goes counter to the free market. Bernie said, however, we do have a sub rosa industrial policy, that there is an industrial policy. What is our industrial policy? Well, did he explain what he meant by that? Because I would agree with him, but I'm not sure what he meant well, by he that. Did, yeah, mean. but but I figured I would let Professor Harvey. Yeah, I guess it has to do with the rich getting richer and, and the rest of us sort of hanging out. You know, it's funny, this industrial policy question. Yeah, I, it's a, I can now imagine what was going through the minds of my, you know, when I was a college student, the senior, the very senior professors through my grandparents. I mean, I've, I've only now come to appreciate the fact that I really have seen a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. 
and I can you do mean shit. Yeah. I mean, look, in the late 70s, in the Carter years, I I recall very distinctly initiatives that included, you know, front page articles in Business Week, a whole host of people, the more liberal sectors, you might say, were actually calling for industrial policy in America. Right. Because they knew that Japan had an industrial policy. Other countries had industrial policies. But of course, the, the Reagan new right did not want an industrial policy. They didn't want any kind of regulation or higher taxation to make these things possible. But it's a, and, they and it was the government. They say we don't want the government picking the winners and the losers like cylinder, <laughs> right? That, right. Uh, well, we'll, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and you know, this whole idea of the free market is utter bullshit. I mean, it's, that alone is just utter bullshit. There is no such thing as, we know there's no such thing as a free market, okay? Well, pretty much. Okay, these, these big corporations depend on, uh, I don't like the term, but, you know, they depend on corporate welfare. You know, they depend on the laws that are enacted so that they can call in the police if workers get out of hand. They, they depend on all of the things that government will afford for security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as long as they're the ones who benefit from it. They don't give a damn about free market. Look, you know, it's funny. It's, it's a trivial example. So I, I, I happen to have Disney Plus, okay? And when you go onto Disney Plus, it's like <laughs> you've got... Sorry, sorry I laugh right now because let, of the Florida news. What that might let, let me make clear the Disney Plus. The yeah, right. Talk about irony, right? Talk about irony. When 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 Disney World was created, it was outrageous that they got exempted from the laws of the state of Florida, and now it's the it's the far right, the fascists are coming to to take away their independence and and tax exemptions. Well, yeah, so you look at on this opening page, by the way, the only reason I have Disney Plus is my wife really wanted to see Hamilton, which Disney itself was was gonna, you know, broadcast. So we signed up and then I got sort of into various kinds of things that I find kind of curious. Didn't it have the Beatles movie? As the Beatles movie, I just watch it for the lessons in grooming. Well, but you look across the, and it's like, they've got the Marvel universe, they've got uh, Star Wars universe, you know, what kind of free market is there when, when literally all of major popular culture is in the hands of one corporation, right? I mean, mass culture, if you like, this is fascinating, this, this free market stuff. Well, you, you guys are, can I, Harvey and I just, uh, we were working on this thing, and I, I, I wrote this one paragraph. Now, it's not, industrial policy, because when we think of industrial policy, we think more of supply change, not the service sector. And I think healthcare, broadly speaking, is, is seen as more service sector than industrial. But here's what I wrote about neoliberalism and in, this about regulation, but it could be industrial policy. In practice, government regulation still occurs under neoliberalism. Only it serves the interests of the powerful, not the people. Healthcare is a prime example. Corporate greed became so excessive, so unpopular with the public, that the government intervened and designed a program, the ACA, that protected their clients, the healthcare industry, from their own worst instincts to ensure their continued profitability and the maintenance of their political power, while the average person continued to overpay for inadequate healthcare. And I think that our industrial policy, of course, I mean, I don't know, industrial policy there's, first of all, there's the big component of it. It's the military industrial complex. 
that's obviously pretty nakedly apparent how that operates. But of course, the, the main thing is the, is the servicing of financialized capital. I once ran into a woman who worked on a wing of Arthur Anderson, and she boasted to me that her job was that hedge funds would contact them, and then they would contact corporations and explain if they could get their balance sheets in order, they could be included in these hedge funds, which would, of course, boost their stock valuations. Well, what did it mean getting their balance sheets in order? Offshore their labor or cut their costs, basically their workfare cost, their, their their workforce costs. And uh, you know, that's yeah, largely how our industrial policy operates, you know. Didn't Arthur Anderson go the way of Enron? Isn't Arthur Anderson out of yeah, business? It, it died then at that point, yeah, at the at the two thousand and eight uh implosion. Well, we have to wrap it up. Professor Harvey JK is the author of countless books, including Take Hold of Our History, as well as FDR on Democracy and the Fight for the Four Freedoms. Go buy these books right now and follow him on Twitter at Harvey J.K. Alan Minsky is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. People should go to the PDA website and donate money and support all the progressive candidates who are out there. Thank you. I look forward. It's good to have you back, Professor Kay. I was going to say, it's good to see you, David. Very good. Good to see you. Alan, also good to see you. Well, Gilbert Gottfried, I think one of the funniest people who was ever born. I think most people believe Gilbert Gottfried was the one of the funniest people ever born. Passed away last week at the age of 67. His comedy underwent a transformation in the early aughts. After 9-11, he told some jokes. I think in between the towers coming down, he told mm -hmm. some uh, off-color jokes. And then changed his act. I think he changed his act. Uh, it became really prominent when he appeared in a documentary called The Aristocrats, directed by our next guest and an old friend of mine, and it's great to see him, Paul Provenza, among many, many accomplishments, directed the incredible movie, The Aristocrats. Welcome back, Paul Provenza. Happy to be back. Uh, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little put off by having to follow, you know, two people that know what they're talking about. about well, you know, Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried being dead for or against? <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here. You know what? The country is polarized. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Gilbert was a genius. There's no two ways about it. He was Absolutely. a genius. Absolutely. You know, whether you like whether you like what he did or you don't like what he did, you have to recognize that he was completely 100% singular. There's never been a comedian like him before him, and there won't be another comedian like him after him. He was a one as far as I'm concerned. Right. When did you you're uh, a little problem with your connection. When did you meet Gilbert? Oh, I met Gilbert when I first started out in comedy. You know, I actually used to see 
see him performing at the improv when I was in high school. So he's only uh, three years older than I. And he started doing stand-up when he was 15. Yeah. So when I was 15, I was going to the improv as a, as a patron because, you know, they never checked IDs back then. You could sit right. there and order tequila sunrises all night. And um, I would go and I, and I would bring some friends of mine that I know had a really good sense of humor that I thought would get Gilbert. And almost every time that I went, Gilbert was on because Gilbert and he told me that he only found this out recently. But they used to save Gilbert from when they wanted to clear the house because he was so different <laughs> and people didn't know what to make of him that. You know, if they had 15 people left and they wanted to send the wait staff home, they put Gilbert on to clear out the room. Uh, so and I would stay as long as, you know, as long as the show was going on. So I, I saw him almost every time I went to see him when I was a kid. And then uh, when I by the time I turned 16 or 17, I started hanging out at the improv. And that's when I met Gilbert. I mean, he was there every night and um, just so funny. I mean, I can't think of another comedian that everybody quoted constantly. Everybody would just suddenly go into a Gilbert bit. They were so out of left field. And, you know, he started doing impressions. But what he did with them, you know, when he started doing them, we're talking like the early 70s when he started performing and he would and was doing impressions. But that, that was back in the days when, you know, people did impressions like, well, you know, Kirk Douglas and Humphrey Bogart and John Wayne. They all went to Hollywood High School <laughs> and their classrooms must have looked something like this, you know, and they do that. Well, Gilbert was doing things like, you know, Bob Dylan getting a, heart, a haircut from Floyd the Barber on the Andy Griffith show. You know, <laughs> he did my favorite impression of all time, which I've told him about. My favorite impression of all time was Ed Sullivan going to the dentist, <laughs> in which he doesn't, even do, he doesn't even do an Ed Sullivan impression. So it's kind of so like a right Drew that, Friedman. It's kind of like Drew Friedman. His cartoons. Yeah, you know, I don't. I wouldn't call them cartoons. I, I I'm just sorry. Like Drew Friedman would draw Ed Sullivan going to the dentist. Oh, I guess. I right? guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, the Ed Sullivan going to the dentist bit was so funny because, he, he, like I said, he didn't even do Ed Sullivan. He would just go. Ed Sullivan going to the dentist, and then he would mind the dentist with the drill going. Which is just brilliant. But, you know, you were talking about his, his, you know, transition into becoming really, really dark. But that streak was always in him. It really? Was always in him. I remember one of, one of his very, very old, old bits was absolutely brilliant. He would just suddenly go, you know, I ran into Jackie Kennedy at a party. <laughs> and I wanted to chat to her. And I have a little icebreaker I like to use at parties. And I said, Jackie, tell me, can you remember where you were and what you were doing when Kennedy was showing <laughs> always had a wicked dark streak and we're not going to do the Coretta Scott King joke do not do that one which one is that no 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 not for the not for this show but that you know uh but uh yeah he was he was something else 
and he was adorable. Just really, I mean, really inventive. And he had this, you know, there was a poetry to what he did. I know that sounds, that sounds a little overblown, but there was poetry. And like when he tells the story about, you know, uh, he, he did, um, and I don't know how much of this is on tape anywhere. Cause I even, I told him shortly before he died, I said, you know, you are of all the comedians that I've known in my lifetime, you are without a doubt the person who has created and thrown away or just completely forgotten about more material than any other comedian I know. I mean, he just hours and hours of stuff that he just stopped doing and just moved on. Um, but he used to do a thing about, you know, he was, uh, I, I, I was in my bed sleeping and I heard a noise on my rooftop and I went upstairs to the roof and a little spaceship landed on the roof. And I'm, I'm not doing it justice, of course, because, and a little tiny ladder came out and out came these little green men with their space suits on. And they came right up to me and they said, Ben Gazzara is a good actor. Why doesn't he work more? So completely out of left field. Uh Again, I'm not doing it justice, but you get the gist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody will replace Gilbert. He's irreplaceable. And I've been going down the rabbit hole on YouTube, watching him do local television to promote his gigs. And that is a sight to behold. I've never seen him doing local television till he died. Are you there or did you freeze? You froze. The the gods are, the technology gods are not being kind to me to uh, tonight's show. We, We had to shut down the live stream and I don't know if Paul is coming back and all right, why don't we do this? Why don't we go to Mexico? Let's see if Rodrigo will. You had your hand raised, and I haven't called on you. And how are you? What are your thoughts on Gilbert, Rodrigo? I I felt guilty for liking his comedy, but I hear he was uh, a better person as a parent than he was as a comic okay we'll come back to you i think we have paul back so we'll come back to you rodrigo brings up an interesting point paul provenza are you there yes the miracle of his family those the beautiful wife and these spectacular these adorable his family was spectacular it's so nice to see that Gilbert found that kind of love because, you know, if there was anybody in his younger days when you said, oh, this, you know, this is somebody who's going to spend his latter years in the, uh, the uh, home for old irrelevant comedians, you know, <laughs> it would have been Gilbert. Um, uh, by the way, I, I got a room re- uh, reserved there. Um, there. Uh, but yeah, he, um, his family is beautiful and i don't know if you've ever seen the documentary about yes. him gilbert but it's really if you don't just fall in love with him as a person after watching that you know you're crazy um the genius but, of uh, gilbert was he allowed himself to be loved unconditionally that he found dara 
and and he he allowed himself to be loved unconditionally and that's his that's his genius well you know it was funny because uh um right around the time he started seeing dara uh i took him to lunch if you had lunch with gilbert you take him to lunch and um on the we were walking back from the deli and he was like i have to stop in here i i i want to get some lipstick for this girl and uh he goes into like fw woolworth's <laughs> and he can't decide between the two dollar fifty cent lipstick or the three dollar fifty cent lipstick <laughs> and i have to convince him gilbert go with the 350 trust me on this <laughs> <laughs> but it was really it was really cute he was like you know he, he went with the extra he went with the 350 so you know this was a big deal as you well right. know but, yeah but um uh, uh after his, uh, uh he came out to los angeles to do um i was doing a series of set lists for uk television and i brought gilbert out to los angeles the series out here we shot it in los angeles uh outside of san francisco and here in los, uh, los angeles san francisco and london and i flew gilbert out to la to do the series from here and i hadn't seen him in a long time we just had a quiet moment i was like gilbert how you know how's dara how are the kids and oh great are, are, you, are you digging the kids yeah 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 congratulations on the new kid yeah that's great they're, they're a great audience he said you know <laughs> and i said um gilbert are they funny? And he said, he leaned in, he goes, to be honest, I can't more for their early work. <laughs> he was just so funny. And he loved to laugh too. He would laugh just as hard at, you know, oh, yeah. and at his own jokes too, which made yeah. it just beautiful. Yeah. But so he used to do this Murray the agent character, right? Where he would do his own like inner monologue it would be like uh he was basically uh murray the agent was the comment commenting for the audience that didn't get gilbert and they go like i don't get it this is not comedy i don't know he comes up here he does what a joke where's the joke a joke is a setup and a punchline i don't see the jokes here and then you know he would go back to his act and then he'd come back as murray again and put the glasses back on as murray he'd go I, I just don't see it, you know, and then he would and he would refer back to Murray. And then at some point he would like take a cocktail napkin and put it on his head like a babushka and he would and, and the same glasses. And he'd look up and he'd go, has anybody seen my husband? He's a handsome fella. That was a lot about comedy. And it was just so unpredictable, right? Off the wall and silly and funny. But at the same time, it was so smart. I mean, he absolutely was right. a genius. I mean, right. he, can you think of anybody, well-known or not well-known, can you think of anybody in comedy that you could say, oh, Gilbert's kind of like him? Right. I can't. Right, right. You know, even, John even Biner, I John Viner maybe had a, <laughs> maybe. a bit of... Maybe. A little. Maybe. Mm, a little. Quite, but did you ever hear John Biner? No, I've thought about Charlie, Charlie Callis a little bit maybe, right. but... Right. There, there's, there's a big, there's more differences between them than there are similarities. I agree with you. Uh, you know, I mean, even like some of the Robin Williams, you go, oh, that's Jonathan Winters sped up, you know? It's like you can see the influence, where it comes from. But Gilbert was influenced by 
everything funny he had ever seen and nothing at all. That right. those were his influences. Like right. he, just anything funny that he had ever thought of or ever, ever seen, you know, he absorbed and it turned into Gilbert. He, right. he was just remarkable. And a sweetheart, a sweet, gentle soul for all of the darkness and, you know, all of the, you know, controversy. He was just, he was so childlike. It was, it was beautiful. I'm, I'm really, really saddened to lose yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going down the rabbit hole on YouTube watching him and it's breathtaking how, how original he is. Check By the out, way, um, there is a, if you, if you do a, a YouTube search for Gilbert Gottfried and set list, you'll see a clip that we put up from the British series, which has never aired here. Um, and uh, Setlist, for those people that don't know, Setlist is a, a format uh, created by the brilliant Troy Conrad, uh, where a comedian goes up completely unprepared, and we give them a set list, one topic at a time, while they're in front of the audience. They see the topic for the first time when the audience sees the topic for the first time. And it's just like, it's like skydiving for comics. Mm -hmm. And you get to see the wheels turning and really get to identify what's this person about, you know, it's really great. Anyway, Gilbert did that. And um, he got the topic. Follow the Thomas Edison's. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and his, the topic that he has, there's a clip of is um, Thomas Edison's testicle experiments. Fucking hilarious! <laughs> so check that one out, and while you're in your Gilbert rabbit hole, I will. I will. I think uh, it's a duck hole with Gilbert. It's a duck hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the George Takai roast at the at the Friars Club is relentlessly yeah. horrific. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, you know what? I haven't seen it in a long time. But did you? What I what I did watch recently was: Did you see when he was the sign language interpreter for Marley Matlin at the Donald Trump roast? That is worth googling right okay. now. Do it right now. Watch it right now with me on the. It's really funny. Okay, uh, let's talk about the aristocrats. When you you asked countless comedians to tell one joke and when Gilbert was telling the joke did you know that this was hands down going to be the one everybody remembered you know when we first when Penn Gillette and I first we've been talking about doing that for years we've been talking about wait but we never really thought of it as an actual movie we actually thought wouldn't it be funny if we got like a bunch of comedians to just do the same joke you know their own versions of it and it would be like a fun thing we can show friends you know um and we talked about it for so many years it would become like a running gag and then one night i was out in vegas with him sitting at the pepper mill and um he just said, listen, if I commit to this, can you commit to this? Like, can we actually do this? And I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And um, the first, you know, two people that we talked about, because we would always talk about how funny I had heard Bob Saget do it, fucking around with friends. 
Uh, I had heard Gilbert do it. Pan had heard Gilbert do it. He may have heard Bob Saget do it, whatever. But the, right off the bat, we said, you know, look, if we get Gilbert and Bob Saget, you know, that's going to be hilarious in and of itself. And um, so, we, you know, we kind of knew because we knew Gilbert and we knew Bob and we knew the two of them would go the distance and they wouldn't hold back. And they're just so freaky funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but we were surprised by some amazing, like so, Sarah Silverman, I think is extraordinarily funny in it. Uh, you know, and she did a kind of meta thing where she's actually the girl in the act talking about the act, you know, <laughs> and um, and Billy the mime. I mean, who would have ever thought and, and Eric Mead doing a you know a card trick of it. And just there were so many funny, funny iterations of it that we just kept going. We just kept going and doing more and more people. And we shot people for like almost five years um off and on i was leaving the country and coming back and was you know working in vegas and we'd get together every now and then and do some more shooting and call some more people whatever and it's funny because after every um interview we did uh every time we shot someone and would say to me hey uh you think we got anything here and i'd say i don't know i just don't know and go to another bunch do you think we got anything i don't know <laughs> and then we did carlin and we came out of Carlin's office and he goes, do you think we got anything? I went, yep. I knew right away that we had something after we did Carlin. I knew that he had given us a spine where, you know, where we could work from. So it was really, I mean, you know, it was, we never set out to make a movie. We never thought it would be, you know, a full length thing. We never thought anybody would be interested in it except, you know, lunatics. Um, and it just turned into something else, you know, but his, his philosophy of it all, all along was, you know jazz he was like you know we get to hear the same we get to hear musicians do their version of the same song and there's standards that everybody does you know and he goes you never get to do that with comedy because comedians don't want to do the same thing that other people are doing right well if you know and that's what set us off on it and we knew and there aren't a lot of jokes that are you know totally free there's not a lot of jokes where the setup and the punchline are the same and then you could just got an open wide open field in the middle there's not a lot of them like that right so yeah we just landed on that one and and gilbert you know it's an interesting thing because people think people think that the movie was inspired by gilbert at the friars roast for hugh hefner where he did the 9-11 joke but the truth of the matter is if you see the movie before you see gilbert at the friars roast gilbert's doing the joke around a conference table which is where we shot him in a hotel. And we did that like, you know, a month or two before 9-11. Really? Yeah, maybe maybe even longer. Um, so you, when 9-11 hit, you were thrilled and dancing. We have, this is a big opportunity. No, but that's the funny thing is that, you know, Gilbert inadvertently gave us a third act. Mm-hmm. That we had, we had been working on the movie and we shot Gilbert and we knew that he was hilarious and we knew that that was going to be funny. But then after the Friars roast, I got wind of the fact that Gilbert did the aristocrats joke there. And, um, you know, we believe that the reason he went to the aristocrats joke was because he had just spent a whole day doing it with us. And it was like fresh in his mind or it was just, you know, he had gone to such depths of depravity with us that he thought, I'm in a hole. I may as well just dig it as deep as I can. Right. What's the most you know depraved thing I can do right now? Oh, yeah. The aristocrats came to his mind. So um, we had already been working on the movie, you know, before he had done that roast and before that whole incident happened. Um, but without realizing it, he ended up giving us a third act. 
<laughs> it gave us almost a raison d'etre for, you know why we talked about this movie for 90 minutes? <laughs> so offensive humor. Is the aristocrat's joke offensive? It's dirty, but is it offensive? You know, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't even know if, it, you know, like, I don't even know if you get away with it now. I mean, if I tried to release it now, I don't know. I don't know. Everything's different now. And, and, and people don't seem to be able to let go of, of all sorts of stuff <laughs> yeah. to just enjoy a joke anymore. You know, I mean, I mean, is the, is the joke racist? Well, sometimes is the joke sexist. Sometimes does a joke involve pedophilia? Yeah. Sometimes does a joke involve bestiality. Sometimes does a joke involve horrible diseases. Sometimes I don't know. <laughs> it's, you know, but that's the beauty of it is that, you know, you can go into something that's so, you know, dark and ugly if it were real. And it's just about joy and light, you know, uh, when you're just having fun. But you, you got to have the right mindset. I don't know. It's a, it's a, I don't know. Can you understand anything now about what, what is? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have a room filled with 300 people. And one asshole is heckling and, and they tend to dictate the comedy. One person is saying, I don't like this. And 299 people are going, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take our orders from you instead of the comedian. That's what's except, happening. Except that's happening on Twitter with millions. Yeah, but Twitter isn't real. And half of Twitter are bots. Twitter doesn't make money. It's not profitable. Twitter is a mirage. Yes, but I'm, I'm talking about in terms of like, you know, comedians who do something that's misunderstood. It gets, you know, repeated and, and, and reframed over and over and over, you know, and it becomes like, you know, well, you need to be in the room. You know, Bill Burroughs used to say it's like, you know, one person with a blog can suddenly change everything because you said something that pissed off one person, but that person right. has a blog and the blog gets picked up and blah, 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 blah. And so I don't even know what's offensive anymore. I, I don't even know. I mean, uh, and you know, I think it's, I think it's good that we uh, are uh, aware and, um, um, you know, trying to, uh, deal with things like misogyny and racism and homophobia in comedy. I think that's great. I think that's a conversation we should have been having, you know, for pretty much all of civilization. Um, I, I think that's all great. But somewhere along the line, it seems like a lot of people have foregone the fact that it's just art. It's not real. You know, I mean. Well, uh, pedophilia is wrong which is why it's funny. I uh, going out on a limb here. Really? <laughs> well, that's the thing that you see, that's also, you know, racism was funny to people who were past the conversation to people who like, you know, uh, let me make it easier. You know, you make a Hitler joke because you make Nazi jokes. Nazis were like the go-to. You know, well, now there's actual Nazis and they're right. actually doing things, you know, that matter. So that's not so funny anymore. And, you know, it's just sort of the edges have shifted and moved and 
It's it's crazy. Did you ever think that in your lifetime you would have to be dealing with Nazis? Did you ever think that Nazis would be a thing again in your lifetime? Yeah, I work for John Stewart. <laughs> uh, the uh, although Hitler was an original thinker, uh, <laughs> that's not fair. So. Well, what was the thing? Uh, what, what was you saw the thing that Jimmy Carr got in trouble for, right? Well, Jimmy Carr gets into trouble though. That's his thing. You saw? Did you see the joke that he did that got got him into a, a, like a lot of trouble what? recently? Uh, how much he, trouble can he get into? He's beloved in Great Britain. What, what kind of trouble? Well, now I don't know. Something not so much. No, I, I'm sure he'll overcome it because there is no such thing as cancel culture. That's just that's all a canard, right? Uh, but. Um, uh, yeah, he did a joke about how, you know, uh, people always talk about, uh, you know, how Hitler, um, Hitler killed six million Jews and he killed this and he killed two million Romani. And he goes, but people don't talk about that because people don't like to talk about the good things he did. <laughs> That's funny. It's hilarious. But, you know, you and I know right off the bat that that's absurd. Right. But you know, somebody, a lot of people heard it and said, oh, that's that's really horrible and it's really offensive. Well, he probably shouldn't have done that. He knew better. I mean, there are things you, you kind of know that that joke is going to upset people. You know, it's funny because I always wondered, like, what group did he, you know, did what groups did he not, did he choose right. not to do before he did, landed on Romani? Right, right. <laughs> People have a right to tell any joke. People also have a right to be offended by any joke. And I think this is what keeps comedy going. The conversa This is the conversation we need to have about comedy and what makes it so interesting. What is funny and what is offensive? And I hope we never resolve this. This is not to be resolved. It's an ongoing, fluid conversation. I got to tell you, in my lifetime, I've never seen comedy get as much attention as it's gotten lately. And I've never seen it really understood by so many people as a real art form. Like that's huge. That's huge. Right. I'm 64 years old. When I was a kid starting out, hanging at the improv, nobody used to think of it as an art. I mean, comedians did, but you know, the, nobody in the public thought of it as like a real art form. I mean, you know, I think you can teach courses on it the way you teach music appreciation. I think you can do that with kind of with standup too, you know? Uh, um, but that was never anything that was uh, generally understood by, you know, the average audience, but it seems to be that comedy has really, has really gotten some respect, enough respect for people to get upset. Well, comedians are good comedians are dangerous because they get to the point and if they're talented, they say things that reveal something about the zeitgeist that's unsettling. That laugh is unsettling because it reveals something about all of us. And it's the laugh that people are afraid of. You know, well, you know, Carlin, you know, the great quote by Carlin, he said, the job of a comedian is to find out where the line is, deliberately cross it and bring some along with you who are happy they came. Right. Right. But it's also to simplify things, to to make things digestible, to explain 
why we are where we're at. I was reading about Orwell, and he was complaining about the left, how they talk in highfalutin terms, and they care more about... This is George Orwell complaining that socialists and people on the left rather come across uh, being smart than actually selling the idea of solidarity and collectivization. And he said, you're more likely to uh, get a clear understanding of socialism from a music hall comedian than you would an academic. Well, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's another thing that Carlin used to say. He used to refer to himself as a vulgar comedian, vulgar from the sense of the people, of the people. The know? vulgate. The yeah. vulgate, exactly. Uh, and, you know, he used, to, he used to talk about how comedy is really a very populist thing. And um, he being, you know, coming from a working class background, you know, relates to people in a different way. But I always said that, you know, um, comedians know more about the tenor of, of the country, I think, than certainly any politician or any government official does. I mean, because we, first of all, we have to figure out how to talk to everybody in the country. Uh, we have to talk about, you know, we have to figure out what they, we have to know what they believe before we can subvert it or refer to it. We have right. to talk about what they know, you know, we can't talk about something out that they're completely ignorant of or, or aren't hip to in some way. So we have to speak to people in a way that's really approachable and really accessible. Um, uh, and on top of all of that, we interact with every social class all the time. Right. We're on planes, we're in cabs, we're talking to audience members, we're, you know, we're dealing with owners, we're dealing yeah. with press, we're dealing with, you know, you get meetings, all this, it's just a huge cross section, you do corporate gigs, and all of a sudden, you got friends who are millionaires and billionaires, you know, uh, um, it just, I really feel like if you really want to know the tenor of a country, you know, the comedians are the ones who can tell you what this country is really all about. Is the subject matter for a comedian limited. Are there certain, are there, is there an Overton window? I don't mean Rick. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's, we're back to Gilbert again. I mean, I don't think so. I think if it's funny, it's funny. Um, but can you talk, you can, you can do pedophile jokes within reason. You can do sex jokes. You can be disgusting. But can you talk about everything and i don't mean like uh bestiality i'm talking about you know tackling uh climate change i, I don't see why not i mean i used to get in a lot of trouble i did a lot of religion material you know i the religion to me is like one of the stupidest things on the planet uh, and I used to do a lot of material about it. And I used to do a lot of material about Catholicism since that was, that's how I was raised. And um, I used to get a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback. Um, but there was, there was no, you know, there was no Twitter at the time. But I, I remember, you know, I, I got spit upon, you know, people really upset about me saying things about the Pope or, or some shit like that, you know, and about, you know, I would just talk about the pedophilia in the church as, you know, as if, I made that up out of thin air, you know, and people would get really upset. Uh, um, so I think there's always going to be people who get upset. Whenever you do anything that's in any way 
incendiary for somebody. You know, I think it's I, I think you're going to piss some people off. But um, most comedy that you see is about relationships, sex, growing up, their personal stories. Yeah, right. The, that's that's the trend in comedy now is very confessional. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, this is great. I, it's great to see you. And I, and I, yeah. Who do you like? Who, what comedians out there? Boy, you found Bo Burnham. I remember 10 years ago, we were working on green room and you kept telling me about Bo Burnham. Like nobody knew you found him before anybody else did. Yeah. Boy, was he, is he a multi-talent or what? Boy, he's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I haven't been out, uh, interacting with too many comedians lately given pandemic and all and i haven't been uh, to any of the festivals lately but um there's a few people out there i like uh, i saw this kid the other night actually my, my first night in a club in years um his name is max beasley so interesting so interesting and clever and also there's there's a whole bunch of layers to him right now uh he's sort of kind of like kind of st- emo Stephen Wrightish kind of like line writer but he's also uh transitioning from male to female and he's doing material about that but it's not confessional it's really funny jokes he's not calling it a segue he's not, he's not you know it's not like a Hannah Gatsby kind of thing at all he's literally just doing great setup punchline jokes about it so interesting. Right. He's really good. Wow. I'm going to keep my eye on him. Sure. I want to see him again. Or her. Who yeah. knows? If you see him, if you wait long enough, it'll be her. Right. Right. Comedy, it's not quite back yet, is it? Because of the COVID. Um, it seems to be here in LA. It seems to be. I mean, I, um, yeah, it seems to be. <laughs> I was in some rooms that had some, you know, some people in them. I don't think, I, I don't think everything's back yet. I mean, it's a little weird. I mean, there are a lot of people who are really hesitant and, and there's this new wave coming of uh, what's it called? The new, the new strain. Oh. Uh, um, so I think a lot of people are hesitant to go out, but, but actually the, the three venues that I've been in recently, three or four venues that I've been in recently, uh, they all ask for proof of vaccination uh before going in and and they let everybody take their masks off so i don't know i don't know i don't know are we it's done crazy. with this pandemic or are we just tired of it is it over or we just we just got bored i have a feeling we got bored i have a feeling it's now just going to be a chronic condition that and it seems to me everyone i know is getting it and it's not as you know because of the vaccines and the boosters right. they say it's not that bad i think a lot of people are just i think we've given up trying to control it i think the right wing i think desantis and joe rogan won and well you know uh i'm okay with that as long as they're still giving out vaccines because right you know, and actually, that's what it's going to be right? like a flu. They say it will be endemic and it'll be like a flu and you get a seasonal shot or whatever. But um, well, you're compromised. Uh, 
Right. Unless you're morbidly obese, like half this country. Like and half this country. Diabetic. So if you're young and you're in shape, it's just like the flu. And uh, anyway, uh, to be continued. Come back. It's good to I, see. I'm you. gonna. I'm gonna miss seeing people getting duct taped to airplane seats, though. That that was really entertaining. I know. <laughs> I think that'll still. Go on. <laughs> I hope so. I hope we don't hope we don't throw the baby out with the bathroom. <laughs> Thank you. I love you, Paul. It's great to see you. I love you too, David Feldman. Come back. And Come uh, back more often. To Gilbert. Long may his comedy live. Right. When's the next funeral? Who's next? That's why I spoke to Jeff Frost. Uh, I'm not feeling that well. Um all right. <laughs> anyway, doesn't it seem like this year is like an Agatha Christie novel? Who's killing comedians of the comedy boom? I'm Holy telling shit. you, eventually my phone's going to start ringing again. I <laughs> <laughs> this game is about attrition. <laughs> I had one joke that I didn't have the courage to tell, but I'll tell you. When Louis died, Louis Anderson, I said they always die in threes. <laughs> and and oh, somebody, said, I, somebody said he would have loved that joke. I said, I can't. I, I, I'd feel. Oh, bad. he would have loved it. I know. I know. Well, my joke about when Gilbert died, when Gilbert died, I wrote to another really good friend of him and I said, Well, he finally picked up a check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. We love you, Gilbert. Yeah, we love Gilbert. I love you. And come back soon. Not for to remember somebody who passed. Somebody. Uh, let's talk about people we wish would pass. That's let's more. Let's do that show. Let's do the yeah. people who should get, who should have been. <laughs> that show will go on for hours. Go do fantasy in memoriams. Let's sell that to like, you have connections. Fantasy in memoriam, where we just remember people we wish we're dead. Wish we're dead. And we bring them on as guests. Oh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. I wish you owned a network. Go you but you sell shows. Why don't you pitch that? We're you yeah. know you see all my shows on the air now? You see you them gotta, you gotta you're better at it than I am. <laughs> you and I we're we're still here together now, aren't we, David? Yes. Yes. I love you. Thank you, sir. Love you too. I'm going to bring you on with John Ross. When you, oh the, man, you know, haven't spoken to him in ages. God, he's funny. Yeah, Let, let's do that. That would be fun. That would be fun. Okay. All I'll right. see Let you me, Thank you. Say goodbye to your viewer. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> let's talk to our viewer. I love that Rodrigo is our viewer. We unlike. Every other podcast, we I talk to my one viewer. That's great. Let's talk to our viewer, Rodrigo. <laughs> Rodrigo is our viewer. I love that. Hi, viewer. Hi, there. You are the one person who actually listens and watches the show. What's on your mind, viewer? Uh, I try to go fast because a uh, headache is killing me uh, half the, half the world they say has headaches 
you remember a few years ago when uh, on Spin City that the mayor was making uh, a speech and he tried to... You're talking about Spin City? You're talking about Spin City. Yes. Do you remember that the mayor desperately tried to avoid insulting people and he ended up talking about how half the city became angry and emotional every month? Uh, you know, I was reminded of. Yes. You know, I've never really watched Spin City. So I'm Michael J. Fox, right? Yes. Gary David Goldberg, Tom Hertz wrote that show, but I, I don't think I ever watched it. But, uh, uh, anyway, uh, in the last few months, the cottage industry of trying to read the mind of Putin, that madman, that mania has been supercharged. It is revealing, at least for leftists, that the liberals trying to guess what Putin is thinking have gone from there's no new Nazis in Ukraine to there's only a few thousand openly new Nazi soldiers in Ukraine's military to the several new Nazi parties in Ukraine failed to reach 5% to become registered because they refused to present a single party for voting, but hey, it counts, I guess. Uh, but even the liberals willing to acknowledge that Bush promised to stop expanding NATO and most presidents from Clinton to Obama were happy to expand NATO insist that Putin is a madman and we have to protect the Ukrainian people. Why are the Ukrainian people different from all the other victims of genocide and war refugees that most of Europe and the UK have been dragging their feet on accepting for decades, including the 5 million refugees that Turkey is keeping in 10 camps because Europe promised Turkey would be accepted into, into the European Union if they kept the darkies from crossing into white Europe. Well, if you refuse to accept that you're a racist, there's really no reason for Ukrainian people to deserve protection from Putin when there's a long list of countries oppressing their own people whose entire existence Western media only rarely remember. But back to Putin, the same liberals who tell us he's a madman, a maniac, a thug, and an autocrat refuse to ask themselves what could have possibly set him off. If we list the likely reasons for Putin to do what he's doing, we can forget the Nazi in Ukraine because Putin has dropped it from his list of demands, but mostly because no one in the West really cares about how many neo-Nazis are in Ukraine or the rest of Europe. Among the other reasons, Putin believes in climate change and Ukraine has some of the best farming land in Europe. Putin would like to have a port or two to have more sea access to the Atlantic. But a very important reason liberals refuse to accept has any relevance to the situation is that Putin is a paranoid so-and-so who was trained as a spy in the old KGB. Less than a decade ago, Putin was still saying nice things about NATO because he expected that eventually he would be allowed to join NATO, despite all the times a US president 
signed off on accepting a new European country into NATO. Today he decided to move first because he fully expected that the establishment would try to bring Ukraine into NATO. Why am I talking about this? Am I saying I can read Putin's mind? No, I cannot. I have no proof of what Putin actually wants. But you know who knows? The Obama-Clinton people running Biden's White House know what Putin wants, have known since last year, and they're determined to not let him have it. Not because they can't afford to, or because it's immoral, or because the military-industrial complex doesn't want them to, but because their polling suggests they don't have to. Which brings us to the difference between people who are anti-war and demand an end to hostilities from both sides, and those who claim they're leftists, but have clearly chosen the side of the quote-unquote Ukrainian people. What happens when you put the Ukrainian flag on your Twitter bio? Are you signaling to the establishment that you've seen through their game and you're on the right side of history? Or are you surrendering your moral agency to NATO, demanding that Putin be stopped no matter the cost? Perhaps an example will clarify the situation. A streamer I follow is quote-unquote defending Ukraine. She claims she's an anarchist who hates the establishment. She was yelling the other day about F NATO and maybe the UN should be dismantled and the money used to feed people. But she's still on the quote-unquote defend Ukraine side, which means she's okay with funneling money and weapons to Ukraine, which does nothing except make this war last longer. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about Zelensky surrendering, even though the longer he refuses to surrender, the more people die, especially since, as this streamer points out, many people are currently being oppressed under Putin. But if we refuse to even entertain the idea of Zelensky surrendering to Putin, we're just falling in line with the West demanding that Putin be stopped no matter the cost. I'm not asking anyone to choose between putting dozens of flags on their Twitter bio or none. I'm not even asking anyone to accept their instinct to protect Ukraine from Putin that somehow doesn't include people from Yemen, Ethiopia, Somalia, Myanmar, etc. is rooted in unrecognized racism. I want everyone to realize that when they openly take the quote-unquote defend Ukraine side, they have surrendered to the side that wants to keep shipping weapons to Ukraine until next winter forces Putin to decide if he's retreating or trying to hold Ukraine during the winter, civilian casualties be damned. And I don't want to change what I wrote over two weeks ago, but I will point out that even a few leftists who support shipping weapons to Ukraine are outraged at the Israeli soldiers who bullied old women at the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Where is the leftist outrage from all the people with Ukrainian flags on their social media? Or at the UK sending women to single white males, but the rest to Rwanda, which is currently so fascist, four Rwandans received asylum in the UK just last year. It should be clear that the Ukrainian refugees are white, when NATO wants reasons to send weapons to Ukraine, but they're Eastern European when the UK tells them to go apply for asylum in Rwanda. 
I don't know if there's time for a Mexican update, but it's pretty entertaining. The quantum president is claiming that he won the vote, that he was short on votes on again. And at the same time, the politicians who voted against the Bartlett law are traitors to the nation again. And breaking news, the female Mexican SCOTUS minister appointed by AMLO has protected the Mexican FBI from having to hand over their investigation into the president's brother to the Electoral Institute. And I'm done. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Rodrigo, my listener and my viewer. I knew there was somebody out there who actually watched this show. We will be back. Uh, I'll wrap things up. But first, we have a special uh, cameo from Rudy Giuliani. Hey, this is Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor. I'm still coming off the high of covering George Thorogood's bad to the bone while dressed as a jack-in-the-box in front of an enthusiastic Jenny McCarthy, whom we all masturbated to in the 90s. That was before technology ruined masturbation by making it too easy. When I was mayor, we all masturbated to the same people, centerfolds, Bond girls, and barely legal pop singers. It was a shared communal experience. And back then, Asian people were polite. When we covered George Thorogood, <laughs> they would bow, not walk out. Technology has ruined masturbation, empowered minorities, and rigged elections. Anyone with ears can tell you that my singing last night was far better than the Polaric Sphincters or the Cornfield Turds. But it was me, the jack-in-the-box, who got voted off, while the Polaric Sphincter and the Corn-Packed Turd lived to sing another week. Believe you me, this is not the end. Today, I'm announcing a class action lawsuit to suspend any further episodes of The Masked Singer until this is resolved. That's right. As of today, I am suing and masturbating to the cast and crew of The Masked Singer. God bless America. That is a, that's an official statement from uh, America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. I think that's Rudy Giuliani. Some people are writing and saying it's Robert Smigel, but I think it's uh, Rudy Giuliani. Thank you to all our guests, including Nolan Higdon, Professor Nolan Higdon. Pick up his new book, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. Thank you to the Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld. Uh, go download Thug Thug Jew or stream it on YouTube. Emil Guillermo, thank you. Follow him on Twitter at Emil Amuck and read him over at the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and listen to the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, go to barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of his sermons, writings, and appearances on various television shows and podcasts, and pick up D. Knight's book, uh, 
My Whirlwind Lives, Navigating Decades of Storms, a Political Memoir and Manifesto, published by Guernica World Editions, that is uh, coming out in June of 2022, but you can order it now. Thank you, Professors Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. Professor Jonathan Bick, come to office hours tomorrow night and watch him teach us about the Twilight Zone and Star Trek. Professor Ann Lee, read her over at the Daily Co's. Her handle there is Annie Lee. And of course, Professor Adnan Hussein, watch his podcast or listen to his podcast, Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless Podcast. Thank you, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. And of course, Professor Harvey JK, follow him at Harvey JK on Twitter and pick up, take hold of your history. And the brilliant Paul Provenza, follow him on Twitter at Paul Provenza and go stream the aristocrats. Thank you, Joe in Norway, for your falafel calm, calm, cam, and uh, Dave and PA uh, for doing uh, what you did tonight. Follow me on Twitter. Friend me on Facebook. We have a YouTube channel. The show is put together by the brilliant Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, Andy Brown, Professor Jonathan Bick, Joe in Norway, Dan Frankenberger, and the Invisible Ninja. Thank you to all of them. And that's our show. I'm David Feldman. David? Come off. Yes, sir. Please remind your viewers to sign the petition for Melissa Lucio, who is in death row in Texas. Uh, she would be executed on the 27th. Uh, Kim Kardashian and France, the country France, have asked that the execution be stopped. And the current DA has promised that he will ask the judge to withdraw the death sentence, but that would only take her back to serving life for the murder of her two-year-old, which she did but not that's give. Better than, that's better than what we were told by Professor Bick on Monday. That's good news, isn't it? Well, it's not sure yet, so the more activity there is, the more likely it is that she will actually be spared. Thank you. How do you sign the petition? Uh, go to the Innocence Project and look for Melissa Lucio. There are links to the petition there and to share on your own social media. Right, the Innocence Project. Thank you for that. Rodrigo. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Sound hysteria in the greater Bay Area. 
We heard about it on CNN.com I guess they're calling it a swine barn We've been infested by feral hogs They messed up my lawn and they ate my dogs They're taking over and they're out of control We're gonna organize a swine patrol We got a swine barn Swine bomb boogie. These hogs are smelly and they make nasty sounds. Some of them weigh close to 800 pounds. Now you tell me if you think I'm mistaken. I think that sounds like an awful lot of bacon. These critters are mean, they can tear into you Here's what they say you're supposed to do Get on your car or climb up a tree Cause pigs can't climb, at least that's what they tell me We're in a swine bomb Pigs can't climb Doing the swine bomb boogie Pigs can't climb Folks are getting guns and shooting them on sight. I doubt if Peter thinks that's all right. All my life I've been for gun control. Now they done put me on swine patrol. Pigs can't climb and white men can't jump. All we can do is a bumpity bump. Can we chill these pigs out with some smooth and metal jazz? Round them all up and send them to Alcatraz. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. The pigs can't climb. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. The pigs can't climb. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. Pigs can't climb. We got a swine bomb. Well, where am I? All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, this was a tough one. We had technical uh, problems with the sound. So thank you all for uh, showing up today. And uh, I have to get to New Jersey tomorrow to visit my mother who's doing well, and I will see everybody at office hours. Thank you all.